ambush terrorist was the most intimidating. There's some ugly people doing ugly shit. His whole intent was to kill Americans. So they do what they can, and he gets there. They get him out of the car, got his hands in his pockets, and they're yelling at him to get his hands out of his pocket, and that's when he decides to crank off his vest, kill seven. My four guys, three are dead, and one is injured. <clears throat> that's the nature of the, the business that we were in. People make decisions, and sometimes people get hurt, and that's what happens. There is a right and wrong, even if we're going to kill people, right? Bad guys are bad guys. They don't have rules like we do. Bottom line is, if they're on the bad guy list and you're asked to go after them, then you go after them. What was the, the darkest day? Uh, well, that was screwed up. Uh, <laughs> I never want to experience that again. Bob, Ninja, Robert, Bobby, Black Sheep, many names, one man. I'm very excited to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's Thank you so here. much for being here, man. Um, you have maybe the most like fascinating, turbulent, up and down like military journey of anyone I've ever heard. I mean, fascinating from going AWOL, Delta Force, GRS, <laughs> Ranger training, like you've done everything and you've also done more things than you haven't, you know what I mean? You've done training for programs that you have never even went into. Uh, you've been involved in missions and operations that are just absolutely fascinating. So I just want to start, how does a uh, Southern California Chicano guy get into Delta Force? Like how, how does this journey start? So that's a great question. <laughs> I stumble upon every bit of it. Um, yeah, so I didn't even think I was going into the military. So that was step one. Um, and that was just changing job careers, just career paths at a young age, 18 years old, not really focused on anything, mm -hmm. uh, joined the military. And then from then on, it was just one thing after another. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to. So in my recruitment, uh, my initial recruitment into the army, I literally want to do everything in, in the, the room, posters of everything in the army. Jump out of planes, drive tanks, um, shoot guns. You know, look cool, and um, and that's what I that's what I I was not focused at all on any particular career path. Um, and my dad gave me the recommendation. He's like, "Well, hey, uh, if you go into the military, great, support you. If you don't, I support you. You know, still love you the same." But um, he said, "If you go in, do something that's going to be a value on the outside." I was like, "All right, well, I don't know what that is, but." I uh, will figure that out. And he was in construction. I did construction, uh, summer jobs and stuff like that through high school. So I was like, well, let me look at the engineer field. And I actually went into the Army as an engineer initially. Um, but I still wanted to do all the stuff that I've seen on the posters in that recruiting office. Right. And, and you're seeing these posters because I guess you have family that was in the military as well? So, he, yeah, most of the folks. Um, so Southern California, uh, the, uh, the Marine Corps and the Navy are, are big down there. So... Um, most of them are former Marines and Navy. I uh, got a few Air Force guys in there. And only one person I knew that was in the Army at the time was my older sister. Mm. And she loved it. She was in Germany, and she loved it. She's the one that said, um, hey, join the Army. Oh, interesting. And get to Germany, and you'll love life. I was like, what was her role? What was she right. doing? She was in, a, uh, in the medical field. I'm not sure exactly. She was in a medical unit most of the time in Germany. Um, and most of her career, I think, uh, was in Germany. She loved it over there. And she just bounced around different bases in Germany for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, ended up at Fort Bliss, Texas, I think, was her last duty station, and then got out from there. 
Interesting. Yeah. And, but, and your dad was supportive of, of the military. Despite he, he never he never was in it or yeah he he did uh, he was in the Marine Corps oh okay like uh, I think most of my uncles went into the Marine Corps I can't think of one that didn't oh wow yeah and if they didn't go into the Marines they went in the Navy um, so I have cousins and uncles and all that stuff he went one or the other and I think most of that was to hopefully get stationed in Southern California and still be close to home but. Um, I think it just worked out that way. Yeah. And now, do you feel like most of your family's desire to join the military was, you know, because it was a thing to do? It was another path other than college? Was it like extreme patriotism? Like, I'm going to serve my country? What do you feel like the motivation was for? Well, I think it was um, probably several things. One, uh, uh, so I'm third generation uh, uh, Mexican. So it's kind of a do things for your country, right? Mm -hmm. uh, do things for your country now that you're in the United States. Uh, from my grandfather to all my my dad and my uncles. Um, and it's the right thing to do. Because um, this is where we are now, so get your butt in the military, right? That's cool. <laughs> and, and earn your way in, you know, th into the country. And they were all born in America, so they're all citizens, but um, uh, so it was from that. I mean, my grandfather was, wasn't in the military at all. Mm. Um, but he thought that was the right thing to do while you're here. Now we're here in America. Um, join the military. That's what you do. Do this for your country. Establish yourself. Um, yeah. And then they all wanted to. Uh, and being in Southern California, you're d the Marines are there on the high school campuses. And, you know, that's pretty much what you see. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty motivating. They just wanted something to do, like discipline and all that stuff. Was there any other thing when you were in high school, you're like, okay, maybe I go in the military, but maybe I do this other thing. Was there anything else that like called you in any capacity? No. Oh, really? Like not, not in was, sports. You weren't like, oh, I'm going to play baseball. I'm going to do something. Oh, sure. Yeah. I thought I was going to do all that stuff. Uh, like what, what, what was the other thing? Like even as a young kid, you're like, oh, that's what I'll do. So uh, while growing up in Southern California, I was around um, the, uh, the movie industry. Mm -hmm. So even in my neighborhood, there was actors and stuntmen and stuff like that. So there was a, uh, I thought that was a path. I really honestly thought like the uh, stuntman side of the Hollywood uh, was where I was headed. Um, there was a stuntman down the street, uh, a couple of actors in the neighborhood, and they were just normal people to me. Um, and I didn't even know they were actors until I... Uh, my parents, hey, he's on whatever show, like one of the guys in Gunsmoke. Cause some of the older movies, right? The cowboy movies um, and series. Uh, the stuntman he was doing, that was when, um, oh, shoot. Uh, the Six Million Dollar Man uh, series was yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So he was always on that. Him and his, uh, I mean, the movies back then, all the Clint Eastwood movies, he was in all those um so subsequently, a lot of the famous people that he was working with were at his place. He had a little studio and everything in the back. He had little trampolines and um, things to do stunts on. And then we'd do the same thing on bicycles, you know, ride them off of jumps and do crazy shit. So I honestly believe that was where I was going because um, those are the people I was hanging out with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then uh, I don't know what happened, but... Um, yeah, I just lost interest in that at one point. Then then got got into the whole high school thing and sports and wasn't really good at any one of those. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, right? What, what sports did you play? 
uh, football and baseball. Okay, cool. Yeah, the big ones. Um, but uh, it's Southern California, so I honestly enjoyed the volleyball side of things, right? And they played, it wasn't that big, uh, like collegiate volleyball teams and stuff like that. Um, so I really didn't think that was a going to be prosperous at right. all. That's why when the military, you saw Top Gun, but you're I like, it. dude, I'll play volleyball. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm going <laughs> to yeah. play professional volleyball with Top Gun. That's, yeah. the, <laughs> yeah. that's interesting. I feel the need, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, so I just liked that. I just liked the aspect of beach volleyball was big, but mm-hmm. not um, not collegiate, even high school stuff. Uh, I was a tennis player. A lot of folks in high, my high schools were playing tennis, and that was a big thing in Southern California. Um, not... No, it didn't interest me whatsoever. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And what do you think about, like, the early, like, army marketing? Like, those posters you were seeing of guys, you know, going through the the swamp with their rucksacks and all this stuff. Yeah. What about that do you feel like drew you in as, like, a young dude? I just thought it was cool. It's just awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I I grew up watching all the war movies and uh, all that stuff. John Wayne, huge fan. Um, Yeah, I saw all those things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. but I never really thought when I was watching those things, that's what I want to do. I just thought it was cool. Right. Um, so going into this recruiting office eventually, it's like, oh, this, he's doing all the cool stuff that, you know, they do all the cool stuff that I've been watching on TV this whole time. And that's what I, I didn't, I didn't know you can't, you can't do all of that <laughs> uh, to the certain extent, extent. but um, yeah, uh, it, as soon as I got in the army and as an engineer, um, and that was kind of a uh, – so you have to score higher. You either go into uh, a field, a uh, medical field I was looking at too. Um, so you have to score higher on the entrance exams, the ASVAB and all those kind of things, and uh, have a decent history and all those other things to get into those things. Um, or you go into infantry, right? You're a grunt, right? Uh, you didn't pass that test. You scored low on this. You don't know math or English. Yeah, go go be a grunt. Yeah. Um, but apparently, I scored enough, high enough to get into the engineering, and that's how I went into the army. Um, but still, I was always thinking. So the the big commercial at the time for the army what was uh, be all you can be. Right. Right. I thought it was a cool commercial, but uh, the Marine Corps always had better commercials. They still do. That's how they get you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dragon Slayer stuff. I mean, they do. Um, and uh, But that one in the Army back then, that was the one I was uh, seeing all the time. Just um, stuck in my head, you know, be all you can be kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And but you then, never had an aspiration of like, oh, this is going to be my career. You're no. like, I'll do this for a couple of years yeah. and then uh, <laughs> move on. O- open a construction company, like do something else, like my dad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and But... Uh, he said, you know, do that, do something that's going to be, uh, worth your while when you get out. I was like, okay. And that was engineering all day long. Um, did it, loved it in the army, um, was actually, so there's some places you can go in the army that you don't, in that career field that you don't actually do a lot of your job. Um, cause there's no engineering work. Um, I lucked out. So I had uh, a lot of a lot of work for Meade, Maryland. You wouldn't think there was some in, like construction, big heavy construction equipment engineer work, but uh, build the um, roads and air, airfields is what the Army does. That's what you make. Um, upgrading the roads on uh, Fort Meade on the rain. It's like so there was work uh, every day. Um, it snows occasionally in Maryland, so there's uh, snow removal, those kind of things. So these are all 
very tangible things I can use on the outside. Mm-hmm. And um, so I loved it. I was getting getting to, to know the job and all those things and uh, be a little bit more proficient than some of the folks that are entering from the civilian side into the, that career field. Sure. Um, so that was going to be a leg up when I got out. Um, and then, but my dad also said, uh, don't get out of the military. And I'm guessing, I'm only guessing why he said it, but, um, that there may have been something he wanted to do and then didn't and then regretted it. Right. Yeah. What do you think? Just that a was? guess. What? I don't know. Cause he got into a lot of trouble when he was, when he was in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so oh, really? I'm not sure. If, uh, I think he was an, an MP. Uh, what is that? Uh, military police. Okay. But ended up on the other side of the lockup than, than being an MP. He got into a little trouble, uh, gained and lost some rank. He had a good time in the Marine Corps. Um, <laughs> and I'm just guessing, but what the other thing that he told me, other than get, get something that's going to be marketable on the outside, he said, uh, don't leave without uh, like wanting to do something. Like if you see something you want to do while you're in the military, get it done. Because uh, you won't get another opportunity. So that's, I mean, 20 years later, that's how that happened. Every four years I was looking at, well, what else do I want to do, right? Yeah. Uh, before I leave. What, what's going to, what, what itch do I have to scratch, right? And um, then it was jumping out of planes. Then I was getting to Ranger Battalion and all those kind of things, right? I was like, yeah, let me try that. So raise my hand again, take another four years, and then try the next, next four years at something, right? And... Just wanting to do exciting things, I guess, too. Mm-hmm. Um, jumping out of planes and doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's cool you took your dad's advice. Like, I don't think many, like, 17, 18-year-olds would, like, hear their dad's <laughs> advice and be like, you're completely right. I will listen to what you're saying. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I think there's, like, an inert rebelliousness to, like, that adolescent period. Yeah. Were, were you and your dad really close? Yeah. No. Yeah. He was a – he was a uh, – he – I re- reference a lot of things, uh, even simple little things, driving stuff. Uh even teaching my kids eventually how to drive is I resorted right back to what he told me because eventually, so even the older I get and more uh, then I become a parent and everything else and uh, understand, you know, parenting and now I'm understanding more his perspective on why he said what he said, right, and why he did what he did. I was like, oh shit, that makes perfect sense. Now. Yeah, 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 you've become him. Yeah, You're like wow. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm there, and I find myself <laughs> saying the same thing. So I was like, okay, but with. Uh, uh, my kids are funny. Uh, they, they say that because I always have like a um, like a disclaimer. You know, it's like I, I know what you're going to be thinking, I, but I got to say this because <laughs> it's gonna. It, trust me, you're going to think this is the right thing to do at one point. Maybe not right now, yeah. but you're going to get it. It's going to click. Just listen to me for a second. Yeah, yeah. And my daughter's really good about doing stuff like that. She's like, yeah. Now she recalls those things, and she's like, yep. I totally get it now. Yeah. Now that she's now an adult, has kids, and all this other stuff, she's like, "Yep, I did the same shit." It's so weird how the whole thing is like circular. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. you, your parents tell you some shit, and you're like, "All right, whatever," and then you become them, and you're like, I, "This is what it's supposed to be." Like it all clicks and makes sense yeah. once you hit that point. And I, I, I lucked out. I mean, I, I've, you know, my dad was a great guy, uh, total role model. Like so. John Wayne was like my movie hero and my childhood and all that stuff. But I still say today, my hero is my dad. He's, he went through so much shit. And, and five kids, uh, all of us grew up great, had careers. Um, uh, yeah, I, I totally appreciate him more obviously now. Mm-hmm. And he did um, it on his own. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. Um, he had um, he had a lot of help. So typical Mexican family, huge families and cousins and uncles and everybody everybody helped. So everybody pitched in. He had a lot of help from his sisters and all my aunts and. Uh, yeah, they all pitched in when they could, you know, because they're so in San, we were in the San Fernando Valley in L.A. Most of my other uh, extended family were mostly in um, on the other side of the, the mountain, Santa Monica and, and those kind of areas. And so that used to seem like a long commute. Um I don't know what it's now, but now it's, it's not, you know, nobody even thinks about it. Yeah. Um, so, but they came out they came out, spent some time with us and helped us, you know, whatever, cook meals for us and all those kind of things. So I learned how to do all that stuff. And, uh, and we just all mostly, um, we contributed, you know, learned how to cook and those kind of things. And every once in a while, you know, I think the, so like, uh, I guess responsibility, individual responsibility and accountability mm -hmm. is the biggest things I think I take away from that whole, my whole childhood. I loved it. Um, had some great times, bad times, my mom dying and all those kind of things. But um, I think that from, from my dad, that's what kind of I got out of that whole thing, right? Just, uh, just be accountable for yourself, be responsible, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, – be responsible because you're going to be held accountable kind of thing, right? Yeah. And he was not, uh, you know, strict disciplinarian, right? But uh, not heavy-handed. He just he just held you to, you know, he just held you accountable. Consistent. Yeah. Yeah, just extremely consistent. Yeah, with all of us. Um, and how old were you when your mom passed away? Ten. Mm. Yeah, and she was a big influence up to that point too. Um, so that's the other thing about, I think um, – that's where I get all that stuff. Like, be responsible, do responsible things. Of course, I've done irresponsible things as well. That's yeah. what you do sometimes, right? Um, but be accountable. And I I at least pride myself on that. So even when I did screw up, I was like, all right, I own it. Yeah. Right. And then just suck it up and take what's coming, right? Take your punishment. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, do you, do you think in hindsight, your mom passing away at that time made you a bit more independent? Like, it made, like do you feel like it woke you up in a way oh, yeah. to, to the reality of the world and kind of oh, yeah. hardened you? Like, how do you think that affected you at that time? Um, um, I don't know. So that's uh, that's a good question um, because there's, there's certain things that, I mean, wouldn't wish that on anybody at any age for their parents to pass away, but um, we had to learn how to, we had to grow up a few years faster than we all wanted to, right? Um, we're responsible now. I, I honestly didn't see that as a burden. So I had two older sisters, uh, two younger sisters. I didn't, I, it was just, okay, this is what we got and let's do it, mm -hmm. right? Um, of course, I was always my smaller uh, sister's, um, uh, I guess, protector, you know. I was very protective about my two younger sisters. Um, Especially the the baby of the family, yeah, she's pretty cool. Um, but we were just hanging out all the time, and, and it was uh, be responsible for now a younger person in your life, my sister. Yeah, um, yeah. Did, did that really? I, I didn't see it as a job. It was just I, why well, this. It, w it was what it was, right? And never left anywhere. Kept you know didn't didn't do a lot of things. Um, I didn't feel obligated to do like 
all the, I don't know, high school party stuff. And I mean, it's, it's LA, so it gets pretty crazy, right? Yeah, of course, especially uh, in that time. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you're a teenager, right? And you do teenager shit. And I did my fair share of that too. But um, I was like, well, no, I'll just stay home, hang out with my little sister and, you know, do whatever. You know, cook a meal, hang out, go do and do other things in the neighborhood. You know, do kid stuff. Um, I don't feel like I was missing out on anything. That's awesome. Yeah, with my friends or anything is like, and, and they would say that too. Um, like, hey, the, we're gonna go to whoever another high school party somewhere. It's like, yeah, no, I'm gonna stay home tonight, and you know, of course, get all that. You know, loser. You know, yeah, <laughs> all that kind of crap. But you're okay um, with it. I think that. I didn't see anything. I think that that's a yeah. interesting sort of piece to like your character, especially growing up, that you were willing to sort of stand alone, that you were willing to to be independent and sort of like focus on your family and your siblings when everyone else is, you know, partying and doing everything else. But you're you're willing to say like, no, nah, I'm OK. And I wonder if that uh, is formative for your work in the military later, you know, in your des- not necessarily desire, but ability to be independent and a leader in you know tough situations that that's what my experience is and that's what i equate all of it to mm-hmm. um because it's still all, all along the way seemed like just a natural thing to do yeah of course i never thought it was uh i was missing out on anything else because i was being responsible or i honestly didn't didn't some of the times uh you know thinking no there's nothing good could come of this right and then that was my decision based off of that right it was always just a, a lucky thing right yeah it's like yeah not gonna stay home tonight right for no other reason um like i'm perfectly fine doing what one or the other right of course get called all the all the names like party pooper and all that kind of sure. high school crap it's like whatever yeah yeah and then find out they get car wrecks and yeah. get arrested for doing Cops stupid shit yeah. Whatever else. <laughs> yeah and were you was your family religious growing up uh i yeah so we're born and raised Catholics. We're born and uh, raised in the Catholic faith. Um, but I'm not going to say even today, I'm not like devout. I don't go to, haven't been to church in I don't know how many decades. Sure. <laughs> but except for a wedding or a funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I think that was another thing, you know, responsibility based off of that, the, the childhood years growing up like that. Um a very so there's more stricter catholic families that I'm, I'm familiar with yeah we weren't that strict we went to church on sundays and the holidays and uh you know did all the normal catholic weekends and holidays and all those things ash wednesdays the whole thing mm-hmm. um so that was because part of part of life i didn't know anything else right um actually until i joined the army and then found out there's, you know, all these other things that people are, you know, practicing. Right. And there's Muslims and Protestants and, yeah. you know, other or nothing sects at all, right? Yeah, yeah. Or nothing. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, all right, cool. I, I heard about all this, but I didn't know what it was about. Because primarily in Southern California, it's it's a heavily Catholic uh, area for whatever reason it is. A lot of mm-hmm. Mexicans down there, I guess. I'm right. not saying Mex- all Mexicans yeah, are Catholic, yeah, yeah. but... Yeah, that's what we did. And most of, actually, most of my family, and I was public school the whole way, uh, product of public school education. Um, a lot of a lot of my cousins, though, uh, they all went to, uh, I think my parents did too, went to Catholic school. 
So all the way till whatever age they go to Catholic school, mm -hmm. I think, other than high school. So, uh, so they were very. So my my aunts and my grandmother, they were very devout Catholic. Sure. Put in their time, volunteer time. Other, I mean, we just went to church on Sunday. They did everything else. Yeah. Um, some That's of them were teachers in their schools in, in the Santa Monica area um, or volunteers. I mean, if they weren't at home there and they were, weren't with family, they were at the church. Right. Um, I, but I didn't know any difference. I didn't see that as anything different. But from a young age, there's this idea that like, oh, there is a moral truth. There is a God that exists that is looking at us and judging us based off what we do yeah. and upholding some type of like moral good. Yep. And as a kid, I, I always, for me at least, my parents were very Catholic and we were raised extremely devout. I got our lady Guadalupe up here, respect. Oh yeah. Um, but like, yeah, there's, you know, all this like re religiosity in my early years that I think was helpful for me at least for forming some type of, you know, like capital T truth, that there is some type of like form of good to pursue. And uh, a lot of my friends that are in the military, my family that's in the military, they are drawn to this like religious component that like, there is a goodness to pursue. But I wonder if some people that like, don't grow up with any type of uh, like, m you know, like religious moral compass, if they don't feel necessarily an urge to pursue, you know, like extended careers in the military. Like, yeah, I wonder if that, yeah. if that shakes their idea of what good is or if they're doing good, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to, to grow up with like a religious backbone that obviously, you know, it kind of changes as people get older. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's always interesting to me. And then the last thing about like growing up, were you, did you ever get in fights like in high school? Like, like was there like, a few? Yeah, like was yeah. there like <laughs> confrontations? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's LA Unified School District. You're going to get in a fight. Was it about anything specific or was it just like, no. this guy called me a dumb name? <laughs> yeah. I'm mad at him. Like, so, just bullshit. So, the, some of the things my dad was teaching me about, you know, being responsible for other people. One thing was for, for women, right? So he taught me that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was reference to my sisters, right? Don't let anything happen to your sisters. It's like, okay, roger that. Yeah. Um, so that I applied that across the board to other uh, uh, student uh, friends, uh, girls who get picked on or something like that, you know, kind of stand up for them, pick, you know, whatever was happening to them. Um, all the name calling, all the bullying and all that crap in high school, junior high school, you know, it's like, hey, you know, you know, that, that was some of the confrontation back then. It's like, well, you know, who are you? Right. It's like, nobody, I'm just a friend, but that's, that's screwed up that you just said that. And then, well, screw you too. Right. <laughs> there, there goes the fist flying, mm. you know, so typical little stuff like that. And, uh, high, junior high and high school. So that was back when, um, so we have issues right now, like having uh, whatever they call those dudes in the in the schools for the shootings. Um, like drills. SRO. What it's it's a an armed officer in the schools. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Well, like a bad thing, right? Um, because of all the potential school sh school shootings, right? Mm -hmm. Or as a consequence of that, that, some folks like it, some folks don't. Um, and in junior high and high school. Because I guess it is what it is. Um, LAPD was always on the campus somewhere, hmm. so it was been a strange thing for them to be <laughs> LAPD parked somewhere, like multiple cruisers, and that's where they hung out. And some of them did teach classes, uh, you know, in the schools too. But that was the relationship the school had with LAPD. So the officers like, would teach. Yep. Oh, interesting. Yep. Um, uh, a lot of that too was uh, just 
being in school. So there was a thing in, that happened in L.A. back then, too, when I was in junior high. We're talking a long time ago. But they would bus kids out of where we lived, out of the San Fernando Valley, and go downtown into the inner city somewhere, go to high school there or junior high school. Then they'd get the inner city kids, bus them to the suburbs in the San Fernando Valley or wherever else they were going. Um, so I'm not so sure that program worked out real well because they were just <laughs> trying to, you know, expose the good people with the bad stuff and, you know, all whatever. Right. They're trying to, like, integrate different, like, social yeah, classes. Yeah. And that didn't work out so well. Well, why not? It was just another confrontation, right? So you have these rich kids coming in from Beverly Hills and you're like, well, who are you? <laughs> well, so uh, we're Sanford boys. You and know? I'm not saying there's, uh, but that, 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 you know, that's kind of what it was, right? Mm -hmm. So you have another gang being bused to another gang's territory. So that was not like part of the decision to do that. That's probably what they were not even thinking about. Mm. We're just going to, they're just kids. We're busting them to, you know, right. make everybody aware that everybody's, you know, can get along. And just, they I won't know the difference. Total, yeah, total opposite uh, message coming out of that whole yeah. debacle. Oh, interesting. I'm pretty sure they did it for a long time. I don't know what they're doing now, but um, so the, the older you get too, um, I don't know if you're in a gang or a group, even uh, those, you know, you have to, I guess, safety numbers, right? He, he, the jocks and, you know, everybody that, you know, you always have groups of people at, in junior high and, and high school. So you always align yourself with somebody like the, the musical kids, the, the band folks, right? Mm -hmm. Who are going to go, uh, you know, be rock stars one day, but when you're in high school and junior high school, they're geeks, right? And I was like, yeah, geeks, you know. Um, the smart kids, you know, they hang out in another group. Um, the jocks, you know, they're in another group. And then, so that happens. Um, and then there was like legit, like gangs, uh, both in the San Fernando Valley and in Los Angeles. So um, you, you can't, they can't get along yeah, of course. just for the sake of you're not in my gang, right? Um, so that happened a lot too. Did you uh, have friends that were affiliated? Oh, yeah. Did you ever consider it? <laughs> no. Never in that, never. <laughs> no, so I'd always get, every time there was a fight, right? Uh, uh, junior high school is crazy. Um, so every time there was a fight, the the Mexican kids that were in one gang um, would, would come up to me and say, hey, you with us? It's like, Ah, no, I'm going to sit this one out, right? <laughs> and then the other gang members would come over because I knew them too. It's like, hey, man, you with us? It's like, you know, we're meeting at whatever, you know, after school and we're going to go screw these guys up. I was like, yeah, no, I got I got other things to do. I got to get home or whatever. And so I'd have like several people that I, I know all and they'd ask me, hey, yeah, we're going to come, you know. So there's a, there is a thing though. It's total jailhouse shit living in, in that area. But you have, to, I guess you feel obligated to align yourself for the safety of your existence, I guess. I never did. Um, never get into that side of the, uh, I know a lot of people did. Um, but I somehow just was able to, you know, just maneuver my way around all those folks. And it's like, no, I'm not going to. Because once you get aligned with somebody, then now you're the enemies. Also, all my other friends, like all those those guys go away. It's mm -hmm. like, 
because you can't hang out with them, you can't talk to them, and all that stuff. Yeah, of course. So I was like, yeah, no. Uh, just for that reason, I was like, no, I'm good. And who did you hang with? Like, who was your clique? Uh, a little bit of everybody. Um, I guess most of the... Um, some of the, well, some of the jocks, I hang out with them. So I actually uh, maneuver around. So I hang out with the jocks, all the guys playing football or baseball or something like that, hang out with those dudes. Um, then go over to the, um, I don't know what you call them, um, the book readers, the geeks, right? <laughs> nerds. <laughs> yeah, call them nerds. nerds. So wow. I go over there and hang out with them for a little bit. Um, <laughs> and they they all, like those, those folks, and so I was learning how to play the guitar and it, with the musician kids, uh, all those geeks. Do you as still well. play? No. <laughs> I was, uh, so I was, when I grew up in, and so I took formerly uh, piano and guitar um, all through middle school and high school. Um, thought that was going somewhere too, but I ended up meeting a lot of good, good folks um, who were in bands later, which I thought was kind of interesting. So LA bands, that was a big thing, right? Right. Um, all the small little clubs in that area. So I saw... Um, Oh man, uh, so many bands before they became famous. Oh really? Yeah, like Motley Crue, right? Uh, before they were anything, right? They're just kids playing, right? Just punks. Oh wow. Yeah, saw them. Uh, just at, like at a, a house party, like uh, in a garage somewhere. So what they have is, um, I don't know. So I want to say it was at a um, like a youth center, like just the the, the auditorium there in the youth center. Uh, they would play there. Uh, that's pretty common in in, LA, in the whole San Fernando Valley area. They would have like Motley Crue played a youth center. Place like that, right? <laughs> in, a, in a backyard, somebody's backyard, right? Somebody's yeah. house party. Um, but when they were trying to make a name for themselves, yeah, I saw them. Um, oh, man, I can't think of the names now, but um, all the uh, metal and the, all those guys. Um, saw them when they were just trying to do something at that point, right? And I thought it was kind of neat. It was like... And I was with some bands. I was like, "Wow, they're gonna, they're gonna be famous one day. This is gonna be cool." And yeah. then nothing. Never heard from them again. Yeah, of course. That's just the, their industry, I guess. What an interesting time to grow up. I mean, what a fascinating like place and time, and in your own personal experience. Like, obviously, this is retroactive, but it starts to all kind of make sense near the end of high school, right? Like, independent dude faced sort of like loss and trauma at a young age, like leader through your parents, a lot of military influence you know, tough getting in fights, like trying to kind of fend for yourself and support your family. And all of a sudden this, you know, opportunity with the military comes along and you're like, yeah, let's try it out. And it, it kind of like- That's the worst thing to happen. Yeah, right? exactly. It kind of like, <laughs> it kind of makes sense. So then you enlist, you're like, yeah, I'll try this for a little bit. Uh, and I'm curious, what was like the political attitude towards the military at that time? Like this is post-Vietnam, like was there an anti-military sentiment? Where did you have any fears about that? Uh, uh, no real fear. So that that's a good point um, because some of the some of my neighbors growing up, there were the kids that graduated high school. So I didn't think anything of it at the time. But uh, like my two older sisters, they're the the guys in their uh, school age in their classes were um somewhere like yep uh like my older sister probably five years older than me um as soon as they graduated high school they, they were they still had the draft right back then so they were like oh man i'm not gonna do that because they're gonna go to vietnam and also the stuff they were thinking about um they're going so i heard those stories too about going to canada and all those other things i was like well why would you do that i mean um 
And then neighbors that I knew that grew up and actually went in the military, went to Vietnam, came back. Um, so I saw them too. Well, I saw them before and never saw them again after that because they went wherever they went. It was reclusive kind of stuff going on. Um, so I saw that all. I saw all of it. Um, and then by the time I get to that that point, there's kids that um, I know, their parents have been to Vietnam or their uncles went to Vietnam or something like that. Um, and they're in ROTC and that was, I was like, those are geeks too, right? That's yeah. what I used to think. It's like, it kind of yeah, is. Those are gigs. Isn't, that, <laughs> isn't that kind of sad? Like even in my school, you see the ROTC kids and you'd be like, ooh, okay. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I thought at the time. Uh, so I was like, yeah, no. Uh, but, uh, I did, you know, I started looking into it. I was like, um, you know, the patriotism thing, um, that was part of it too. Uh, it's like, well, it it wasn't any there wasn't any real incentives other than uh, a job and paycheck, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, because right now there's like they can they can get get folks in on the GI Bill or something, which is nice nowadays. Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, the twenty years they had to go to war to get it, but right, um, it's a great deal, and that's how they were getting. That's par- probably part of the recruiting. Uh, during that time frame, uh, recruitment, uh, reenlistment bonuses, all that stuff. But uh, so a lot of money. Yeah. Um, back then, it wasn't really a whole lot. So 1980, there's not a whole lot going on um, as far as that's concerned, wars and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems pretty safe. You're like, yeah, I probably won't get deployed. I'll, you know, learn to be an engineer and get out and do some other shit. That's what my sister said. She's yeah. like, you come to Germany and have a great time. Yeah, hang out, party, go to some <laughs> yeah. bars, and then head home. Yeah. And so what is the what, when does the turn happen where you're like, oh, I'm going to get some specialized training. I'm going to go a little bit deeper into this. My first reenlistment. Well, actually, during my first enlistment, the first four years, um, I just wanted to still do exciting things uh in the army and um that's when i first uh got the itch to go to try to get to ranger battalion at the time right and uh yeah that's that's when that's all started that my first my first couple of years so even in base training and all that stuff i had a great time it was it was like discipline and you know uh, a lot of good physical stuff and um I, I just, that was, I was like, yeah, this, I love it here. This yeah. is great, right? So it was kind of equated to um, me. So I, I knew like um, the discipline and all that stuff if you're playing sports in high school and, and uh, middle school ages. You typically have like a tryouts in the summer, summer tryouts, summer, all that stuff, or, you know, two, two practices a day and you're just killing yourself to make the team at that time. And then you have that, whom, who's making the final cut, right? So... I kind of equated all that, like basic training to that, because I've seen people that weren't making it, seen people quitting, and I was like, this, this is just like this is just like football. Yeah. Um, and at the end, who's going to get selected to play on the team, right? Um, I was like, well, this isn't that hard. <laughs> it was it was pretty easy for you in that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it sucked. There were some sucky moments and physical hardships and those kind of things, but um, – I think uh, I was like, well, I mean, they can't kill me, right? Yeah. <laughs> Compared to what to what was to come, this was right, pretty, right. pretty basic. I was like, yeah, you just got to suck it up yeah. for a little bit. It's going to end at one point. Um, 
And uh, I, so, and, and, and I didn't ever see my older sister and she was in the army. Um, oh man, had it been at least 12, 10 or 12 years. Mm. And I never saw her as like a soldier, right? She was always just my older sister. Yeah. So I never, I never said to myself, I was like, um, well, my sister's in the army. How hard can it be, right? No, that's actually a helpful mentality, right? <laughs> yeah. Like someone that's in there that you're like, oh yeah, they could do it. I could do it. You I, know what I mean? But little, little do you know, your sister's probably tougher than you. Right, <laughs> right. You're yeah. like, damn, she's actually pretty hard. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Just, yeah. And uh, I, then she was, she was like, so five years older than me. Yeah, she is. She's like, she's pretty good. She's pretty tough. And, uh, and they, uh, her and her husband at the time, I think they were married. They might have been dating. Um, they came to see me later on in basic training. Um, maybe it was our uh, way later in into it, where you're finally able to get visitors um, to come visit you. Uh, they flew, I think they were in Germany. They flew to come home on a vacation, stuff like that. We'll stop by. At, at, I, was at, I was going to a basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And they'll, they were going to stop by and, and I only get like 20 minutes. Um, they're going to stop by, say hi, see how, you know, for them, it was going to be nostalgic to go see me in training. Um, and they stopped by and of course they saw this whole thing. When you get visitors and basic training, then you get harassed. It's like, uh, if you get mail or if you get visitors, right. Um, you're harassed. It's like, oh, somebody loves you. No, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nobody loves you. What's wrong with you, right? So somebody's here to see you, you know. Uh, so I got harassed, uh, and I didn't, I didn't know because it was just mail back then, just snail mail stuff. If you got anything, that's what you're getting. There's no email. There's no internet then, right? Uh, you can't have phone calls. You get phone calls like once you get like 10 minutes on a phone every other weekend or some, something like that. It was, so you're pretty much isolated. Um, and everybody that I knew is either in Europe, my sister and her husband, or, or they're in California. They're not going to fly all the way to Missouri yeah, just for 20 minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know what was in Missouri before I got there. Um, so yeah, visitors come and go. I got mail uh, every once in a while. My sister would write me. Um, so that was cool, um, but I never expected anybody to show up. And at one point, um, I thought somebody was screwing with me. So I uh, got a letter, and that was from my sister. And they, so they used to read your mail before you got your mail, right? <laughs> so they open it, like, uh, you know, private porous. You know, they call you out, and they're like, open it up in front of you. It's like, eh, it looks like, looks like your sister wants to come visit, right? And then throw it on the ground in front of you. It's like, okay, and then you pick it up and read it. It's like, huh, okay. Because your, your world is so small at that point, right? It's like, okay. <laughs> All right, whenever she gets here, I don't know when I'm going to be able to see her, if any. But, um, yeah, they, they did that at one point. And then then uh, when she actually showed up, um, her and her husband show up. And I I want to say they had their first kid with them, Jeremy, who was my godson. Um, he I'm pretty sure that they had him at the time. Um, and, of course, they're yelling uh Apparently somebody's here to see you, kind of thing. Right? Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, okay, I'll go run downstairs and in the barracks and uh, report into the 
uh, drill instructor, the drill sergeant there, and uh, he's like, hey, somebody's out front um, waiting on you. So um, I get dismissed and go to the front. So there's there's uh, the the steps in these old barracks used to be, just be horrible. Those are just popular places to just smoke you and just make you feel like you want to die. Yeah. Um, so I go running out there, and I'm standing out there. I'm looking out. So there's this one quad area, and you see some uh, some of my other soldier friends. They're sitting down with their whoever parents or somebody. They have these picnic tables and stuff like that. And I was looking around, and it's like, oh, it's like, holy shit, that's my sister. <laughs> and I hadn't met her husband yet. Oh, wow. So, because she was in Germany the whole time. And I was like, oh, all right. And uh, she recognizes me standing in the front of these barracks. And so there's like steps down to the ground. Um, and then I hear behind me the uh, drill sergeant. He's yelling at me again, you know, get your ass back in here, right? And that was it. So he told me, all right, you done visiting? <laughs> you know? So he's just beginning his little screw with me session. And I was like, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't actually talk to her yet. <laughs> and he's like, uh, smoke session, push ups, uh, all kinds of duck walks, and I'm just getting tortured. Um, and then he finally gets up and he's like, you still, uh, he, he lets me get outside and he's doing it in front of them, right? Because that's the whole idea, right? Um, and she was just laughing her ass off. Like, oh, he's, he's getting smoked, right? And um, you still want to go visit and all this other stuff. I'm doing push-ups and getting smoked and doing all kinds of exercises. And, uh, you know, yes, 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 roger that, yes, sir, and all this other crap. And then all these formalities. And then it's finally, finally he, he's done. He's like, okay, get out of here. So ran over there and walked, talked to my sister for 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was. And she was just laughing her ass <laughs> off. Uh, one, of the, one of the things she had said going in, she's like, the only advice I got for you is just don't let them know your name. Just be the gray man. And I didn't know what all that meant. You know, don't, if, she's like, if they know your name, as soon as they know your name, you're screwed because that means you screwed up, right? And so day one, <laughs> day one, no. driving to the, driving from the holding area. Uh, so you go there and you get all your initial issue gear and you get introduced to marching and stuff like that. But it's not a drill sergeant; it's just an NCO that's there and they're just taking you from place to place to get all your uniforms and your shots and in processing stuff and. Get all your new army clothes. Uh, and then, then you get shipped across base. And then that's where the drill sergeants are waiting on you, the guys with the big smoking brown hats and yelling at you and screaming. So they, they, they put you on these things they call cattle cars. And you just get shoved in these trailers. There's, so there's a bench seat. And then so uh, I got a bench seat. You just They're just yelling at you to get into this cattle car. And... I got in there and sat down. I have a duffel bag and a rucksack with me, and that's like all my new army clothes in it and stuff. Um, and then we started driving, and I don't see anything. So I'm, I'm sandwiched in this thing with guys. I'm like, there's guys standing in front of me with their duffel bags and backpacks, and there's guys, we're all smashed in there like sardines. And I heard the yelling from this drill sergeant, right? And I heard him yelling and screaming and, you know, uh, 
I didn't see him because I'm surrounded by all these green bags and these dudes. Um, and uh, there was the window. So this cattle truck, they have windows, and the, one of the windows that was right behind me was open. And this is like February in Missouri, so it was cold as shit. Um, but that was kind of the whole idea, right? So all the windows are open, and and a leaf or something had flown in, right? So I'm sitting there and I can't move, and something flew in and landed in the back of my collar, right? And that's all they said. That's all I heard them say, is like, um, sit there and don't move. The guys are standing, don't move. All this other stuff, and they're screaming and hollering and doing their stuff, and. Um, I still hadn't seen one yet. One of these dudes with the smoking yeah. brown hat, smoking bear hat, and um, uh, I didn't know they were even on this cattle car with this, this cattle truck with this, this trailer full of just bodies, and because um, be quiet, shut up, shut your, all that stuff. So totally quiet. All you hear is the sound of the road as you're going down. So something flies in, a leaf or something. I don't know what it was comes in the window, lands in my collar, right? And I'm just sitting there like, what the hell was that, right? <laughs> and I went like this. But that was that one movement caught the attention of the guy, the drill sergeant that was standing somewhere in that car. And as soon as I went like this and looked up, <laughs> his face is right there. And uh, you have U.S. Army and, and your name tag right on your uniform. So... He's asking me, like, what is your name? You know, you know, what are, what are you doing? I told you to move. He's yelling at me, screaming at me, spitting in my face. He's hitting me with his brim of his hat. I was like, oh my god, this here we go, right? This is what I this is what I signed up for. And um, he's he's hollering at me and just you know, what's your name? I'm gonna make sure you know you, you know, everybody knows your name. And I was like, oh my god, my sister said, don't, don't <laughs> tell him, don't let him know your name. So I. Didn't tell him my name, but you could, it's on the name tag. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, he's, he's screaming and hollering at me. And as soon as I get up, we're all piling off. We get to where we need to go. And, and that's when they really, it's like, uh, uh, you, you're getting off this cattle truck and they're just, just beating you and throwing you down and slapping your uh, rucksack or your duffel bag, right? Because you have a rucksack on your back and a duffel bag on your belly and you're just running, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it, you can't see where you're going. So all I have to do is like, you know, just barely touch your backpack or your, your duffel bag and over you go. Cause you're like freaking, I don't know. You're just like a wobbling thing. Yeah. Right, penguin, all this stuff. Just, yeah. yeah. And, uh, that happened to me. He said, he said, get on your face and do push ups, Right. And so I go down and I'm doing push-ups and elevated. So my duffel bag's on the ground. My feet are on my duffel bag. My rucksack's on my back. And I'm doing push-ups. And uh, who, you know? Then they start yelling for this uh, porous kid. <sighs> like, where are you at? <laughs> I was like, I was so smoked. I didn't even hear them. Like, who they're looking for? And uh, You're like, sucks to be that guy. Yeah, Whoever yeah. that dude is, he's that having a bad dead. day. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought. And I was like, oh shit! Uh, I realized I was like. Um, and I stood up really quick and told him, you know, uh, that's me. <laughs> and then just three guys just zoomed in on me and started smoking me. And um, I was like, okay, well, I screwed that, screwed that one up. Yeah, day like, one. Day one. Um, I mean, that's wild. So, yeah. When these guys are screaming at you, do you ever laugh? Like, do you ever want to smile? Has that ever happened? So, yes, that's what I got yelled at. That was one of the things they were yelling at me for. Because, I mean, 
I was like, yeah, man, this is what I, this is it, man. This is this is cool. This is this, this is the shit. Right? Like it is a little absurd. Like this guy's yelling at you, and you kind of know what they're doing. Oh, they like, pissed him like, off. And but like, so what happens? He's screaming at you. The brim of the hat's hitting your forehead, and you just smile. Yeah, and it's and then it then it becomes something else to mess with you. Like get that smile off your face, right? And then um, we're gonna we're gonna. We're going to make you get that smile off your face. Then you just get so smoked. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, I'm ready to die now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the smile goes away. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that happened a lot early <laughs> on. Because I was just, this is, what it, this is what you see in the movies, man. I was just, this is cool, man. And I was just happy as, as all anything. And um, But, you know, then there's the whole discipline thing. And that was the whole point behind that mm -hmm. and um eventually i got it <laughs> yeah like, you know so you get through basic and it's not it's not too difficult you know it's hard you get smoked a couple times but you get through it and then yeah. you're now sort of serving doing your engineering work and then you hear about these ranger guys and what yeah. drew you in about the rangers and what was their sort of role with where you were you did you see them training uh no um I saw that, so in basic training at the end of basic training, so I, still at Fort Leonard Wood, they march you, the 82nd Airborne does this huge jump. And they're, it, from what I gather later on in, in the, my army life, they're doing it to, as a, as a, like a recruitment for guys to go into the Airborne to the 82nd. And so they jump them in to let you see all that. So they march out this drop zone and um, they let you see all this cool stuff. And I was like, yeah, man. That's the shit, right? I want to do that. That was the first time I saw that, um, like real life. I was like, no posters. This is guys doing it. Um, at that drop zone, too, though, they had uh, some rangers there that were in uniform. And so they were doing the same thing. Uh, but you, from from there, this was engineer school. Yet there you have, you, you have to get – there's no engineers in range battalion. So you would have to go to infantry uh, school after that. And then go to the range of time from there. Mm. So they're there too, to whoever wants to volunteer for that kind of stuff. I didn't think about that because um, I really didn't know who, what they were yet. Um, but I knew the 82nd Airborne dudes, and they were jumping. And that's kind of what got the, the juices flowing a little bit. Um, and they said, well, uh, you're on orders to go to this unit in Fort Meade, Maryland, and all this other stuff. you got to go there and then fill up some paperwork and you can get a transfer. And that didn't work out so well. Um, paperwork doesn't work out like that in the military, like they say. Um, but yeah, I went there for me working, in, and so it was a regular army too, it was, uh, or it's a regular job. So engineering in the in the military, if you have a job, if you have like a job like that, you it's it's almost just like going to work, just like going to a construction site. If you're in a engineer unit that's actually doing some work, um, I was fortunate enough that we were actually had a had work to do and so you just you're, it really is just like showing up and going to work um put on coveralls and and just work so no real like army like structure kind of stuff other than you show up for work it's like everybody else does every day mm -hmm. um and then end of the day you clean up and go home i mean it really wasn't uh, traditional army at all, but mm -hmm. it's the army that I knew, so I didn't know any different. Right, sort of nine to five ish kind yeah. of corporate life. Yeah, and then um, there's a lot of jobs like that in the army. Come to find out, um, but I wanted that that other life. Yeah, 
I don't know, for some reason, that was just always in my head. And uh, my getting to jump school in the 82nd was as a result of my trying to get to Ranger Battalion. Because uh, so I had that story about Sergeant Major Carpenter, and I was I was at Fort Drum, New York before it was a base, and um, I'm going through the phone book, to the military phone book. There, I'm just two o'clock in the morning. What else am I going to do? I'm just thumbing through a phone book, and uh, it's the it's the military bases and all the units in the in the army. Um, as I thumb through that, get get back get to this Seventh uh, Infantry Regiment section. Uh, all the phone numbers are there for operations and battalion headquarters and all this stuff. Um, so I made I made a phone call. It's like who would be more influential to get me into Ranger Battalion? So I called the Sergeant Major, the Sergeant uh, the the number to the Sergeant Major of First Ranger Battalion down in Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was. I just thought. What, what, can, what can go wrong? What's the worst that can happen? It's kind of crazy. Like, can you like can you put into scope like his position and your position in the hierarchy? Oh yeah, like, oh, yeah. he's way way up there. Like for people to understand that are not in the military, like he would be like a king, and you would be like a serf. Yeah, if this is like medieval England, right? Like, is that a fair? Yeah, uh, or or, or uh, you know, knights of the round table, really. And yeah. I'm trying to get into that whole organization, right? Um, yeah, he was he was a pretty significant person, even in the special operations community and at in Ranger Battalion at the time. So there was there's three battalions now, and it's a regiment. There was only two battalions then, and they were separate. There was no regiment central thing. So there's, uh, and so he was he was pretty good. He was he was <laughs> he was pretty significant in that community. And everybody knew him, and everybody still knows him. Uh, still knew him when I tried later on to get there, but uh, I I called that number. But it's two o'clock in the morning, so all the staff are gone, just like where I'm at. And there's some private sitting on the phone, just like me. And that's why I ended up talking to. And um, he he handed me over to the the senior NCO that was with him. And that conversation was just like, "Hey man, what, what, how do I how do I go? How do I get to your place?" want to be a ranger right and that and you know they were both kind of what because uh, that's not the process they got they did to get there right they just signed up and ended up there i guess um there wasn't so now you can get contracts coming off the street to do that kind of stuff back then you just joined the army and then went to the whims of the army right uh needs of the army was a big popular uh catchphrase back then um I, if you went in the infantry, though, they recruit from Fort Benning. So they just like the 82nd jumps into Fort Leonard, Missouri, they do their their demos and everything at Fort Benning mm. for all the infantry guys to get them to recruit them to go to the Ranger Battalion. Um, I didn't have that exposure, so uh, I was an engineer. So that's that's the process I had to do. So that conversation was like call. Eventually, it says call back in the morning. Yeah, we'll we'll give your information to somebody. Call back and we'll see what we can do for you. And then, um, so I call back, and when everybody's there, and private ranger, private so and so hands me over to specialist ranger specialist hands me over to NCO, and and eventually I get a hold of Sergeant Major Carpenter, and 
it's even uncommon for you to even talk to the sergeant major. So I was at, so my my position when I made that phone call, I was I was uh, I was a a runner. I was the shine the floors overnight in the in the battalion headquarters. You know, uh, clean up the offices. You know, you're you're that guy. And doing all this buffing the floors and mopping and dusting and you know, that, that was my job, um, as the lowest ranking guy there that night. So the the senior folks that are there at at battalion headquarters, you never they never talk to you. They never say anything. They come in in the morning. They're like, "How you doing, sir? You know, the battalion commander. Hey, you know, whoever you are, you know." <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> don't talk to me. Uh, Sergeant Major, the same thing. Um, you know, and they don't know you from Adam because they're so high up in the food chain. Um, Sergeant Majors are pretty good about that. Usually, they'll say how you know, hello, and spend some time with you and all that stuff. But it's like that—that that was the the equitable like hierarchy of the the difference of where I was and they were. And I was talking to this guy, and he took my phone call. And yeah. why, why would they put you on the phone with them? That just seems so bizarre. <laughs> like, why wouldn't they just be like, yeah, buddy, uh, try again in 10 years. And just hang <laughs> yeah. up. Like, I feel like that's what would happen now. Right? Yeah. I, it shocked me to have, that they said, well, what, that when I finally got to that point on the phone, um, that, that surprised me, too, that I was going to talk to the battalion sergeant major. And, um, and he got on the phone and introduced himself as such. And I was like, wow. It's like. Holy crap! Um, but I said, hey, uh, "You know, I saw a major. I want to. I want to be a ranger. How do I? How do I get there?" And he said, "Well, who is this, and where are you at?" <laughs> I was like, "Well, okay." The the guys told him all this, the story of the phone calls earlier that day, and he said, "Well, this uh, say he's like uh, Fort Drum. He's familiar with it. That used to be a, a place for uh, special operations, winter warfare training, and stuff like that. So he knew of the base." Um, and I think 10th Special Forces Group was doing some training on that base. And um, so he knew of it. And uh, he's like, we don't have any engineers in the Ranger Battalion, so you're going to have to go in the infantry. You have to change your MOS. Yeah, your restart, career. basically. Yeah. And um, I'm just taking notes. Okay. It's like, okay, whatever it takes, right? All right, I'm talking, you know, get yourself. Uh, re re my first re-enlistment was coming up. So he said, well, uh, put in a 4187. That's that magical document that never works to get transfers in the army. Um, and if that fails, then reenlist for an, an airborne assignment and do that or um, change of your career field, a military occupational, especially MOS is what they call it. Um, you're going to have to change that in order to get here. But get your butt in jump school first. That's step one. So I, I was writing those things down. And I, I was going right down the checklist my whole, the, up to that point in my career, right? Um, yeah, I got the jump school. I re-enlisted. I got the jump school. And then they sent me to the 82nd Airborne Division, which is fine. I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I want to be doing, right? Now you're doing fun stuff. Yeah. Now that's getting a little bit more what I thought the Army was all about. A little bit more discipline, um, you know, rucksacks I'm finding out aren't really fun anymore. <laughs> so all the posters, all the cool posters, like, okay, this just sucks. Yeah, little do you know the guy on the posters like, kill me. Like, yeah. I hate this thing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I honestly am loving it. I'm just digging it. What's up, guys? We're going to take a break real quick because your back hurts. 
And your back probably hurts because you got this giant, fat, chunky dad wallet sitting in your pant pocket, and it's giving you scoliosis. Yeah. But now there's a solution. There's a way you can fix that. And that's with my friends over at Extra. Now, I love this product because this is a product that I use every day. That's right. This is my actual wallet. It's an Extra wallet. Here's what I love about Extra. It's sleek. It's small. You pop it out. It fans all your stuff so everything is easily accessible. You can just pop it out super easily. And the other thing I love about Extra is that it forces me to not carry around junk. Well, anytime I had like a big chunky dad wallet, I would always like just get receipts. I would get business cards. Someone would hand me a business card. Someone would hand me something. I'd be like, you know what? I'll put it in my wallet. And then after like three, four months, my wallet is just full of garbage. Literally just full of nothing. With Extra... I carry around the essentials. I got my ID, I got my license, got my cards, got everything I need right here. Boom. Easy. I could get the money clip and add the money clip on the back. I don't even do that. Everything's mobile, baby. I'm doing Apple Pay. I'm using my cards. That's all you need. The other thing I love about Extra, you can get the solar panel tracker. That way, if you're someone that loses your ID, loses your wallet, loses all your stuff, the tracker will tell you exactly where it is once you pair it with the app. The other amazing thing that I love about Extra, it's RFID protected. You can't get booped. People are walking around. I live in New York City. There's people, scammers, walking around, boop, walking around with a little tracker. They'll scan the back of your wallet, and then all of a sudden they're taking all of your information. With this, it's fully protected. It's in a little chamber, safe and sound. So if you lose your wallet, if you don't want to carry around all this garbage and junk in this chunky wallet in your back pocket, and if you want to protect your financial identity, you got to get extra. And if you want to get it today, you can go to shop.extra.com slash Gagnon. That's right. Up to 25% off site-wide when you use the code Gagnon. That's G-A-G-N-O-N. I'm going to put the link in the description so you can check it out because I love this brand. I truly use it every single day. This is my actual wallet. You're going to see it in pictures. If you see me on stage, you're going to see this outline. It's a very thin outline, but you're going to probably see it in my pocket because this is the actual wallet that I use. So if you're interested in changing your life, fixing all your back pain, getting a smaller wallet, fixing your identity, not getting scammed on the streets. Check out Extra. Now let's get back to the show. Do you remember your first jumps? I don't in jump school. I honestly don't remember those. Um, you weren't scared at all? There's no party that's like, oh, I'm about to fly out of an airplane? So I do remember thinking that. But also, if you, if so, at the time though, when you're in jump school, or even if you're jumping, if you're not by the door, you really don't get a sense of that there's anything you're getting ready to do other than get out this door. Now you've done practices out of mock-ups and all this other stuff. You sure. jumped out of towers and uh, there's a lot of like simulations you've done to that point. Um, but uh, I do, uh, the only thing I remember about the first jump, so I was somewhere in the middle of this stick, this line of people getting ready to get, out the door, um, the door opens up. So you go through all these commands, you know, stand up a hookup and check equipment and all this. So you're going through the process and the steps again that you just did hundreds of times on the ground on these mock-ups. So that's all it is. Um, then, uh, the doors fly open, they open the doors, lock the doors open. And now the, the jump master who's getting ready to get everybody out the door, um, starts you know, doing these door checks and he's doing some, uh, stuff that he has to do to get everybody out the door safely. Um, that's the first time that you hear like the rush of air coming through the doors, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's when it starts getting real. Um, but also some of the, there are some folks that already got air sick on the plane. So you got that, you got jet fuel, jet exhaust, 
not jet fuel, the jet exhaust, you could smell that coming through the doors when they open it up. Then you already have like vomit smell from some of the guys who have just vomited already. Um, Cause the, the, the plane gets unstable and you got all this crap on. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a horrible ride. Like claustrophobic, it's probably oh, yeah. hot. It's like, a horrible ride, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's one of the things like, just get me out of the door, yeah. right? Just get me out of here. Um, so that's really what I was thinking. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, it's like, oh my God, this sucks. It's, it's, yeah. It's hot. I, it's like I, I don't, I didn't get sick, but you feel like, oh my god, I wish I could just vomit because this is a horrible smell. <laughs> um, are, the, are, are the other guys with you nervous? Oh like, yeah. Are you sitting around with all these guys that you know, and they're all just like tapping their foot? Yeah. And, and then there's that too, right? It's like what? What? I mean, you volunteer like, I, what are you? What are you scared about, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, that was how you felt. Yeah. I was like, this is this is what we signed up for, right? This is this is I was excited that way yeah as soon as we got to the point where we're standing up and hooked up ready to go out and the doors are open and all these smells finally you're getting at that point it's like just get me the hell out of here yeah and some fresh air is out there yeah and uh that was the it was kind of neat so but so by the time i get to the door where i can see the door and see the ground like however high we were you know it's like holy shit but there's no stopping at that point i'm in the middle of all this whole lineup and you're just going and you hear the slapping of this the the static line and everybody's just it's just a it's just a thing again that you've practiced over and over and over again and so you just go through those steps and i finally get to the point where um i get to the door and i see that i'm getting ready to jump out of this airplane there was like oh my god and then out i go right and so then it's then it clicked into me, like, there's some continual steps that you have to do while you're jumping to make sure everything's okay and uh, or not, knowing the difference between that. And um, so then it was just it was just that, just going step by step, you know, uh, after the, the initial, oh, my God, right? You jump, jump out, get in your nice position out of the door, and the rush of air, all that stuff goes on. And then uh, the, the ruffling of the parachute when it was coming out, right? You hear all that. Was, I, I heard, I was like super sensitive to all that. It's like, this is happening, right? Um, and then there's a one point where you, where the parachute grabs you and starts slowing you down a little bit. And then that's when you're supposed to look up and make sure that you have a canopy above you, right? So I was like, slow down a little bit. I found myself slowing down and I looked up. I was like, as soon as I got uprighted and you're underneath your canopy for the first time for me it got so quiet you didn't hear i didn't hear the plane anymore i didn't hear any weird noises it was it was total silence and i was sitting there and grabbed my uh toggles i had a toggle uh toggles on the parachute and i was, i bring them down i'm okay i'm supposed to get these out of this little pocket there and put them on my hands and i was looking around like wow and it was so quiet. I thought it was so neat. Peaceful. Oh, my God. It was so cool. It smells cool. The view is kind of nice. Yeah. And like yeah. you're just kind of cruising. Yeah. And I see I see the other parachutes and the other guys. And, and I was like, wow, this is, this, is, this is nice. This is cool. And then reality hits me. And it's like, so the, there's, a, there's a guy on the ground who's yelling through a, a bullhorn in case you forgot what you were doing. Yeah, which he's, he did. He, he's, <laughs> telling, he's telling everybody, you know, uh, turn right to avoid collisions, all the things in the air. Uh, steer right to avoid collisions. Uh, 
feet and knees together when you you know get ready to land and all this other stuff. Uh, steering to the wind. He's so he's bullhorning all this stuff out, and I finally hear him. I was like, oh shit! <laughs> it's like come out of this, right? Okay, I'm back in the game, and then it's like then it becomes a uh, you don't get ground rush until the last couple seconds, right? But then it's like, oh my god. <laughs> Another oh my god moment. Yeah, right. The, the earth, the earth is coming towards yeah. you. All I, do, all I, yeah. So go back to the steps that are you're, that you're being taught, right? Like feet and knees together, so you don't break something, right? And then, uh, you know, parachute landing, fall, do all those other things you're supposed to do, right? Um, and I just remember feet and knees together, and that was it. Because once I hit the ground, I was like. <laughs> A bag of shit, just like <laughs> I was like, well, at least my feet and knees were together, I, yeah, yeah, and I'm fine. So I yeah. was laying there. the 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 parachute wasn't it wasn't being drug or anything, but the parachute was uh, there was enough wind that was just like still billowing right while I was on the ground. So I'm laying there. It's like, well, my arms are okay, my legs are still working, <laughs> and then I could feel this, this tugging. Uh, on my shoulder harness, right, and my parachute harness, and I look up, and the parachute's just kind of just hanging there in the wind, and I was like, okay, now undo one of those so it releases and all this other shit, and um, I remember getting up after that one. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Let's do it again. <laughs> yeah, let's do like it again. Like a little kid at a theme park. Yeah. Like- Second one was worse, though. So, <laughs> so the first one, I didn't know what to expect. The second one, I was like, okay, that wasn't cool when I landed. That was kind of fucked up. But um, I didn't think about, well, let me try to get it done better. Uh, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to suck, right? <laughs> um, then I thought about the smells that are coming. I thought, oh, my God, this is going to suck. Um, so that one was a uh, little bit worse because I knew it was coming. Yeah, you have a reference point. Yeah. For but, so you're supposed to do five in jump school. Um, pretty sure we did all five. And then so – there was some sort of weather that was happening for us too. Uh, bad weather coming in. So they were like, let's hurry up and get these out. So whatever, however many days they had scheduled for five jumps, um, they got us all done like really quickly. Like, get out, get down, get another parachute, go back to the airfield. And you're getting busted all these places. Get back on a plane, get up in the air, go jump again just to get your your five yeah, your parachutes numbers. in, yeah, your jumps in. Um so that ended up happening. I was like, was, I really didn't think about it. I mean, we were rushed, and I was like, okay, let's do this again. Let's get back up there and I'll, ah, I'll fall out of the door again. <laughs> and yeah, I loved it. And yeah, I was I was hooked after all after that. And so you're then now you're in the airborne. And you're like, great, I'm I'm on my way to to the Rangers. What's next, right? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. What's next? And that was that was it. I'm on my way. I'm going down this checklist, right? And uh, uh, the. I while I'm at the 82nd, um, they had this thing back then where you can uh, on the job training OJT to another uh, military occupational specialty. All you had, th- whoever it was, you can. They had something set up formally that a unit on the ground with you can just check the blocks and okay, you you check the block, you can be one of us. Um, most of the MOSs uh, had that available. So on the job training, you can go anywhere and just if you're part of that program, learn another job. And then, uh, you get the, uh, every occupational specialty has a number and a letter attached to it. So then you just get that number and letter and you can get assigned that way. Um, so I did that with a unit there in 82nd, the 325th, um, is the unit I decided to do that with. Um, 
one of the engineers, one of my buddies there in my company was an infantry guy. He went engineer. So he went infantry to engineer and ended up in the company. And we ended up in the same company in 82nd. <laughs> and he was the one that recommended. He's like, if you go anywhere, go go here. They're they're good. Oh, that's kind of nice because you were kind of doing it backwards. Yep. And so he was able to give you some advice. He's like, hey, I just came from where you're going. And you're fucking stupid is what he said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with you? I spent so long trying to get out of this bullshit and you're trying <laughs> yeah. to get into it. Yep. Yeah, everybody said that at that point. I'm like, what are you thinking? Yeah. It's like, no, don't, no. But, okay, hardhead, if you're going to do it, go with these guys. And he knew the NCOs that were running the program and all that stuff. So I, I loved every minute of it. And they have this thing, part of the OJT into infantry is to do the what they call the expert infantry badge training. And so for all the grunts in the infantry, that's something that you try to do. And, and it's good for promotions. It's good to show that you're competent in your job and all these things. You get a little badge for your uniform and all that stuff. And I thought, you know, it's a pretty prestigious thing if you're a grunt that to have at least that. And then, of course, uh, ultimately you want to get your CIB, your combat infantry badge. I eventually got that one too. <laughs> But that's not what you want. Like, you just got to go to war for that one. You got to be in combat for that one. Right. Um, and then there's, you know, things like that uh, in that community that are just nice, prestigious things to have. Like, I got my infantry, expert infantry badge, all that kind of stuff. Um, I couldn't get that awarded to me officially through the Army because I was still an engineer. But once I got to the infantry and it became official, that was my 11 Bravo was the uh, military occupational specialty number and letter, um, then I could be awarded those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was part of it. And I, I loved it. It's just, it, uh, it's just basic grunt stuff, communication, shoot, move, communicate, uh, throw grenades and, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was fun shit. It's like, I mean, I'm getting paid to have all this fun, right? <laughs> Do you ever wish you just never went into the engineering route? Do you wish you just started infantry and would just no. skip that? Uh, you did it obviously because you, you didn't think you were going to be in this that long, but and yeah. you wanted to have the skills when you got out. But yeah. looking back, are you like, man, it would have just been easier if I started infantry, didn't know how nice I had it before, and just kind of got all the <laughs> bullshit out of the way, yeah. right? Like it would have been a little easier. Yeah. So uh, I had that moment for a little while, and but uh, honestly, I got a lot out of that that first four years in the army, being an engineer, uh, different di- whole different side of the army. Uh, yeah, different uh, mentalities like for career progression. What do you what do you do on a daily basis? Kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. in an engineer unit, um, the, the engineer unit I was in until I got to the second, um, you did PT uh, collectively as a, as a group uh, two or three times a week. And in the infantry, or even in the engineers in the second airborne division, you do PT every day multiple times a day if you can, if you schedule it right and it's because it's more important to you now to do all those things so um yeah i was just a, a lot more disciplined you know which is okay mm. this is the real army is what i was saying was, hey, this is the real army like more discipline more structure and shoot guns throw grenades and and you were well prepared for it i guess yeah oh, it was it, it was fun for me it was so <laughs> this dude his that was his his exact thing it's like uh, he's been a grunt for 8 years and he 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 didn't want to get out because what was he going to do as a grunt right how what am i going to market to yeah right? there's nothing yeah <laughs> and, uh so that's why he went engineering and um 
And I went the other way. And because I, I honestly was still thinking, and I told him and everybody else, I was like, yeah, well, ultimately I want to get to uh, Savannah, Georgia, Hunter Army Airfield and go to First Range Battalion. That's my goal. So this is part of getting there. And they're like, oh, well, that makes sense. Right. Um, it kind of clicked once you tell them yeah, what you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and uh, eventually, uh, I just had a blast doing all that stuff. And eventually I get to regiment headquarters. Now that there's a three ranger battalions and it's now a regiment, mm -hmm. I actually end up at Fort Benning um, to get officially my infantry MOS awarded to me. And I walked across the base at the point. I just walked across said, yeah, I want to be a, I want to be a ranger. Like that day. You're yeah, like, I, I got, got the thing. I got my infantry. I'm going to grunt now. Wow. Here I am. I'm going down this checklist from my, you know, Sergeant Major Carpenter reference, and he's telling me all these things like, this is the last thing on the list. I'm here. So great. And up until this point, is there any day that you're waking up that you're like, I hate this? Is there anything about it that you're like, I'm angry about the way I'm being treated? Is it, Like, was there any part of it that you're like, I don't care about it? I made a mistake. No, there were no days you woke no, up. No, I love that. Yeah, I lo so there's there's a the progression too. So um, so different ranks get treated differently. So that's all I was achieving. So well, okay, this is where I'm at right now. So all right, whatever. Uh, you know, I'll suck it up, and then eventually I'm going to be in a position to be that person to start. You know, smoking others and doing all the fun stuff. Yeah, and that's kind of how it goes. Um, uh, yeah, no, I was, I was, I was loving it. I was, it was, it was all really just fun for me. Um, yeah, I was getting paid to do it. It's like, they're paying me to do this stuff. So, now, so the worst times that it just totally sucked when it's raining and you're ruck marching and it, it just totally sucks. Um, heavy weights, I'm tired, I'm cold, I'm wet. And it's like, it, there are many times like that, but you get past that and, um, then becomes, yeah cool again it's like well that sucked but okay on to the next thing right how good a shape are you in at this point oh yeah i was uh i was in pretty good shape uh, everybody's in pretty good shape at that point getting getting to that point muscular so, jacked or just like kind of shredded lean oh yeah definitely lean yeah so uh a uh, a big thing a big thing in the when you talked about what so I get to regiment headquarters and reg, ranger regiment, and the guys that are there, right? Um, they're very lean and slender, um, uh, like zero body fat. I mean, these guys are just. But then I realized all the things that we're doing. It's like I understand why, because you're constantly on the move. You're doing PT like crazy. Um, if you're a junior guy, you're getting smoked. If you're a senior guy, you're getting smoked <laughs> and yeah. you're smoking each other. Yeah, you're getting and, from the line. Because you're, you're leading by example, right? So if you're telling somebody to do something, you're doing it. Um, yeah, this is uh, constant, like some sort of physical exertion. And then there's the, the, the more tangible stuff to be uh, uh, like the best infantryman you can be, right? Uh, just to be a ranger. I mean, that's ultimately, that's who they are. They're the best at what they do. And there's a reason for it because they're training for it. They train to be best. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Um, Can you explain a little, like for maybe even people that aren't from the U S that aren't familiar with the way our military works, what are the rangers? What do they represent? How many rangers are there? 
and how difficult is it to be selected to be a ranger? It's uh, so it's a regiment, three battalions, uh, numbers. I'm not quite sure of the numbers, but that's easy. If you look up an infantry regiment and battalion, those are the numbers. Um, light infantry, I guess, if you're going to look it up. I mean, yeah, even those the regiment numbers might even be available online somewhere. Um, but it's uh, so it's a it's like to be a grunt. It's not hard. Like be an infantryman, it's not hard. Mm -hmm. But to be there as an infantryman, a little bit different because there's uh, there's um, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's a very strict standard of performance, right? And whatever you do, um, and that's an, that's another responsibility and accountability thing, right? Um, so you're going to be accountable for non-performance. So less than par performance, you're going to be held accountable because the standards up here. That wouldn't happen in standard infantry. No. So so as you go up the the, the uh, into the more specialized units too, it's it's pretty common in the army for. You know, big army, big everybody. It's like, okay, yeah. It's okay if you do, do okay. Yeah, average is average. Yeah, and it's okay if you're below average. Yeah, yeah. as long as you don't fail, yeah. right? And then even then, eh. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of how that goes, generally speaking. But the the more and more into the special operations, especially, um, like you get the eighth second from regular uh, army, right? Another level of standards. A uh, little bit more higher standards um, than going into the Ranger Battalion, Ranger Regiment. Another level of higher standards, right? Like a lot less, uh, or um, performance is a lot more important to you than anything else. And but you're motivated to like so you're so even in 82nd. For me, I was motivated for like the lineage, upholding the lineage of the units that I was in. Right, 82nd. I was in the first of five was sixth infantry in Korea. Not a big deal in Korea, right? It's, it's a regular infantry unit. But the history of the first of the 506th in World War II, they were uh, 82nd Airborne Division at that point. Um, huge history with those folks, right? Um, and that's what I, it's like, yeah, no, I'm representing all those guys uh, that came before me. Um, so that everywhere I went, I was like that. And do they instill that in you or is that something you did personally? I, so it's a personal thing with me, but they do instill that into you. Um, and sometimes that's a, a reason to discipline somebody, right? So to be respectful for all the, all the, in, in the Ranger Regiment, Ranger Battalion, for all the Rangers that came before you, right? They didn't do what they did for you to be less than like stellar, right? So the, you're living up to those standards and then you're kind of respectful to like your history and your lineage uh in the military so and i love that aspect of all those things um and that's that's ultimately what is i guess what motivated my discipline to do whatever it is i had to do it's like you know there's guys that came before me you know so it's possible <laughs> and they got through it <laughs> as impossible as it may seem it's possible and yeah, so, yeah, suck it up, you know? Yeah. And did that apply throughout all of your training, like that mentality? Like someone else got through this. My sister got through basic. You know, these, you know, great men before me got through this training. I can also do what they did. That was a part of it. Yeah, that was a part of it. And uh, 
when I got to regiment, the whole story of my whole regiment time. So as I was trying to do that and did it, I got there, put the uniform on, put the scroll on, um, got my beret. I mean, got everything, passed all the entry courses to get into Ranger uh, Regiment. There's the Ranger Indoctrination Program I did, the Ranger Orientation Program that I did, completed, uh, did all those things. And then it was just an, a, a, uh, an administrative thing that happened to me that unfortunately I didn't get to go permanently assigned to the Ranger Regiment and to, onto a battalion. Yeah, and what happened? The, uh, so the Army at the time, um, we're talk early 80s, so Ranger Regiment is new. There's a new 3rd Battalion, and now it's a regiment. Um, also in the Army, there's two other divisions that are being fielded, the 10th Mountain Division up in New York and the 7th Infantry Division, Light Infantry Division, in Fort Drum, New York. Or, uh, <laughs> Fort Drum, New York is 10th. Uh, Fort Ord, California mm. is the 7th Infantry Division, and they're getting reactivated to be part of the Army now. So that kind of screwed me up. Um, Administratively, uh, so administratively, they saw me now as another number an infantry. I think it was a E4, maybe an E5. Um, and now they need me to go to needs of the Army, right? So I get lumped into that to go to one of these divisions. And what, I get What does that mean to be E4, E5? Uh, it's a middle hall there. It's like a junior leader position. Got it. So, um, you sometimes have, as an E5 sergeant in an infantry, you have a fire team, sometimes a squad, but a fire team. So four others that you're responsible for. There's two fire teams in a squad, and then there's a squad leader. So the, you go up in those kind of that little beckon orders. Yep. Um, and they earmarked me uh, because I had uh, light infantry experience. Now I'm an infantry guy, and then went, they got assigned, got assignment to Forward California. I did I had no idea there was even a military base out there. <laughs> and uh, so that happens while I'm walking across base at Fort Benning and signing into the Ranger Regiment and going through all this training and even going into a couple of Ranger schools. That's how I even find out that I can't, that I'm even AWOL. That's how I get to this AWOL thing. Because um, at one point, I'm considered AWOL because I didn't sign in at Fort Ord, California. Um, so as far as the Army is concerned, I checked out of the training company that I was in at Fort Benning and didn't check in to my assigned unit in, in California. And why did they think you didn't check in? Well, that's they don't have any record of me signing into regiment headquarters, 75th Regiment headquarters. Did you in sign Benning. in? Yeah. Yeah. They signed me in. And so they knew at one point uh, they're processing paperwork to get me permanently assigned there, which... I thought was great. They're like, well, if you pass this and you pass that, then sure. Uh, so, so if you really want to be here, you'll go to these courses, the rip and the rope, and um, yeah, but it, it, prove yourself there, and then we'll see. Great, right? This is so what I, you wanted the whole time. This yeah, is perfect. And I did it, and and did well at it, both of those. And then they were like, all right, we'll process your paperwork. And while you're waiting to process the paperwork, we'll we'll put you into the uh, ranger school because. Uh, you can just go in as a walk-on. So if you're there on Benning, especially if you're in regiment um, there or in Ranger Battalion, you can go there and just so show up because uh, inevitably there'll be people who fail the PTS at Ranger School, right? So then you just 
plug the gap, right? Slide in there. Yeah, I'm waiting, motivated ranger from battalion, and, and you just plug the, plug the gaps. Um, Great. And that's what I did. And um, I couldn't I couldn't leave Fort Benning because I was still uh, not assigned. I was only attached to the regiment. And there's these other orders that administratively you have to be on to be temporary duty from Fort Benning to go to the other. So in Ranger School, at the time, you go to um, – uh, Utah for some training, you go to Florida for some training, and you go to North Georgia for some training. Um, so all those other, in order for you to do that administratively, you have to be in a certain assignment status. Then you're on temporary duty status to go to those other bases. Mm. Well, I was only attached. I wasn't assigned. So they, I, in an attached uh, administrative status, I couldn't be TDY. And so that's, that's how I even find out I'm AWOL. Wow, because I'm AWOL, but now they're like, I don't know what's going on. We can't, we can't clear paperwork. And then ultimately, there's no, uh, there's no paycheck, and I was like, so I have to go to uh, uh, our personnel NCO and ask him. It's like I didn't get paid this month. Uh, so as I'm going to all this training, I don't know that until I'm, I don't even have a need for money until I get out of that training, and then I, okay, hey, there's no money in the bank. What happened? So then administratively, you go to your personnel NCOs. Um, there's an administrative uh, company that handles all that stuff in the Army for you. Um, and then you just ask for, I didn't get paid. Then you just, they give you this paperwork, take it to the finance on uh, military installation, and then they pay you. Um, I did that once. And the second time I did it, they arrested me for being AWOL. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then, that's how I find out I'm AWOL. And, and what are you thinking as you're getting arrested? Like... I thought they had the wrong guy. I was like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Cuffs? Like, what is the nature of the arrest? Like, So they told me I was AWOL. Um, so I go to this, this finance, uh, main finance, main post in Fort Benning, Georgia, and I'm in the finance office, and there's a lot of people in there. That same pay issues. It could be no pay or it could be jump pay or something. The administrative is wrong with their pay. So there's, there's other people in there. And uh, when I went to go kind of my information. It's like, here's my ID. Here's my uh, issue on this, on your paperwork. Um, I did it before. And that's, it's really, an, okay. They look at it, ID. All right. And then they cut you a check and you're, you're, you're good. Um, and then they make sure that uh, in the process, they're administratively correcting what was wrong. Right. So I go back the second time though. And that's when they said, uh, so person that the that the cage that you actually talk to, he's, you know, low enlisted guy. Um, that guy says, hold on a sec. Let me, let me get somebody else. A, a lieutenant comes out and looked at the paperwork and he looked at me and he said, wait a minute, let me go get somebody else. And a major comes out or whoever that was. Uh, now there's senior guy to him, an officer, uh, came out and said, uh, looked at my name tag. It's like, well, we, yeah, those gentlemen behind you, the MPs, they're here for you. <laughs> And I was like, what is wow. going on? And as they're, you know, uh, taking me into custody, they just grabbed my arms, right? And I was like, what's going on? You got the wrong guy, obviously. So at the time in Ranger Regiment, we were wearing um, OG 107. That's the name of the uniform. That's the nomenclature of this uniform. But they're all green. They're the only ones that are wearing us, all flat green 
uniform now uh, at the time. Everybody else is doing the camouflage uh, battle dress uniform, right? So the Ranger Regiment, special, so they're wearing special uniforms. Um, jungle Fatigues also is what they're called. Uh, black Berets, they were the only ones wearing Black Berets at the time. Uh, and then uh, Jungle Boots, and they were the only ones authorized to wear Jungle Boots at the time. Um, uh, so I was, the, I was the, probably sharpest looking guy in that building. I had spit shine, shiny jungle boots. I had starch uh, jungle fatigues, um, shaved head, uh, and, and, and my black beret when I was outside, right? And the only thing I remember saying to the officer that was there, I was like, I was like do I look like an AWOL? I don't know what one looks like, but I just look like I left the army because I didn't like it anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For anyone that doesn't know, AWOL means basically you leave, like you like with against you know without permission. You're absent without leave. Yeah, right. you just walked off. You just deserted your post. Right, which is illegal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I get arrested, and uh, so total administrative stuff going on there. Uh, Are the, you angry at this point? No, I didn't know how they could be mistaken because I know what I'd just been doing. I was—I don't know. Somebody's going to square this away and get it on. Uh, somebody's got to fix it because this is a mistake of some sort. Um, eventually, the 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 cadre there at regiment, um, uh, the training department that does the rip and the rope and all that stuff, they came over to the MP station and said, "He's one of our soldiers." Nope. He's not AWOL. He's been with us the whole time. We've had him signed in. They're, they're telling him the MP station, the magistrate there, the the the, the judge. Um, he's not AWOL. He's been assigned to us for this long a time and all sort of stuff. And 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 I'm allowed to go back to that to the regiment headquarters. So they release me, and I go back to regiment headquarters. And they're trying to get all this administrative stuff worked out. And they can't do it because the two divisions that are coming in the army have priority on people now, the seventh and the tenth, and uh, unfortunately, and that that I was probably probably the most upset at the army. Like, how can you screw this thing up? Right, I'm doing like a lot of things that people don't like to do. Yeah. And I'm doing the checklist, why? everything is harassing me. <laughs> yeah. I'm nailing it. Why are you stopping me from doing what I want to do? Uh, I was I was pissed. Um, and how long are you like incarcerated for? I was just a day. Okay. Yeah. And then so, they come and get you, and they're like, "No, nah, it's a misunderstanding." Yeah. And so they so initially, I guess whatever the step, whatever that is, they uh, uh, relinquished custody. You know, like to my to the supervisors that were uh, that knew who I was and regiment. Um. So, you know, I don't know what that would be called. Otherwise, it's a military thing. Just, um, yes, you can't leave and all this other stuff, like house arrest kind of thing. But mm -hmm. it, it didn't equate to anything. I was still able to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, but it ultimately derails your path yep. to becoming a ranger officially. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, that was a great time. I was another, another discipline, highly disciplined, very accountable kind of place responsible for a lot of stuff or even if it's just myself you know you're held accountable for a performance really mm -hmm. um yeah or, or or not screwing up not doing stupid shit when you're out in out in town you know having mm -hmm. too much drink or something whatever you're held accountable for everything that you do um 
And so what ends up happening when you actually try to finish, you know, selection and training and everything? Are they saying because on your record you're AWOL, you can't actually become a ranger? Yeah. So they, they told me to, uh, to uh, correct all this stuff administratively. I have to go report to Fort Ord, California to the, and sign in there. And then that officially ends the clock. So from time I left Fort Benning to what, and I was at Benning the whole time, but then the time I get to uh, California at that unit, that was the official stop clock. Okay, you're legit. You're not AWOL anymore. Mm -hmm. And life goes on. So everybody at, at regiment there at the time when I was leaving, they said, well, we we cannot, we don't have the weight anymore that we did when it was just us and these other two divisions have priority in the army now. And they were even asked for, for guys in the regiment at the time to go field these two divisions. So they want experience NCOs and that ranger uh, experience to these divisions. So there, I got lumped into that. I was like, well, go, go to the 7th Infantry Division and do great things. I did not want to be there, but um, I didn't even know what the 7th Infantry was. Um, but once I got there, I signed in. It's like, well, this is my, this is what I'm dealing with now. So, okay. Are you heartbroken? Or are you like, my, oh, yeah. my, my goal, this thing I've been working on for how many years at this point? Like, it's probably like four or five years uh, of work. Six, seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Just oh, I was destroyed. Because of some paperwork issue. Yeah. Gets taken away from you. Yeah. I was, I was, I, I was. I was done with the army. I was like, yeah, that was the ultimate slap in the face. It's like, why would why would they ever do that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was pissed off. Um, but I got to Fort Ord, and uh, they, everybody at Benning was great. All the regiment, uh, management, uh, supervisors, all of them. Um, I said, well, is what it is, man. We You got to get there, sign in, and you can come back. Just fill out this paperwork again. <laughs> to transfer, which never works. It didn't work for me either there uh, again. Um, so I got there and, there, you know, 7th Infantry Division is, it ended up to be uh, a good experience in life. Another leadership kind of uh, leadership challenges I probably wouldn't have had anywhere else. Um, uh, and ultimately I get to go to combat with them, right? And then mm. that's another whole, I didn't know what that was going to be like. And then I ended up finding out what it was like. And I, I was like, okay. So everything I did to this point to get ready for war, right, and my personal abilities and uh, and then leading troops and squads, right, to get ready for war. Nobody really knows what that's like until you get there, right? So get ready for combat as a grunt. What do you, I don't know. We're good. We'll just do grunt stuff, right? <laughs> and so the guys that are good at that, because they've actually been in combat, um, or just have that much discipline are the, is the Ranger Regiment, right? So they were already at that, they're already, already at that level. Um, and so I just thought uh, that, that isn't, just because I'm not there doesn't mean that level of discipline and accountability and responsibility can't apply here. So I did the same thing there. Just held the, and again, back to that level of discipline, back to a, lesser level of discipline, right? right? In regular army folks. Um, I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm going to hold you to the same standards that I'm comfortable with. So in a way, it kind of, and this, it kind of prepared you, and this has happened twice now. 
where you are an engineer, then you got to go back to infantry, and then you do all this ranger training, and then to the seventh. You know, like <laughs> yeah. you're you're overqualified for all these positions that you kind of take on, sort of incidentally, and, and and you benefit from it. And the door slams on my face. Like, whatever, <laughs> kick it down, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, and you know, as a as an infantry leader, I, I I just loved it. I loved the the whole premise of it, you know, be a grunt. I mean, that's who fights the wars, right? I mean, if we ever go to war, this is where I want to be, right? Um, and then until you go to war, you're preparing for it. And who'd you get deployed with? Or where did you get deployed to? Panama. Was, so that's when you're with the 7th yep. in Panama. Yeah. Uh, so again, back to the unit history of things. So I'm in a 9th Infantry Regiment. Um, the uh, Manchus, a huge history of fighting and combat and stuff like that. Um, and so when I was there, I was like, I'm assigned to the 9th Infantry Regiment. I was like, I don't know 9th Infantry Regiment from anybody else in 7th Infantry Division. I don't know. I don't know their history yet either. Um, but once I started digging into it, that's when I got, all right, my mind's, uh, wrap my mind around, you know, where I'm at. This is where I'm at. All right, dig into it and let's see what I can make of this, what I don't know this assignment's going to be like. Um, they wanted me to go to what they were calling this light infantry, uh, light infantry leaders uh, cadre. So they're all guys coming out of Ranger Regiment that are filling these positions to teach the infantry how to be infantrymen, right? Um, I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. But no, I, I haven't, I honestly haven't done the, the work yet. I've been through training, I've been through selections, and I've been, you know, I've been on exercises and I've done all the work, but I really haven't done it yet. So I was like, no, I'm gonna, I want to go to a line company and get troops and get troops ready for war that way. Like the, the, I, I signed up to be a leader of grunts and I hadn't done that yet. So in my mind, I didn't want to train yet and train other NCOs to do that before having done it myself. Right, even though you technically could. Yep, yep. And that's what the Army said. Yeah. You're, you're good enough. So you've done it. You've done it already. So but you said no. Yeah, I said like, no. I have, but I haven't. How close would you say you were in when it comes to ranger training? Like, let's say you know, hundred percent is like you were officially a ranger. Like, what percentage loaded were you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so within the community, also, so there's a lot of guys that were in ranger battalion and ranger regiment that aren't. They haven't been to ranger school, right? Mm -hmm. So they they go through the whole thing, and for some reason they don't get an opportunity to go to ranger school. Um, they could have been in an MOS that wasn't a priority or something like that because there's other MOSs that don't get priority. So um, even within the regiment or positions that get priority over others. So there, I know guys that have been there um, in a battalion or one of the other battalions and then haven't been to ranger school. So they're not tabbed rangers. They don't have the ranger tab. Um, and within within that community, though, there's guys like, oh, yeah, you, you that's what they told me. Like, don't worry about it. You're, you, we, the the so the first sergeant and the the cadre there at Rip and Rope and all those guys decided, yeah, you're you're you've more than you know qualified yourself as a ranger. So you know, be proud of it and all this other stuff because I was pissed off. So they were just yeah. trying to really talk me off the ledge. Obviously, yeah. You're like my dream was taken away. But like, no, you, you did your dream. You just don't realize it. You're like, fuck you. Yeah. Uh, 
there is that too. There's like, no, you're you're more of a ranger than a lot of other rangers, right? It's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> and I finally get to the the Fort Ord, and I was like, no, I I got to get troops. Um, and I loved every minute of it. I ended up. There's probably challenges in my life and in the army that I would not have had to like deal with, and then, uh, you know, maybe a better leader. I think by dealing with it, like uh, disciplinary problems or uh, physical physical conditioning problems, right? And I now, I always said that it's like it's easy to be a leader in like uh, a discipline unit because they do what you want. They don't even ask a question. They just do whatever you say. Um, they jump. And they're like, ha ha, right? <laughs> so that, what's the challenge of that? But when you say to uh, a, a regular infantry guy, you know, uh, jump, and they jump, it's like, I don't know, you needed to jump higher than that. You had to put out more, you know, more than that. And they're like, well, I don't have to, right? So to get those kind of challenges, leadership challenges, to get them to do what you want to do, right, um, their level of individual responsibility and accountability is different, right? So they're not motivated to the same way. Uh, as far as they're concerned, they're doing enough. And when you get into places like 82nd and the Ranger Battalion and other special operations, that attitude doesn't exist. Right, yeah, they get weeded out. Yeah, so that you're, I was back down to that, and I was like, wow. Why doesn't anybody want to be here like as bad as me, right? Right. Um, you should all want to be here as bad as me. Yeah. Um, and how far along are these guys that you're leading? Oh, they're brand new, right? At, so a year in, they just finished basic. Or? Yep. Yep. Wow. Uh, six, seven months. Oh know, wow. Army. So these are like real young guys. Yep. And you've been in it, you know, 10, 12 years or something. Yep. And they're they're uh, they that that's the that's the limit of their expectations of themselves too is just to get there. Right. Finish basic training, be a grunt and then go to the unit, serve your time and then get out. Right. So they're they're not they're not there to do anything more than the minimum. And generally speaking, um so that's that's what I got out of that whole uh that assignment. I thought it was great. So so how do you motivate like those people to do like great things, right? How do, How do you, you push them, right? How do you push them to that point? Like to do things they would never do on their own. How do you do that? Uh, I don't know. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> leader, <good>. leadership <laughs> by example is what I decided to do, right? I'm not gonna, so in my mind, I'm not gonna tell them to do anything I haven't done, won't do again, and I'll do it right by themselves, right, right with them, right? So if I'm gonna do, uh, tell somebody to do something, um, I'm gonna show them by example. Let's go, right? Follow me. Um, so that's the leadership um, uh, methodology I had and the mindset that I had to get these guys to do whatever it is. It's like you're, you're not doing – you are literally not doing anything that I am not going to do mm -hmm. with you and I'm not doing with you right now. I mean all day long. It's like, so ultimately they, they see that. I don't have to say that. It's like they eventually see it. Because they see other other of my uh, similar level leaders not doing that. They're just barking commands. Do what I say, not as I do kind of mm -hmm. thing. And they're not leading by example. So then eventually they see me like and other people outside of my little, what, 10 guys? Um, they see the difference. They're like, well, at least, at least 
your squad leader's doing it with you, right? It's like he's not telling you to go do something that right. he's not actually doing with you. Yeah, he doesn't um, think he's better than you or whatever. Yeah, like, you're like, no, I'm I'm in the trenches with you guys. Let's yeah. go. Because in in my mind too, that's I mean, literally, that's that you're going to be in it with them too. You are literally in it with them. You're leading them in combat. You're leading them. You're in foxholes. You're in the dirt. You're you're all those things. So, but you no, know, at that level of uh, the army, though, there's there's leaders who are not like that. They just do as I say, and I'll see you whenever. And where did you learn that from? Well, a lot of that was. Um, Time in eighty second, time in uh, regiment. The short time that I was there in both those places, those that's what they did. Those leaders were were doing it with y'all. Yep. So I saw that, and uh, so those are one of the things I saw right away at the eighty second vice engineer stuff. Or it didn't really equate that way because it's it's different being an engineer. So, uh, but I saw that right away when I started getting my infantry training. I saw it again. In regiment and because there wasn't anything that they didn't tell you to do that because like a, a, a simple well a simple little road march and it's going to be a death march every time right you go out there but they say hey this is they point out the, the actual cadre member who is like follow him don't fall behind him you fall behind him you're a failure you failed and failure is not an option you're gone right so don't fall behind him keep pace with that dude and they're hauling ass right <laughs> so it's like so all right well he's out here doing it yeah so i have no excuse yeah and then uh, a couple times i got next to that got near the dude that was like don't fall behind dude it was like oh shit yeah yeah <laughs> motivate me to it's like well no they're, they're they're leading the way right they're setting the standard so i'm gonna meet it Meet or exceed it, right? That's kind of the mentality that I adopted. Yeah. And usually guys doing that stuff do that as well. It's not like I, uh, I want to just, as long as I don't fall behind him, you know, I'm good. It's all the guys that are there that actually make it there and further. It's like, I'm going to beat that dude up front. Or I'm going to stay with that guy. I'm going to stay on his heels the whole time, yeah. which is hard task to do, but that's what you're trying to set yourself up for yeah got to create the example yeah. i mean that applies to really everything right even outside the military just any any leadership position yeah it's hard to ask someone to do something that you haven't done or you wouldn't do yeah yeah um and i've i've um uh, so in the leadership out uh, later on in government service too totally different it's like so but i'm still a leader by example i'm not going to tell you my whoever i'm in charge of uh, who I'm responsible for. I'm not going to tell them to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And so I get out there and do it. And, uh, yeah, it's like uh, going into the war zones the last 20 years, you know. It's like get some of our, the full-time guys, some of my colleagues that won't go out and, and do the actual jobs, they'll, they'll think or say that my responsibility, my job is right here. I'll let the guys go out there and danger land right they're not gonna respect you yeah they're and that's what happened you, man. that's what happened and um i'd never th thought even that was an option it's like no i'm here i'm i'm on you know i'm your team leader 
But you loved it. You're looking at them like, why are they going to have all the fun? <laughs> yeah. Like, you didn't even do it to be a leader. You did it because you're like, fuck them for stealing <laughs> yeah, all the good parts. Yeah, that like, too, right? Yeah. It's like, no, that's what I signed up for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like sitting I don't want to sit in an office, in office and bark orders. I want to be doing push-ups and fucking carrying bags. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which which paid off in, uh, you know, a lot of ways. Uh, getting respect. I mean, you, you earn it, right? That's literally what, how you get that. Mm. Um, and then how do you, how do you earn it with your peers? Right. Well, being good at what you do is one thing and, and doing what you're, you're asking everybody else to do is another thing. I mean, there's so many things that you could do. Um, and I've, I've actually, um, been told like just the opposite sometimes, right. In my government career, uh, it's like, well, that's not, um, you know, you're 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 the you're in a leadership position now. That's not your role anymore to actually do the grunt work, you know, per se. Uh, I was like, no, but they have to see me. Just the fact that I'm in this position doesn't mean anything. I don't know. If I'm, I'm equating to the times that I had, I was the guy on the team too, and seeing the team leaders and and you know the the guys who are doing the job, and it. It shows in a lot of ways. It shows in the taskings that you get from those those guys. And it also, um, you see them on the street with you too. Uh, protective detail, if that's what it is, right? You're on, you're on the streets of Baghdad, whatever it is, wherever you are. And there's the team leader, the shift leader, those guys. They're out here with me. So, And I see his competencies or I see his weaknesses. So that's what holds a lot of guys back. They don't want to go to range with all the guys because it's like, I don't want to show my ass. It's like... Oh, get better. <laughs> get better then. And then go to the range with them. And Yeah, it's rooted in insecurity. Yeah. They're going to find out I'm a fraud. They're going to find out that I'm not as good as they think I am. Yeah. And instead of either one embracing that, being like, hey, I'm not the best at this thing, and that's okay. Yeah. I'm still the leader. Yeah. Or getting better at their incompetencies and saying, like, no, I'm going to level up where those aren't weaknesses anymore. Yeah. They would just rather remove themselves from the situation. Oh, that's a huge thing, too. And to your point on uh, there, there's fewer guys that will be in the uh, – and I've seen it, and I totally respect them for it. It's like I'm not as good as you guys. You guys are the experts. But while I'm here, I'm going to rely on you guys to get me, you know, spun up and get me to your level, mm -hmm. right? Um yeah, I'm still a team leader. I got responsibilities uh, outside of the actual team stuff, but it doesn't matter. Um, I'm letting you know up front, I'm, you guys are the, the core of the professional uh, competencies and the, the core of the team that are doing the job. Um, but I'm going to get out there with you. So make sure that I know what I'm doing. Right. Right. And I'm also going to, I'm going to bust my ass just like you guys are. I might work harder than you. Yeah. Like, but that requires a lot of security to, to go to guys that are maybe lower rank and, and be vulnerable and be honest. Yeah. Because there is, there is a, um, I mean, you, you, if you're doing your job like that, then there, you're, you're putting in a lot of time. You're doing the stuff on the street, which is totally different, uh, than, you know, being back in the office. Um, but, uh, so you're, if you're like doing what I did, you're putting in your time on the street. You make the time to go out there and do do stuff on the street, and then get back and then do your your desk job stuff because there is that. Um, yeah, but that that shows in a, and even with other folks in the office that see see the differences between leadership styles, um, and then they see how that that. Uh, kind of is felt down on the teams too. And then they get the whole atmosphere thing going on. 
you know, with um, when somebody is uh, like a respected person, right? And somebody is not as respected as that person shows up. It shows in a lot of ways. It shows in your colleagues that are there in the office with you. So I used to get, get that a lot. It's like, damn, you're you're not in the office as much as the, the other your other guy that you replaced. Is like, uh, I don't know what he did, but yeah. Are you good with that? Or do I, yeah. what are you, what are, I'm missing something here. This is how I do it. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, no, no, no. That's actually no, absolutely. We we thought that's what that was like, but your other guy you just replaced. He no, he was in here like every day. Yeah. It's like well, okay, well, if that's the expectation, I'm not going to meet it because I'm not going to be here. Yeah, every I don't day. feel like being in this office with you guys. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's nice and comfortable, but no, I got to get out there on the street. Yeah. So how was it when you first go to Panama? Oh man, that was so for me, that was like the the prove out, right? Of what I was doing to that point. You've done all this work. Preparing myself. All this training and my team, all this preparation. Right? Yeah. Um and it, it it showed. Uh I mean, unfortunately, it shows negatively too on the folks that didn't prepare the way that they probably should have, right? Um I mean, that was uh, uh, peacetime army, right? So when are we ever going to go to war, right? I mean, guess what? <laughs> you never know. And that's all I was saying to myself. It's like, well, just in case, I don't know either. But um, I'm not into the whole global politics and what's going on in the world right now. But I know what I got to do. And I know my job or I have an idea what I think my job is. And this is to prepare them for the worst case scenario. We get called out tomorrow and we got to go somewhere and do grunt stuff. Um, yeah, so I just I just had that mentality. And the first time we got there, um, you see the you, you see the 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 difference on preparedness and because now it's like, okay, this is real. But so for me, it's like, okay, this is real, but we're ready. That's a whole different attitude and mindset than, okay, this is real and we're not ready. That's a bad feeling. You <laughs> yeah. show up to the test and you're like, I did not study one bit for yeah. this. That is a bad feeling. <laughs> yeah. What's up, guys? We're going to take a break really quick from this conversation with Ninja because I got to tell you about my friends at Morgan & Morgan. I'm sorry to interrupt Ninja here, okay? Ninja is one of the baddest motherfuckers I know. This guy is a tough dude. He got into Delta Force, CIA operative. I mean, a bad motherfucker, all right? And that's hard. To become a Delta Force, become a Ranger, get in the Army, infantry, all this stuff is very hard, extremely hard. Think about how hard it is. Years of work, training, punishment, hurting your body for our country. But you know what's not hard? Hiring Morgan & Morgan. Morgan & Morgan is America's largest personal injury law firm. That's correct. Over 100 offices nationwide and more than 800 attorneys. Morgan & Morgan is waiting to hear from you. Here's what I love about Morgan & Morgan. It's not hard to do. Most of these other law firms, and I'm telling you this from experience, I've had to hire some attorneys in my day. Most of these other attorneys, it's impossible to get a hold of them. It's so hard to submit a claim. You got to go through pages and pages of like sketchy attorneys that you don't even know, you've never even heard of. You're like, who is this guy? Is he going to rip me off? A lot of these guys are going to charge you just to even look at your case. Not Morgan & Morgan. Morgan & Morgan, it's not like hiring an attorney. It's like ordering something off Amazon. It's, it's like ordering something on Uber Eats. It's eight clicks or less when you go to ForThePeople.com and submit a claim. Never before in history has it been easier to submit a claim to a nationally trusted personal injury law firm. And Morgan & Morgan, let me tell you, 
they are nationally trusted. With over $15 billion recovered for over 300,000 clients, Morgan & Morgan has a proven track record of fighting to get you full and fair compensation. So if you're ever injured, it doesn't have to be hard. You could go check out Morgan & Morgan. Their fee is free unless they win. That's right. Unless they win your case, you are paying zero dollars for more information you go to forthepeople.com slash gagnon that's correct for the people.com slash gagnon g-a-g-n-o-n or dial pound law that's pound 529 from your cell phone that's for the people for the people.com slash gagnon g-a-g-n-o-n or dial pound law from your cell phone this is a paid advertisement we got to get back to this conversation with bob porus aka ninja but just remember Becoming a Delta Force operative, joining the CIA, becoming an infantry in the Army is extremely hard. But submitting an injury claim with Morgan Morgan is easy. Let's get back to the show. You find out you're going to Panama. Are you excited? Are you scared? Are you nervous? What is the feeling? There's a level of, um, I guess, nervousness. Like, this is this is the test we've been all waiting for. This is the test we've been all training Well. Some of us have been training yeah. for all our lives, right? And you're not going as just a regular guy. You're going as a leader of men. Yeah. Yep. That is a different level. Like, I don't know if most people's first combat experience is, you know, leading people. And so there's a different pressure for you. Yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with that pressure? Um, that was, uh, so that was all, that was what I was focusing or thinking about in the preparation. It's like uh, 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 the only reference I have at that point is is movies. You know uh, what? What are you? What are you going to tell the your your guy's sister, family, whatever happened to your your guy, right? And so that was another thing that I had just thought about, and I had no reference for that at all, except for movies, right? Um, and some of the earlier guys that I talked to coming back from Vietnam, those are my senior NCOs that were around when I first came in, were were saying stuff like that. It's like, um, uh, you know, what do you, what do you, like, what are you going to say to your buddy's family on what happened? It's like you want to be able to say some good things, right? And that he was ready, you were ready. They did everything, and just as things happened in war, right? So those are all my references, and most of it was just like, well, I don't. But if I'm going to talk to, if I have to talk to someone, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't be that guy. I mean. Because I was so low on the totem pole. But if I was, oh, I'm going to tell him that we were ready. He was ready. And this is just circumstances of our situation. Um, yeah, that was always, it was always in the back of my mind. And so when we, we so before we get called out on that one, so December 20th, um, 89, we were in Panama already earlier that summer. Um, so we were doing, uh, patrolling missions. So as, as Panama's degrading as a, as a government and a country and Noriega is doing th- one thing after another and it, it, the situation is de- deteriorating, we can go down there to support, uh, the, the operations that are happening in, in Panama along the Panama Canal. So we're escorting, uh, vehicles, um, a lot of guard duties, uh, just securing places that were in Panama, American facilities, um, American uh, like housing areas and stuff like that. And then we were training also while we we're down there. So the Seventh Special Forces Group was down there, so we were training with them, doing you know uh, you know combat related tasks. 
uh, flying into hot LZs, you know, live fire training and a bunch. We were pretty busy that summer. And we had come back um, uh, around Thanksgiving that year. And so it's a rotational thing. Our sister battalions and are rotating in and out of that mission. And then it just gets to the point where um, it it's a uh, deteriorated, uh, and the decision is to uh, deploy and go down there. So um, I want to say we were on leave or getting ready to go on leave. We were supposed to get a break. So there's these block times of the year that you get to take a break. It's usually around holidays. Um, I want to say we were getting ready for that. Or we were, there was already some people gone, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And it was, all right, we've done, we've been kicking ass all summer, been training, it's been hot in Panama and we're back home and, you know, nothing's going on. <laughs> and then that, that word comes down and that was, it was kind of surreal. It's like, cause this is, I don't know what it was like in the 20 years pre previous to this in the war zones and that racking up Afghanistan for the guys, but there wasn't a war going on when we first got called out for that. And uh, like the guys in Grenada had been called out in 83. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a part of that. So I didn't get that experience, but um, this was my first time. And a lot of the guys that were there their first time. And we did have some vets that were with us. Uh, a couple of guys um, were in Grenada. And so they, that wasn't their first time, but it was a lot of our first time. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was the weirdest thing. It was so surreal. Um, uh, yeah, our company. So our battalion commander and our company commander eventually. There's they're giving their their. We're getting ready, and it's just a matter of just packing stuff now. We're all getting consolidated. Everybody's coming back from leaves, and um, at one point we didn't have. Uh, I didn't have all the guys that were had left already. They'd already flown home for the holidays. Um, and everybody's coming back and I finally get my, all my guys back at one point. Um, and there's still some people out, but we're getting these briefings. Um, and it's, and, and again, my only reference was, you know, movies and shit. Right. So th there, our commanders are getting up there and saying, you know, we're going to war. This is real. This is whatever's happening in situation. Um, you know, uh, what I don't remember the speeches. I wish I would have remembered them because they were pretty good. Because they, I remember feeling when they're when they're saying stuff like, "Hey, you know, uh, like bring back all your guys," kind of stuff. Right? It's like, huh? Uh, well, yeah, that's pretty real. I was like, okay, all right. Now, now I actually felt that that was a responsibility of mine, right? Which is fine because I that was what I was thinking already in preparation. Yeah. And, and but, it is a responsibility of yours, right? But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but there is a, a – you really don't know. I mean – Yeah, I guess you can't control it, you know, necessarily. Yeah, so I was always kind of, well, yeah, we'll do the best we can. We're, we're ready, and but who knows what's going to actually happen, right? So I, I kept uh, – you know, that was reassuring for me. It's like, well – you know, I couldn't have done anything else to get prepared for this moment. So right. let's do this, right? Yeah. <laughs> you could have knocked on a wall, you know, but yeah. you know, other than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the the ah, so interesting though, when we got there. So we we had already been there. 
so that summer. So we were familiar with the area and the sights and smells and all that stuff. So we we packed up. Uh, 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 what's the name of the airfield? Uh, Travis Air Force Base in California. That's how we, we trucked out to there, got on planes, and flew to. I want to say Lackland Air Force Base. It was one of the Air Force bases in Texas, right near San Antonio. And they landed there because the uh, Panama Airfield the airport there that we were landing was getting mortared. We heard it was. They had reports that were it was getting mortared and shelled, getting attacked. Um, getting attacked by the uh, Noriega's guys. Gotcha. So there's a big battle going on in, at the airport, is what we're hearing. Is why we have to land in Texas and wait for things to somewhat get stable. Um, but it's kind of one of those things like, okay, this is what we're, we're this is what we're getting ready to do. So that's why we're going, right? To, to possibly now to help secure our landing. Um, or the landings of people after us. Yeah. So um, that was a moment of another moment. So we leave Travis Air, uh, Air Force Base in California. And we're told uh, we got all of our gear and everything. And we don't have any ammo yet. And I said, well, we're going to get that when we get on the plane. And then we get on the plane, get to Travis or uh, whatever Air Force Base I was in Texas. And we sit on the ground there. And then they were told that we landed here. So we left. California thinking we're next stop is Panama. Yeah. And uh, we land in Texas and they tell us, well, the, that's when they tell us, you know, we're off the planes and we're in the hangars and they say the airport's getting attacked right now. There's mortars and all, all this other shit going on. So um, we sit there for a little bit. I don't remember how long that was, but it wasn't that long. Um, get on the plane and say, okay, let's go. All right. Whatever has happened is... Mm, Whatever's happening, <laughs> it's better than it was, I guess. And on the plane we go, and um, we land. Ramps fall, and ramps get lowered. And you, it, so to get off the plane in Panama, it's hot, humid. Plus, you get the the engine exhaust. It's it's just hot. So they're gonna they're gonna land, spin around, and get ready to take off. And then while they're in their spin around mode, that's the time you have to get off. And then as soon as you get off, they're taking off, right? So another plane comes in, does the same thing, and then you just that's the sequence of events, right? And so you don't have a whole lot of time to get off. It's like the plane's landing, get off, and get ammunition, whatever. We have to go to this one consolidation point. And get loaded up with all the ammo and whatever we need to do what we need to do. All the infantry stuff. Get all the rockets and the grenades and all that cool stuff. Um, and then be prepared for the next mission, right? So that was, we, we get, it's just like a wall of humidity and heat that hits you. It's just, that's just nasty. Yeah. It's like, oh God. So those, for those of us who were down there that summer though, we're like, okay, we're back. Yeah. Um, and then, uh we were better off than some because we were already down in Panama. So the heat didn't affect us as much. So we get down there and we get in our positions and our perimeters. And um, I'm scrounging for ammo and grenades as many as we can pack on our kit. And um, we see these, uh, um, there's these vehicles that used to be put in uh, helicopters. And, oh man, I can't remember what they're named. But so those are being used now for uh, casualty evacuation stuff so so people are dropping from heat 
Oh, really? Just the heat exhaustion. Heat, heat, they're stroking out everywhere because of the heat, right? So we're we're down, you know, doing our infantry stuff. We're on the perimeter, so we're facing the dirt, facing out, securing the airport um, while we get ready to go. And we see these trailers behind us, and they're towing people uh, casualties. And all you see is their feet dangling off these trailers. <laughs> and I look back, I was like, oh, shit. Okay, well... I guess they're taking we're taking casualties somewhere on the battlefield because um, you could hear all the gunfire out in the city and out in the you know nothing really close um, but you can hear it going on it's like like literally the the sights and sounds of the battle right um, things are exploding off in the distance there's a firefight going on you hear the fire exchange and gunfire exchange and but at the airport there's really nothing going on yet so um I saw the first one go by and I was like, oh shit. All right, well, things are getting real, right? Uh, second one goes by and I was like, God dang. Uh, and then one of the other, one of my guys, <laughs> so he's facing out on security, but when he, he turned around like that, he saw the one Jeep towing a trailer with guys' feet dangling off the end of it, right? And freaked him out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't blame him, dude. And he's like, he's like, what the fuck is that? I was like, uh, and I just, I was like, uh, probably a heat casualty is what I said. I didn't know. I, I thought the same thing he did, but I was like, just to kind of calm down. It's like, hey, probably a heat casualty. I'll go find out what's going on. And it actually was. So I go to the, the, the medic tent and they're just lining them up, uh, just heat casualties and dropping like flies. And uh, they weren't from our unit. They were from another unit that was there in, on the base. And um, I was like, all right, well, in my mind, I was like, okay, that's a little reassuring. It's only heat casualties. We're, <laughs> all I got to do is drink water. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's what I said when I got back. I was like, hey, everybody drink water, right? Um, and then you you literally had to watch them. Right? like, Because you don't uh, – it, it's, uh, it's not – I don't know if it's not – it's a feeling, it's a fullness thing when you drink a lot of water like that, right? Um, and at the time, you know, it doesn't matter uh, that you drink a whole canteen of water. You're not supposed to do that because mm -hmm. your body won't absorb it. You're going to end up pissing it out anyway. But that's what we did. Mm -hmm. It's like, I want to see you drink that whole canteen of water. You just sit there, go, 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 go. And then, okay, next to the guy. And then watch him down a whole canteen. Um, that's just what we did. Yeah. That's they're going to piss it all out, but, um, you know, you did your job, yeah. right? Make sure they had some water. This is the nicest hazing they'll ever do. It's <laughs> yeah. like, hey, drink water. You're like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> not too bad. <laughs> and that's always kind of a joke, too. Like, when you're, um, like, I'll even say that now. Like, take a knee face out or drink water, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you're having some issues. Drink some water. You know, get over it. Yeah, drink some fine. water. <laughs> You'll be fine. That's fine. Um, uh, yeah, so we, we, we get all of our stuff. Um, you know, so we have that little roller coaster of, you know, uh, uh, things going on, yeah, emotions, whatever you want to call it. 24 hours is pretty intense. Yeah. And so night's falling and we're getting the, the mission at nightfall. We're going to get inserted into the, um, uh, into the Panama city. Um, so big schematics maps and the second airborne division has half of the city. We have the other half and, you know, um, 
you know, all right, Roger that. And we're going to be in this particular part of the neighborhood. And okay. So we're going out there. We all get loaded up and we're getting loaded up on whatever vehicles they have there to get us into the fight. And they're all, uh, uh, two and a half ton trucks. So decent halves military vehicles. They're, they're, they're transport vehicles. And so we get them all rigged up with rucksacks on the rails and, so we have something to hide behind and face out with the guns and all that stuff um, just to get us into position. And we, uh, you know, it, the the city had a curfew, so it was pretty quiet. And all you heard was um, like a track vehicle, uh, army uh, friendly track vehicles running around and the sound of those things running around and a couple of gunfights off in the distance and um so it was, it was, that's kind of neat, but it was kind of that we already knew, I mean, literally what it smells like actually makes a big deal. Um, like the area, the environment, the air, um, cause that can be like a shock to some folks if you haven't, you know, just one of your senses that's absorbing new information. Right. Mm -hmm. But we'd already spelled it. We'd already been there. So it was kind of, that was kind of, okay, we're back. Um, not just gunfire <laughs> yeah it's a little different though this is not a vacation yeah are <laughs> locked loaded and all sorts of so th during the difference between the summer and then uh was uh they you do a lot of stupid shit in uh when you have live ammunition and you're on patrol and during like that summer because you uh you tape up uh frag uh, handles the spoon, uh, for lack of a better term, you tape up those things so that you can't accidentally blow up. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you use it, then you have to intentionally take off the, the, just, um, masking tape, right? Uh, take that off, then take the safety off and then throw it. Right. Grenade, so right? another barrier. Yeah. So you can't just fall out of your kit and then explode on the ground, right? Accidentally or whatever. You can't do that, but that's what you're doing, right? That's what you're kind of thinking. So you tape things up, you tape up magazines. You do all kinds of stupid mm -hmm. shit. You don't have a bullet in the chamber. You have a bullet, you know, in, in your magazine, but it's not loaded in the chamber. You do all these kind of things. Um, then it's like loaded chamber. Yeah. Frags are ready to safety's use. Safety's off. Yeah. Yeah. Safety's off everything and you're ready to rock and roll. Whoa. So, um, uh, yeah, that was, that was, so to me, so, yeah, uh, machine. I had a machine gun team on my squad attached to me, and those are things that are happening. And they might seem small, but for the first time, this is happening. Like you're, you're ready to go. You're not on a range. It's this is real. Locking and loading, and uh, belts are getting locked and loaded, and machine guns, and you know everybody is. It's, it's pretty surreal right it's pretty this is this is it right um and then it's just a matter of this is what we've done so many times in rehearsals and practices and training for me it was just like and, and listening to the guys afterwards too they're like well you know it was um just like we did back at fort Ord. i just did the same thing um you said this i did that and it was all good it's like that's a, kind of what i felt too and to the point then at that point where um they were almost in sync with what needed to happen. Like, and that's how they explained it to me later. They're like, well, we knew you were going to say this because we'd done it a hundred mm. million times. It's almost like telepathic. Yeah. Point. So we, we knew what was coming and we just, that, the, so that closed the gap on a reaction. Right. Right. 
Um, the training worked. Yep. And so over and over and over again, like those small things like that, it's like, well, you know, to me, it's like, well, then I was doing the right thing. Um, the first time we got dropped off, we got dropped, well, I don't I don't even, I hardly know where we're at. I kind of have a general idea of the city and the parts of where the city we're at, but I don't know exactly like that spot on the ground. It's like, I have a pretty good idea because I looked at the map. I knew where we were traveling. I knew where, what we we're doing. Um, so I didn't have to get a map out and look at a map and trying to find out where I was. Um, but um, so I had a general idea of where we're at and we were getting dropped off in this huge, like, I don't know. It's like a strip mall kind of thing. And um, it, uh, there was uh, the street that was next to us was all barricaded, barbed wired and, and all that other stuff. And um, it, there's a curfew so that no civilian vehicles should be on the street, no locals. Um, saw some track vehicles running around and army deeds doing army shit. I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, that's pretty neat. But um we get dropped off. We get off the trucks and we get out, face out, and pull security. And this car comes screeching. So we don't know it yet, but this car is just trying to get home. Like to beat the, they, they were out past the curfew. They're just trying to get home, right? Car comes screeching around the corner and gets into this thing. Uh, that's what we were told later on. It's like they may have been just trying to get home, but we lit them up. So the, the, so the, the dude survives the day, and we end up patching him up, and he's in a hospital somewhere. We don't know what happens to him after that, but he, he lives, uh, is what we're told. So he comes in. He's screeching around the corner, and, um, you know, uh, it's another kangaroo story in Australia, but it's like we open up on this dude. He's screeching. He stops because barbed wire. car stops, and something comes out of the car. So... We think, okay, he stopped and he's throwing fragmentation grenades, right? So as soon as that happens, the guns start opening up on this guy and uh, then silence, nothing's happening. And um, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> I wish I knew the real story of that dude. To us, he was being aggressive and he was trying to uh, do harm to us, right? Or somebody, he was, he was in route somewhere quickly. Um, I think I just rationalized it online. He was going home trying to beat the curfew, but um, we light him up, get him out of the car. He's got a few holes in him. His car's trashed. Um, they bandage him up and send him off to wherever they took him to get medically treated for his wounds and injuries. He was probably a, a detainee for a while. Whatever process happens after we deal with him, I have no idea. Um, Later on, way later on, we we're almost getting ready to go home. Hey, whatever happened to that dude that we shot up the first night? And that's what they told us. He was, he's fine. He got treated. He's, he's whatever, recovering from his wounds and his injuries in whatever hospital he was in. I was like, oh, cool. Well, who, who was it? You know? And I don't know that we ever knew who that was, but um, we thought it was a threat. Shot him up. He gets medevaced. He's living, apparently. When, when, so this is January when we're getting ready to go home. They tell us all this because we're like, hey, whatever. We're finally thinking about other things. Hey, whatever happened to that dude? Mm -hmm. And that's what they told us. It's like, all right, well, all right. Sucks to be him, I guess. I mean, Whoa. bad day to be him, yeah. right? I mean, he should have been out after curfew. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, does that ever make you like, like moments like that, does that ever make you like kind of like, especially in that time, start questioning like, 
okay, who, what are we doing here? Like, what is the purpose of this? Are you aware geopolitically of like what Noriega is doing? Or are you just like, I have my mission, I'm going to do it. And just listen to the staffers. More of the, uh, my level, uh, execution. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so at my level too, I have an idea of the geopolitical environment that we're in, but that's not a consideration of mine. That's way above my pay grade. Right. Right. They, they, told us to do a job and we're going to do it. So yep. mission focus, do the mission. Do the mission, take care of my guys. Yeah, yeah. And so so for me, um, whatever happened to that dude, um, casualty to war, right? Things happen. Mm -hmm. Like there was rules set in place. He violated those rules and these are the consequences of what happened. Um, Unfortunately, he didn't die. As far as we know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I honestly don't really know, but that's what we were told. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm good with that. <laughs> good on him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And were you there when Noriega actually got neutralized? Uh, when he was, yeah, he was arrested. So um, we were on the ground. I had no nothing to do with that directly because I was out on the periphery of the whole firefight going on or the the whole fighting going on in Panama. Um, we heard about it just like everybody else heard about it. Eventually through the grapevine, they're telling us that he's at the um, the papal nuncio is where he is, and it's like okay, I don't know where that is. I have to look on a map to look at where that is. Okay, mm -hmm. I don't. That's not my mission. So all right, <laughs> he's he's there. All right, well whatever's going on there. Um, and is this around the time that you ran into the uh, Delta Force guys? Yeah. <laughs> this is a wild story. That was, this uh, might be the most dangerous car you've ever yeah, looked inside yeah. of in history. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, we're, again, I mean, which is, I know later on too, that's like your worst enemy, right? Like the soldier on the street, because yeah. they're all jacked up, ready to shoot at anything, right? So in my position there, I mean, we're all jacked up, ready to shoot at anybody coming through. We were getting a mission. Nobody gets through, right? Nobody, nobody, nobody. Well, Roger that. <laughs> you know, Deal. Off we go, That's right? That's pretty easy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we shut down the street. And um, th that night, there's, there's some things going on that night before that um, that, that keep us engaged with gunfire and aggressive people and people trying to get walk on the street when they're not supposed to walk on the street and guys with guns and uh, barricades and uh, there's a bunch of stuff going on. So... Um, uh, the, and also, we can hear down the street from us. So we're told in this one this one uh, intersection that I'm at, I get plussed up with another gun team and uh, some other guys uh, from the uh, company, the platoon I was in, so, to, so we can have mo more guns at this intersection because the Battalion 2000, which was Noriega's army at the time, was had left, the, left during the invasion, the actual, you know, fighting going on, and then now they're regrouping and coming back in the city. That road we were on was one of the roads they were using. So um, that's what they tell me. I was like, so so, so where's everybody else? It's just, just me and my 10, 12 guys, whatever it was. Um, we're we're going to stop this army. Um, oh, it was just you guys assigned to that street. Yeah. Well, this so in the perimeter, this part of the perimeter, we're, we're, we're securing this whole neighborhood. Right, so the other guys are are scat or in other positions, securing this one neighborhood. Um, I just happen to be on the side where they're they're making the the main thrust coming back in 
Panama City Whoa. to retake the city. Yeah, that's what I was told. I was like, all right, cool, man. Just lock it down. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you know, be careful what you ask for because you might just get it, right? Yeah. And I was like, okay, we're ready. We'll, we'll do what we can, you know, for whoever's coming down that road. And so that night we're putting up, we're relocating the, the fencing and the, what they have for fencing over there is just cylindrical blocks, and then they stack them. There's no mortar or anything. They just stack them, and that's how they, they make their walls and privacy fences. Um, so we relocated all that stuff, put it on the street, made, uh, you know, rudimentary speed bumps and, and barricades and a little bit of concertina wire we had. Um, and we're just moving things onto the street to make some sort of blockage and controlled access. And then we'll just put guns on it and overwatch it with guns. Um, so we did that. And uh, as the sun's coming up, so that night we hear down the road. So uh, the, um, uh, oh, what's the official term for that one? The, um, the Spectre gunship. That's a C-130 with guns and more uh, howitzers and all kinds of shit on it, right? We can hear that down the road. And I can, we can actually see the plane. So we're talking jungle. Um, you can't see out. And, you know, around you that way. But you can see, I, we can see the actual aircraft and it was shooting, right, at this, whatever it was down the road. So that was the same area that we were told the Battalion 2000s coming back into the neighborhood, right, or into the city. So we're thinking, yeah, take care as much as you can, yeah. right? Because it's only us. Yeah, it's coming to us, 12 guys or whatever. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else knows that, but it's only us. Two machine guns and, you know, AT4s. It's an infantry squad. We're getting ready to wreak havoc on whoever's coming down that road, right? And uh, so that most of that night we heard that going on. Um, and, um, and I'm guessing the guys that we ended up stopping at the checkpoint were the ones who were controlling that that call for fire mission on those guys because what so sun as the sun's rising, um, cars are starting to get so the the what they know the Panamanians know as the uh, the curfews getting ready to lift during daylight hours. They're starting to get on the roads and drive to wherever it is they're driving, right? Um, and so we're stopping cars on the street and we're like, yeah, nope, can't go through here. But I'm. I'm okay with that because they're clogging up the road. It's like, yep. Yeah. More barricade. Traffic's fine with me right now. I don't give a shit about you getting anywhere, but you're good right where you are. Park. And then, so there's a parking lot on the street. And um, the, the unit guys come down the road. And so they're in a panel van. And my guys on the street are are stopping every car and you know, going, going to guns. Hey, where are you going? Who are you? Where are you going? And what's your purpose in life? And okay, you put your car in park. You're not going anywhere else. Right. So this van comes down the road and, um, that, <laughs> uh, whatever conversation happens in that van with my guy on the street, um, Smitty is the guy who's handling this situation. And he's one of my more, uh, well, you know, experiences went, I'm going to say my more experienced guys. And one, one of the guys I trusted like a lot with a lot of stuff. Like he wasn't, he wasn't, and he said later on, he was a lot more nervous than he, he let on. But um, he's like, yeah, uh, there's, it gets on the radio and he calls me on the radio and said, Hey, there's this van over here, uh, appear to be 
army guys, but I don't recognize the uniforms and they need to get to the uh, papal nuncia. Says something to that effect on the radio. I was like, all right. Uh, how, what, how do they dress? Whether, and I'm gonna look now, I'm looking down the road at where he's talking about. I see the van, and he's like, um, he's like, yeah, he showed. So, the other thing, too, um, uh, some of the bad guy Panamanians were had ID cards, or and they were like, hey, I'm official, I'm ID card holder, uh, like, uh, U.S. Army stuff, too, or not army, but just the regular uh, military ID. Um, so that was happening, and we just heard about it. Oh wow! We hadn't heard, we hadn't had any experience with that. It's like so, like forged IDs kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this guy in the van up front, uh, Mexican Hispanic looking or whatever. Because so the two guys up front are Spanish speakers, and they so they can get around town, talk to checkpoints, stuff like that. And they looked the part. They're not in uniform. And I the the passenger up front had presented a, um, uh, an ID card into Smitty. And Smitty's like, yeah, he, I remember the Intel stuff they gave us, and this could be fake. I don't know. Mm -hmm. How am I supposed to know? So he didn't want to make the decision, so he calls me. And um, I'm like, yeah, well, okay, Roger that. I don't want to belabor the point here and start arguing over the radio. I'll be there in a minute. Get everything stable on the perimeter, and I go running down there to Smitty. And as, as I'm approaching, I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> these dudes are shady as fuck. <laughs> they're, they're, I, they could be part of the group that was evacuated or escaping from what just happened earlier that night. We heard all the gunfire. We don't know what's going on. So that's the environment that we're in, right? We don't. It's like you could be saying you're anybody, but just to get through our our blocking position and. Um, so I had, you know, some doubts on who they were. Also, they were speaking perfect English too, but we had been working with Panamanians all summer. They have great English. Yep. <laughs> and then we get this little tidbit of information on Intel that there's uh, the bad guys are using uh, uh, military IDs to get yeah. past uh, uh, guard uh, blocking positions and, and <sighs> positions and, and getting around town. Um, so... I was like, well, I said, what do you got in the back? And he's like, well, I got some guys in the back. We got to get to the Papal Nuncia. Um, it was either that or that other building they started at first. But he, he says, I got to get there and we got to get there now. It's like, all right, hold, hold, hold on. I, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to have to look. I got to <laughs> see what's in the back just to be sure because this is the last line of defense, right? between us and everybody else in the city. Are you scared when you're opening, going around the back of oh, this yeah. van? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it's either, best case scenario is that it's good guys with guns, yeah. and worst case scenario is it's bad guys with guns. I'm going to be face-to-face -face with another gun, yeah. Um, or, yeah, um, ends up I was face-to-face -face with another gun, but it was a good guy <laughs> with a gun. So we, we, so this whole clearing team, uh, the clearing uh, me and Smitty, we're going to clear the back of this van. And I said, I just need to look in the back to the guy up front. He's like, okay, well, I have guys and guns and we got to get there and we're with the army. And that, and that's kind of the gist of what he has explained. I was like, okay, well, I, I got to look just so, I, so I'll be feel better about myself. If I let you guys go, if I see what's in the back. <laughs> and, uh, so Smitty's going to get the door fling open the slider. It's a panel van. So it's a sliding door and I'm going to go, clear the back of this van and uh 
So, you know, it's on three, right? One to three. <laughs> Smitty opens the door, and I'm getting ready to clear. And I see the guys standing right there, camouflage uniforms. I mean, Army all the way, or, or American all the way, right? A BDU uniform, so the battle dress uniform, camouflage uniform everybody's wearing at the time. And I see uh, 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 U.S. flags on some of the guys, uh, shoulder patch uh, on the shoulder, uh, chest uh, flag, uh, but also guns, right? And I was like, ugh. I don't know who you guys are, but I see the American flags. <laughs> Just made me shut the door. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. Because they're sitting in, you know, they also don't know. Like, so I've been in that position too now uh, or later on. But uh, it's like what happens in those vehicles, right? It's like, hey, hey, we got a checkpoint coming up. Get ready, right, for anything. And unfortunately, too, it could be um, – us Americans who just get trigger happy and shoot up a vehicle, which we did yeah. <laughs> like two nights before when we got there, right? Yeah. To this other clown that was driving down the road. So everyone's tense. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, that was, that was a thing. So I was, was okay. Um, American flags. I mean, it could have been a fake ID. American flags. Anybody could have got those. At that point, you deserve it. But you know, yeah, we're gonna go through all that work. <laughs> At that point, Let it I was rip, like, dude. okay, guns are down. All right, Smitty closes the door and thumbs up to the guys in front. It's like, okay, you guys are good. Um, where do you need to go? And and so the the road in front of them, we junked up with all these parked cars, but they're still in them. And so I'm yelling down this the street to my guys now to, Hey, we, he's like, we need to get to uh, the papal dancia or the commandancia was the other building. One of those two, they were trying to get to, and we need to get there now. And I was like, okay, well now they're a little bit more authoritative. Right. And now I believe kind of, okay, yeah. these guys are, there was have a purpose. Right. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I yelled down the, the, the line, the street, I'm telling the guys, Hey, Clear all these vehicles out. This van gets through. Um, clear them through, all the way through. And and I get on radio, say the same thing. I was like, now. Now, 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 these guys got to get through here. And then this, like, parting the water, <laughs> firing the Red Sea, right? The cars, he's there, all my guys are running up and down, yelling at these guys at gunpoint to get the cars off the road. And so they're, you know, doing whatever it is they got to do to part the waters. And um, that happened pretty quickly. Whoa. And um, he said, hey, appreciate, uh, thank you, or appreciate it, Sergeant, or something like that. Yep, have a good day. I was like, yeah, you guys too. Yeah, how's the drive off? I was like, oh, shit. Later on, I find out they're the dudes I'm actually going to work for. And they had, they, they teased me about it for a while. Um, while I go through the selection to get to the unit, and then while I'm there, they're all fucking with me. It's like, hey, were you in Panama? Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> they're like, you were that dude. And so uh, on one of the missions down there, they got shot down by an American uh, friendly fire. Um, uh, the uh, the, uh, the the hostage rescue they did on the prison. Um, in Granada? Or is this in Panama? In Panama. So they got shot down um, from a ground force. So the ground force was, I can't remember the infantry unit that was there. And I um almost positive that's officially what the story is too but they did they they saw a helicopter uh, a little bird helicopter 
didn't recognize it as a friendly helicopter and shot it down. They started shooting at it and, and it comes down. And um, yeah, the guys that tell the story, they were on that bird, tell the story. It, it, uh, it's pretty fucked up what happened, but that's what happened. And they didn't know who shot him down at the time, but um, they just got shot down. Right. Um, but these friendly fire incidents can happen. Yep. And it did. And, and uh, they still got the guy out. They still um, um, rescued uh, the guy out of the, the prison, jail cell, um, and still accomplished the mission. And come to find out uh, that um, whatever unit that was that was in tracked vehicles, they were assigned down to Panama. Um, so they were permanently assigned at the bases down there. Um, but I have track vehicles. They had 50 cal machine guns. We didn't have any of that shit. Mm -hmm. We're just light infantry stuff. And uh, they were, that's who shot them down. Uh, 50 cal or something shot them out of the sky. Wow. And so they were fucking with me later on. It's like, you were the one who shot us down. Like, no, no, no. Hold <laughs> the guy on the ground. Should you have done anything different in that moment? What's up, guys? We are going to interrupt this conversation with Ninja because I need to tell you about the best way to break your bad habits. That's right. Some You might have a habit. I know a lot of people that have habits that might not be good. They might be bad. And a lot of times they'll try to just quitting their bad habits altogether. They'll just be like, you know what? Today I'm stopping my bad habit. And a lot of my friends get back on the wagon with their bad habits because cold turkey is pretty hard to follow through with. But what if you could take the bad out of the habit? And that's why I want to talk to you about my friends over at Fume. Fume is an amazing award-winning device that has helped a lot of people that I know take the bad out of their habits. Fume is very interesting. Here's a picture of what it looks like, okay? It has a really, really cool, like, fidget mechanism, so it feels super good. I'm, I'm someone that I like a little, I like a little feeling in my pocket. Like, I like to hold on to, like, a little pen or something, just kind of feel it throughout the day. It helps my anxiety. And that's why I like Fume. It's like a little fidget spinner. I keep it on my pocket. It looks cool. It feels cool. And then here's the best part. Not only does it look cool and feel cool, it also tastes amazing. Fume is a small little device that you breathe through, and it delivers flavored air straight to your lungs that makes you feel amazing. Yeah, I know. It sounds wild. It's like, what does that mean, flavored air? I'll tell you exactly what it means. I tried the mint flavor, okay? This is the one that I like. Basically, you take the little device, you breathe through it, it makes you feel great. I'm one of these people that I don't like to put a lot of artificial stuff into my body. I'm pretty conscious of what I put into my temple. And that's why I trust Fume. I've read all through it. It's legit. Fume, instead of using electronics, it is completely natural. Instead of vapor, it is flavored air. And instead of harmful chemicals, Fume uses all natural, delicious flavors. Yeah. Instead of bad, Fume is good. It's a habit you're free to enjoy and makes replacing your bad habits extremely easy. So if you have a bad habit you're trying to kick, you're trying to get rid of, there's a better way than quitting altogether and just trying to white-knuckle your way through your bad feelings. Fume is the best way to do that. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to join me and Fume in accelerating humanity's breakup from destructive habits. And the way you can do that is you can get the journey pack. That's right. You can go to tryfume, T-R-Y-Fume, F-U-M dot com. And I want you to check out the journey pack. The journey pack is going to give you everything you need to get started in divorcing your bad habits. That's right. It's just going to be a regular habit. And then from there, you get to choose what you want to do. I'm going to tell you right now, you should check out the journey pack. It's going to get you everything you need. It's going to get you started, and it's going to make you feel absolutely great, lower your anxiety, make you feel calm, and it's just a cool thing to fidget with throughout the day. So if you're interested, go to tryfume, T-R-Y-Fume-F-U-M.com, and use the code GAGNON, G-A-G-N-O-N, to save 10% off when you get the journey pack today. That's correct. I want you to try that. 
Go to Trifum, T-R-Y-F-U-M dot com and use the code GAGNON, G-A-G-N-O-N to save an additional 10% off your order today. I'm telling you, breaking these bad habits, getting rid of these electronics and these vapors has never been easier. Check out Fume. Let's get back to the show. Should you have done anything different in that moment? Like, your job is to sort of create this barricade. These guys are coming through. Yeah. They're being a little shady. Like, you got to kind of, like, did should you have been more lenient? Well, so uh, my uh, recent reference was the guy we shot up earlier on a couple nights before mm-hmm. that later after that, it's like, well, he was just violating whatever rules there were at the time, and we shot him up. So... Uh, that was what was going through my head with anything else after that. Mm. I was like, no, oh, we really don't know what that guy was doing, you right. know, kind of thing. You were a little more cautious. Yeah. So this time around, um, same thing with uh, Schmitty. <laughs> yeah, you know, we didn't go to guns right away. He's, he questioned them. And he's, he was noticeably, uh, like, um, I don't know, nervous, I guess. But kind of like, yeah, this guy might be legit. but. I don't yeah, know. Just unsure. So let me call Sergeant Porsche, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I go run down there and did the same process in my head. Like, yeah. Uh, but there's no one for you to call. No. Yeah, you can't call anybody. <laughs> they don't, I mean, the guys up front, they didn't look like army dudes that I'm aware of. I mean, army dudes wear nice clean cut hair yeah, and yeah. their uniforms and, you know. Yeah, you've never um, seen these guys before. So huge, a lot of things like that in Panama, huge things for me. Uh, Leadership and learning experiences um, like that. Like there are other people on the battlefield, that particular thing that I might not be familiar with, um, uh, Americans friendlies. And then, hell, you flash forward to Iraq and Afghanistan, there's other countries' armies that are on the ground, yeah, right? It's, it's so confusing and messy. Yeah. And, and there's, there's, there's combatives that are dressed like you and there's non-combatives that are dressed like you. I mean, they all blend in. There's so many things I got out of that whole thing. Yeah. Because who's a bad guy? I mean, they're not all in uniforms. And uh, they might be a good guy to you. They might not even do anything to you. They might just be like, all right, just bluff their way through. Yeah. So you might not even know until four weeks later something crazy happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. That's it's a it's the dynamic environment that all combat is in, right? I mean, it's not always black and white. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the fact that you pulled over the same guys that you were going to end up linking up with. So yeah. tell me, how do you get, you know, out of Panama and then how do you get into Delta Force? Well, that's when I, I went to selection. Um, so uh, that summer of 89, I went to SF selection for the Green Beret side of the house. Um, uh, I left uh, Panama because we're down there doing the mission down there, supporting the mission to go to SF selection. And I come back, um, everybody's coming back from Panama, November time frame, Thanksgiving Day um, time frame. And I think I'm going to the next Special Forces qualification course because I passed the selection course for that, right? Well, Panama delays that. So here's another thing that gets the door slammed in my face. So I went to selection for Special Forces, Green Beret stuff. And then uh, we get called to Panama. We got called up to Panama. So we go to Panama, do our, you know, good things there. It was pretty, pretty good environment. Pretty, uh, there's so many good things I got out of it. Um, then I get, we get back January, February timeframe, uh, 90. Um, and they say that by Special Forces selection, selection, 
results are void because it's six months past it. They're only good for six months and you have to be in a, um, a qualification course by then, uh, which would have happened. I was supposed to start in January, I think. Um, but then we got called out, went to Panama. So the uh, recruiters for special forces said, you got to go back to selection again because you, your previous one expired. So I was like, okay, here we go again. Right. Yeah. I was like, all right, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Sign me up. Sign me up again. I'll do it again. Uh, it sucks. And how long of a process is that to repeat selection? Um, I'm not sure. They said six months. They said, we'll get you back in uh, from three to six months. And this is a brutal time. Yeah. This is not like you just got to wait around or do some paperwork. This is like selection is grueling. Yeah, huh? it sucks. Yeah. It is a, yeah, it's a suck fest. There's so, so many things. And, it, and it's, and t- it, so it's a, it's and you a, have to do it twice. Yeah. I mean, insanity. Yep. Um, but, I, but at the time too, I was like, all right, if that's what you want me to do, if that's what it takes, then I'll go do it again. A little frustrated, but you're oh, not, yeah. uh. Yeah. But at that point I was like, you know, what else? Not enough to deter you. No. Was there any part of you that was like, I did it once, I can do it again? Um. Uh, Yes. Yeah, so there was part of that. There was a part of that. But there's there's so many uh, things that you're not in control of either, though, like injuries. Right. Um, or uh, in an SF selection, a lot of the things that you do are are um, dependent on your teammates and how they how they perform. Right. So if you're in a good team, then it's a lot easier. Right. Uh, a good team, meaning they can physically handle, you know, what it's, what's coming with you. Um, mentally, emotionally, they're with you too. Like, okay, this sucks for all of us. Let's, you know, it, suck it up. And there's somebody there to motivate you. And there's somebody there to motivate, you know, somebody to keep them going and those kind of things. So, but if you're in a bad, bad team, if, if somebody's not there to, for the right reasons, and they're going to wash out, it brings down the whole team. Yeah, the weakest link is going to... Yep. And that happened. Um, so I was like, Ugh. I was a lot. I realized that, you know, it's going to be uh, my making it or not. It's not just based off of what I do, but it's going to be how everybody else is performing. So, and, and what kind of things are you doing in selection? Like, what is the actual grueling training that you can share? Um, for SF selection, yeah, that was um, a lot of physical stuff. Well, it's 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 a lot of physical things, but mentally you're gonna have to overcome those, right? Mind Michael. over matter kind of things. Um, well, they used to do log PT. That was one of them. So everybody, whole squad lines up. You get a, a, a log, a tree log, and then you do exercises with it. Sit up, push ups, overhead presses. What you do all kinds of shit with that, um, and that sucks. Um, uh, ruck marches, death marches, obstacle horse, normal army stuff. Um, What's a death march? It's a road march that you have to do fast. So you can't just do something like a road march. Everybody, all the grunts do road marches. Um, but this one, you just have to, you're on your own to do the march, but um, you just have to do it fast. So, of course, you're running with whatever, however long, however heavy the rucksack is, and you're running with it for like 12 miles was a pretty typical road march. And you have to do it as fast as you can. And there's an obstacle course somewhere in there that you have to negotiate. And you have to do all the, neg- all the obstacles, you know, correctly and all those so kind of things. You're doing like a half marathon with like a 50-pound rucksack and an obstacle course in the middle of yeah, it yeah. as fast as you can. Yep. Yep. So it, it's uh, 
it can be motivating. It can be fun. I mean, the because that's that's cool stuff, right? I mean, individually, independently, those things are like, oh, this is fun. But you put them all together, now it sucks. And what gets you going about it? Was it the personal challenge of like, oh, I want to get through this? I'm mentally tougher than they think I am. I can prove them wrong. Like, yeah, yeah. So a lot of that for me was, well, I mean, I'm not going to quit. So you can't kill me. <laughs> that if I die, that I'm dead. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Right? So it's like, yeah, whatever. You know, what? Throw it at me, and I'll do what I do the best I can, right? And um, I was in pretty good shape at the time, though, uh, physically and mentally. I was in the right place to do those kind of things, too. Um, uh, there's a, um, a, a down helicopter pilot. It's, so it's a dummy. It's a 250-pound dummy that you have to go rescue a down helicopter pilot. So how do you do that? Um, and then you have to get him across the North Carolina terrain to from his down helicopter to whether to, wherever they designated the safe area is, right? So you have to carry this 250-pound dummy. And it's not a human, so it's its, it's limbs aren't are, – are, it's that's a horrible thing. It's unbalanced. It's, it's yeah. just awkward. And you have to somehow get a litter and then put them on a litter and then have the team – you know, rotate in through carrying this 250-pound dummy with all your gear and your rucksack and everything else and down to uh, from point A to point B. And what's a litter? Uh, litter is a uh, an evac- like a patient evacuation. That's what you carry your patients on. Oh, uh, gotcha. So, um, I, yeah. It, 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 250 so pounds is... What, what kind of fat ass are you saving? You know it's what I mean? Like, who is that guy? You might just deserve to be in that helicopter, bro. 250 pounds? Come on, dude. Yeah. So those are the things we're saying when we're doing it. Like, oh, this sucks, right? Yeah. Fuck this uh, guy. Yeah. 250 pounds. Yeah. So uh, it's physical. So what I went through is uh, May and June. So it's hot in North Carolina and central North Carolina, where mm-hmm. this is at, Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg, Camp McCall. And, um, the the um, it is just physically taxing, so uh, me- mentally uh, you just have to overcome your physical whatever's happening to you physically because you're in awkward positions carrying a litter on your well you can carry a litter several ways so if you have it in a low carry and you just have a handle even if you're sharing a load of 250 pounds for the mileage and I don't remember the 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 distances we had to cover but that that's it's tough yeah so you kind of whoever's in charge of this particular group you okay one person you have to rotate so you're not always one person isn't always with their right hand on this thing holding it so that one point they're going to be on the left side at one point they're going to be up front and back so you have to that's the whole trick behind the whole thing right the Mm -hmm. whole that's the whole thing systematically redistribute the the strength yep and if a guy one of your guys is falling back or something's happening then you uh, what we ended up doing too is taking rucksacks off a of guy's backs. So and now like one guy would carry a rucksack for a while to give this guy a break on his rucksack mm. and then rotate that rucksack around. Right. So that's the whole point of this whole thing is how are you going to make, how are you going to do it as a team and how are you going to get everybody, not just the, this pilot, the dummy from point A to point B, but your whole team has to end up at point B fast. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So in May and June, um, we had guys falling out from heat injuries, heat casualties, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, this one guy on, on uh, 
our litter carrier evacuation of the pilot, a down pilot. <laughs> he, he was, I think he was from, from Puerto Rico. So it's like it's just humidity and heat shouldn't be anything <laughs> new to you guys, right? So he actually, he just wasn't there. He wasn't there for the right reasons. And he, at one point, sat down. He said, I can't go any further. So when one guy, you lose a guy on the team, that now. It's over. Yeah, you're burning the rest of the team to carry his share of the load. So I initially you have to try to motivate that guy to keep going. And he just quit. He just was done. And uh, he was a heat casualty, but everybody else was near exhaustion and passing out too. And he just couldn't take it mentally. I mean, no. So that was my thing. Like, hey, dude, we're all hurting. Just suck it up, man. We're all in the same boat, man. Just keep rowing, right? <laughs> and he was done, though. He was ready to quit. And, um, and he did. So when they do that, they take him off the team. They put him on this, this ambulance. They call an ambulance. So he, put, he gets on an army ambulance. He gets on the back. They pump him full of liquids and fluids and stuff like that. And I don't. So the the cadre there, when that happens, they make a decision on reinserting that guy or not. Because if if he was a real heat casualty and all this other stuff, then that's all weighed into whether they decide to do that or not. Um, but that's not good. That's not good for that guy or the team when he shows up because he did show up. They decided, okay, he was legit. He wasn't just complaining. He was near death heat casualty, and they put him full, pumped him full of fluids, IV'd him, and all of those mm -hmm. stuff. He got you know his color back, and he, he's you know going to be reinserted into the team again. And we're like, yeah, no, yeah, we no. You go, he's going to go to another team. And we told all of our instructors that. It's like, we can't do it. And they're like, well, he's part of your team. you got to thank him, a teammate. And then we just didn't want the guy on our team anymore. He was going to quit again. Um, the next day when we started something else, whatever it was, um, everybody just had the ass of this guy. It's like, you just got over on, like, that the whole drill, right? Yeah. Um, so we're we're all in a worse shape physically than you are. We didn't get IV bags. Yeah, we had no <laughs> we fluids. Did you get a break? Yeah. Did <laughs> you have break? to? Did you try to finish the rest of the drill, or could you not do it without? Oh no, we had to. Yeah, we did, and we finished. Wow. Um, yeah, it was just horrible. So the sand, the tra the the trails on Fort Bragg and Camp McCall too. It's it's North Carolina, so they're all sandy trails. Mm. It's either sand or clay, and uh, sand carrying those things. <sighs> it was it's brutal. And he just bailed on you guys. Yep. And you had to, it was progressively harder for everyone else because of his. Yep. Like he, he stole, he stole like uh, energy from you. Yeah. He yeah. felt good. <laughs> the next day he was like, I got IVs. I didn't do the drill. And you guys were like, we did a harder drill and we didn't get IVs. Yep. So yeah. it was, we, we had to ask with him, but the idea is to, you know, okay, whatever. Uh, he's back on the team. Let's try and roll him in the team. But we all know. Once you once you went there in your mind and quit, you're gonna do it again. Yeah, it's and too easy. Especially if you quit and then we're allowed to come back. I don't know what the mental what the methodology is in that on the course, but it worked for us because he ended up quitting again. And so I 
whatever that is all about, right? Um, put him back on the team. And they've got to know that that's not going to be good for that guy and everybody on the team morale-wise because he's going to catch shit from the yeah. team. He's not going to like it. Y'all aren't going to like it. Yep, and he did. We, we gave him some shit about it and, you know, threatened him. It's like, you know, fall out again. You know, you're going to get a beatdown kind of thing, right? Because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that sucked. You just you did that to us kind of thing, right? Um, and uh, uh, anything you do is like that, though. It's It's – heavy stressful strenuous on your body it's it's there's taxing on everything and it's testing you physically and mentally to keep going and all these other things um there's a uh a jeep i think the next day it was a water uh water can five gallon water cans and all you have to do is relocate them from one spot on the ground to another spot on the ground like down the road mm-hmm. um and so this whole pile or pallet full of water bo- uh water jugs, um, you have to relocate. So that just means you're going to have to go back and forth, run in however long that was. It was a good distance um, to get all these things from point A to point B. And so to do that, everybody is sharing a load again, and you do what you do as much as you can, right? So as an example, most of the guys would take one five-gallon water jug, which, which are heavy enough as it is, put it on top of your backpack, so that's heavy enough as it is. Then you grab two, one on each arm, and then run as fast as you can. And you know, for however many miles you had to go, drop them off, and then go back and get some more. Um, sometimes, uh, and sometimes it is just enough to carry. Wouldn't you figure out how to do that? Like bounce it on your ba- on your backpack, have two in your hands, and then try to run. Um, so you're kind of just shuffling the whole yeah. time, right, for like two miles. I mean, that's kicking your asses enough, right? So um, so some guys are just having one. They have it on their – they're holding it like a bear hug. That doesn't – you can't carry that for any length of time because it's already heavy. It's five gallons of water. Um, uh, backpack, just on the backpack, one – I mean, there's – everybody tries something different, and this guy – he gets over there, and we see him with one, and he's got it in his hand. Everybody else has, like, multiple cans, and we're just trying to get as many, one or two or three, however many we can get, right? And he grabbed one. Um, and then every time we saw him, we grabbed, he had another one. And every one of us was like, I'll carry as many as I can. And then usually it started with a lot and then ended with two. So you have one, one on your backpack or something. You had switched arms along the way, right, with another one. Um, he only ever had one. And so he was already a piece of shit to us. Yeah. And uh, But so the cadre saw this too and were like, oh, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that's kind of what they were looking for and uh, knew what was going to happen too. So if he doesn't perform like, if he doesn't perform again, then we're going to yank him. And um, he ended up quitting. After that one. So they set him down, talked to him. We talked to him. And, um, you know, and as we're passing and, and shouting, calling him names, right? Like, you know, motherfucker. Yeah. You know, whatever. We're just giving him a hard time. It's like, do you see me with all these water jugs? When you stack your shit up and, do, you know, pull your weight. Um, and he'd come up with some excuse. Oh, I'm, I'm tired. I'm home. I'm overhydrated. I'm dehydrated or whatever. It's like, yeah, no shit. So are we. Yeah. <laughs> but he just kept doing that. And we're like, that son of a bitch. Um, and he ended up quitting. I don't know. Somebody talked to him. One of the cadres 
members talked to him at one point, but he we got word later on. It's like, well, where'd he go? Yeah, he got yanked, pulled, and they said he quit. It's like, all right, good. Was that your first or second selection? First. That, first one. And so now you're like, I got to do this again, and what if I get another chump like this guy? Or more than one. I mean, I mean, yeah. because yeah, that would have... Imagine you get three. Imagine all the guys on your, on your team. Some of the other squads that were out there were losing guys uh, from quitting. Um, more than that. And, oh, my God. So was the second time better? Um, I didn't go back the second time. Because in the interim, they tell me I got to go back. I sign up and get ready to go back. That's when I actually went to Delta Selection after that. I was just there when the recruiting team showed up. And that was just, uh, hap I happened to be there um, when that happened. And I'm waiting for another SFAS, uh, Special Forces Assessment and Selection course. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, as I was waiting on that, two other guys in the unit I was in uh, got these um, uh, email notifications that they were um, selected to go to this briefing. And uh, that comes to the military channels that their records are checked and they meet the minimum requirements for attending the, the, the recruiting briefing um, for the unit. It's like, oh, cool. I never got one of those. <laughs> I was like, whatever. <laughs> but so actually when I was in the 82nd years before that, I knew two guys that left. They, they, and they didn't make it, but they still said it was the best thing they ever did in their life. And because um, usually that's not, a, that's not a positive thing. Like you go anywhere in the Army and the military, you go to school and you don't come back, you don't make it. It's usually looked at as like a... You failed. Yeah, like a failure. Um, they came back and they were like, well, I give them everything I got and it wasn't good enough. Okay, I'm good with that because I was giving them all I had. Yeah, I can live with that, right? Yeah, and they were, they were, they were fine. Um, and that was one of the things that stuck with me too. Um, when I when I go to this briefing, some of the things they were saying, they're like, "Yeah, that was that was the hardest thing they'd ever done, mentally and physically." And uh, they did. Then they were they were like the the top performers in in our company, um, physically and mentally. They were the leaders. They were the you know mentors to the other younger leaders and all that other stuff. And uh, f physical specimens. They were just in great shape. Um, and and uh, they came back, and I I wasn't thinking about anything really. I was trying to get in the regiment at the time, so that was my thing at the time. When these guys go there, and I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'd be pretty cool, man. You like that's badass, right? And I was I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm gonna try that one day, but that stuck with me when they said that. And then when I go finally go to this recruiting. Um, uh, briefing. Um, as I went as a walk-on, these guys I know got the cards, the notifications they're going to go. So they go to this briefing and I was like, yeah, I'll go with you. And it's open. If you, you can go there and walk in and sign in and if you wanted to go there, because they have a, a habit announced on the military channel on the base that they're in town. If you're interested, show up at this place. It's the usually at a theater on base. And so I went and with these guys and they, they had no intentions of going. They just wanted, they got the car and they were like, well, let's see what this is all about. One of the guys uh, had heard about the briefing. He said it was, it's going to be a pretty cool briefing. I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know what to talk about. So they, they go and I'm, I'm there with them. And um, you're just stumbling into this. Yeah. Like, and, uh, and you're like Forrest Gump in a way. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You just happen to stumble into like the greatest thing ever. And you're like, oh, see what this is about. So, so and I don't remember <laughs> even, yeah, I don't even remember. 
a lot of the things that were said, but some of the things that they said were like just fucking badass, like back to being accountable and responsible and stuff like that, right? Because uh, one of the things that I think, well, like one of the first things, I, it was it may have even been up on the 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 whatever the view screen was. It's in a theater, so it's on the view screen. Um, it may have been um, just the globe. Um, it may have been there already while we were all just showing up. Um, but the first thing he says is, this is our training ground or something like that. I was oh, like, oh, that's, that's badass. That's, that's good marketing. Man. That's, that's <laughs> I dope. like your style. Whoa. I was motivated from then. But, uh, you know, the, the, the thing, the straight up honesty stuff they were saying in this briefing, they're like, um, and so I, nobody has an idea who, who, what they've done and all this other stuff. This is, so this is, uh, what, 10 years into their existence and, you know, the only things that you know are things that may have been written about, true or not, in, you know, motivational military magazines, right? Yeah. And so that was my whole, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't know anybody who had gone there except for the two guys that didn't make it. Mm. Um, I mean, even to this day, I'll be honest, I was not super familiar with what Delta Force was until really hearing your story and, and researching your life. Uh, could you explain what it is? And, and feel free to brag about, you know, what this, uh, what what's required and what they're looking for to, to be in this actual. What is required and what they're looking for is a great question. Um, I only know what I did to get there. I honestly don't know the re the requirement. Like that's a, that, that's probably the best kept secret. Even having been there and made it and spent 10 years there. Right. Um, and even been on the selection. So, uh, help the selection teams um, go to selection as guys are, are trying out. Um, I, and I only am told like what I'm, what I need to know to do my job and that's it. So I have no idea. Um, but, but what is Delta force generally? Like, so it is, uh, and I, so I can, I can say it is the premier counter terrorist force in the world. Um, and I don't just say that because I was there and I'm fucking badass and all this other shit because there are other, there, the, the world has, has uh, great teams and groups and um, things that do that. Um, but I've also worked with all of them too. Um, and, and it's, and it's an, a specific American thing too. So uh, where we get our lineage, right? From the T2SAS in England, right? Great dudes, great guys, uh, uh, and they're they're fucking good, right? Um, all there's so many good counterterrorism teams out there, um, but our like if you if you think about the folks, so first of all, across the board in the world, and the American fighting spirit, right? It doesn't matter what level or who you are, you that cannot be beat anywhere. So if you get an American like that to that level, that's where they started, right? They started with this, this motivation and just this mindset, right? That gets them to that level. There's nothing that can, nobody, nobody gets to that level because they don't even have the same starting point and the same like life experiences and life like, and, uh, 
oh, anything, and they're military or law enforcement, whatever they were, there is nobody can can match that uh, fighting spirit and American fighting spirit, uh, just American soldiers, period. Soldier, Marines, Navy, everybody's included in that when I say that. Um, then when you get guys in the military and the army that go that end up at the unit, um, and and again, our, our Navy guys are good too, right? But and not because I was on the army side and the navy on the navy side, they're good, and I know them, and I know some of them, and they're good. Everybody, uh, that's another uh, fighting force counterterrorist unit that is just the best at what they do. Um, and, and the unit guys, they're, they're, they are the best at what they do. And it's interesting to see the composition and the makeup of the guys that end up there. Cause they're coming from different walks of life and different parts of the army and different previous experiences. And they, it's somehow like, so that's the magic that we, I'm not privy to. Nobody's privy to all of us operator guys, um, that when you get to that point in the, in a team somewhere, uh, Guys are, because um, they're like, where did you come from? Like in, in the rest of the army, you get, you get a lot of that. Like, what's your experience? Where did you come from? What unit did you come to? Were you a ranger or not a ranger? If you're not a ranger, then you ain't shit kind of stuff. And if you weren't jumping out of planes, then I don't want to listen to you. If you, you know, like the legs, like our airborne guys call other people that don't jump out of planes legs Funny. in a derogatory yeah. <laughs> meaning, right? So there, you don't get any of that. Um, and guys are showing up from uh, mostly special forces and ranger communities um but also from other communities as well in the army it's open to the army. and now the other um other uh dod like uh, marines whoever wants to try out now it's open to it's always been open to all services in the military in the u.s military but the other services have always been able to like um like release their people to go do that mm-hmm. right because they've always been kind of no, he's ours. He's going to do like Marines. They're going to be Marines. They're going to stay Marines. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want him to be a Marine for you. <laughs> we want him to be a Marine for us. Right. Uh, Navy, same thing. Um, use what they, what had happened before though, was like, uh, we have had guys pre- prior service Marine Corps who tried to go that route were stopped to do that. And so they just got out of the Marine Corps and then joined the army and then eventually go to the special forces and then the unit. And so you, st- we still had that that composition of the same folks because um, people would quit their, their service and go with the army and, and, and try out. And out of people who've done that, who've tried it and then not made it too, but, um, oh man, it's, uh, that, so that whole environment, it, it can't be matched. It, it, I've, and I've worked in a lot of places and with a lot of other military and law enforcement it can't be matched the the people even in support of the guys who are doing all the running and gunning everybody is good at what they do whatever it is they do even if it's just uh logistics those people that are working there are the best at what they do because they like what they're doing and they're good at it Mm. and they want to be good at it they want to do anything else that's all they want to do they want the the you know the I guess the trust to do your job and, you know, so you can, so that's the mentality too. So you can think about it in several ways. Like, um, you know, you get, you get all, all the, 
all the information. You get everything to to hang yourself. Like you're gonna, you're just asked to do the best at whatever it is you do. And if you don't do the best at what you do, then you're gonna have to find a job somewhere else. And that's fine. It's not for everybody, right? We need you to be 100% at whatever it is you do. The I mean, the maintenance crews, everything, everybody there, they just love what they're doing and they're good at it. Did you finally feel connected? Because finally you're like, this is how I've felt about this. And now I'm around the people that feel like this also. Yeah. So uh, along the way, right, when you go, and I use the the tier system because that's the way the DOD has everybody's uh, tasks organized. So tier one is uh, the unit and uh, and our Navy counterparts. And the – the lower to the bottom you get on that tier, or you get a lot of, eh, you know, whatever. And the higher you get, you get less of the uh, performance attitudes. Um, everybody's there, focused more on a mission and doing their jobs. And at a minimum, it's um, doing what it is they do, and they're allowed to do it. The, and you're given all the latitude to do everything. That's, that's the difference, too. Um, so what do you do when you have everything at your disposal. So, so you just keep going and going and pushing and pushing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the administrative people, the personnel people, they're good at what they do. They yeah. can shuffle papers like nobody's business and they the, love what they're doing. The A-team of yes. A-teams. Yeah, it's like, um, and I've heard it referenced to, uh, I don't know what are professional football teams, because like, I wasn't a professional football player, but the, the structure and the infrastructure and the apparatus that supports the mission Everybody's got that focus. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, and then when you get to the guys on the teams, uh, that they're uh, it, it's uh, it, so the the collective thing is every day you show up, we're working to get better. Why do we hear so much about the SEAL team guys, but less about the Delta guys? Uh, the well, there's actually more of them. So a lot of the SEALs you hear are from – so the SEALs have different – a lot of other teams. So um, our counterparts in the Navy are just, just the one team. Um, Which team? Well, I won't say their names but our numbers. But um, they're – it's just one team that, okay. at that level, the Tier 1 level. Got it. And then – so I, I – it's kind of like – the other the other SEAL teams would be like equivalent to like uh, um, SF or Rangers, right? It may be not to that level, but uh, they're just lower on the rung as far as the military special operations, I see. right? So if we're looking at it like a pyramid, it might not be the very top capstone. Right. right. Got so, it. Um, so there's more of those guys. Yep. And now we have MARSOC guys involved in that too and the, the SOCOM tier levels. Um, but when you get to tier one um, – that's it. So most of the other guys you hear are mostly from um, the other SEAL teams. Not always, but some are. Um, early on, that's what it was. It was uh, guys from, I don't know, whatever teams they were on. Wow. Uh, one, two, four, five. So there's East Coast, West Coast teams, and you heard a lot of those folks uh, more recently. Um we're getting some guys. And then you have this too, uh, access, internet. Um, so, uh, guys doing this. So there's been guys, uh, before me who have said, you know, certain things. Um, so, and I was, uh, kind of cautious on that before too. It's like, um, so I'm more protective of, of the unit than I am of any other organization I've ever been, been with. Um, 
like w whatever they need to. Uh, and I hope I haven't said anything in other interviews too that pissed them off, right? Because mm -hmm. that I mean they they can do they can uh, disavow me. They can do all kinds of stuff stuff to me at this point. It doesn't matter. I I will always hold them in such high regard. The guys that came before me, the guys that are there now, the guys that were there with me, um, and I honestly don't uh, don't I still don't put myself in that category. Because the guy, the the story I told before about me going to this panel board to get my job after the physical part of the selection, and these are all like Desert One dudes. Like these are the dudes that started this whole unit. I was like, wow, gobsmacked. You know, I was like, yeah. holy shit, <laughs> you guys are gonna ask me to be a part of the team? Are you fucking kidding me right now? I don't even know what I can offer right. to you. Right? This is like Michael Jordan being like, hey, do you want to play with me? It's <laughs> yes. like, what? Yeah. I was like, oh, my God. Uh, yeah. So I still think it's, uh, one, uh, honor to have been chosen by those guys. Um, so then it's now respecting, you know, lineage and secrecy and all the other things that they're doing. And um yeah, it, it's uh, the guys I keep in touch with, um, and and you know, they're just they're just good people. Uh, I mean, they're they're it's it's just amazing the group of folks that end up there, and it, they're just great people. Uh, God, it's just a mentality and a mindset and. Uh, like you hear brotherhood and stuff like that and other uh, organizations and stuff like that. And I've, that can be, not, that can't be matched anywhere else. And I, so I'm, I'm very selective when I reference that, when I say that to somebody else, it's like um, very select others that haven't been there. So everybody that um, it's not that everybody doesn't get that opportunity. Right. So, uh, there are other people that have that same, you know, mindset and mentality and uh, that I've worked with. Um, but they're very select that I will actually consider and keep in contact with. So the guys I keep in contact with, those are those are I consider my brothers, right? Yeah. Um, like they uh, have the same mindset. They they think of me the same way I think of them. That somebody you can rely on, like like no shit. Um, so that's what I learned also in Panama too early on is like uh, so the, the 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 real bravado guys right um, those are the guys who perform less in combat than the guys who are just like following orders and operators doing the thing right so uh, and I, in my later career too um, uh, there's very few guys of that group that. I know I can really rely on. And then there's some of the guys that are just there for the money and yeah. the prestige and all that stuff. Um, that you don't get at the unit. All those dudes and and gals, everybody that works there, uh, from the guys who are at the front gate checking badges, um, uh, they're they're uh, just a different cut of cloth. That That's why they're elite. That's why they're who they are. That's why they're entrusted to do what they do. I the mean, most competent group of people you ever spent time oh with? Oh, yeah. Yep. And the most, like, uh, uh, accountable people, right? Uh, in, individual, like, uh, I'm accountable for myself and, and, uh, and others, right? But um, if I screw up, if I say, say something even now or whatever, if I do something and I'm not performing, um, 
I'll hold myself. Roger that. So I said, um, like, wow, if they, if anything I said today or any other time or whatever I do is I own a business now. So if, if anything is attached to that, like I'm trying to capitalize on my, my association with that to making money off of that, then, okay, if that's what you think, then great. Um, that's just my experience. So I'm, I'm trying to apply my experience to teaching others. Mm -hmm. That's how I see my life now. Um, I have all this experience. So um, I'm trying to just distribute the the knowledge, right? And dispel some of those myths, right? It's like, yeah, you know, missions and, you know, stuff like that. I don't have to talk about, but um, okay, that's where I was. I mean, that so uh, you can think whatever you want. Um, and they can even do that too. I would not hold them. Uh, okay. If you're you're going to, whatever, I don't know what that would be called. Uh, uh, with the, I said disavow, but, um, like slander perhaps, like, or? they won't never do that. Mm -hmm. They'll just like disinvite me to all the, the uh, reindeer games, right? Yeah, excommunicated. <laughs> right, right. Right. So uh, even if they did that, I still hold them at this level. Wow. Um, the guys that I even trained with or in, and and served with, um, just great people. It's um, a small number. Yeah, it's extremely small. And we're talking. So when you talk, when I when people say elite, there's a lot of things that go with that, right? But when I say when I reference elite, these are they're like the just as a human being, right? They're just awesome people. Um, very mission focused, very task focused and oriented. Mm -hmm. um, and how many years were you in with Delta? Ten. Ten years. Yeah. Wow. And from what years, roughly, like the nineties? All the nineties. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Ninety to uh, two thousand one when I retired. That's right. Yeah. So <clears throat> the the uh, yeah I. I even guys who were told um, that, well, maybe you, you were thought of as um, using that time as uh, as advertisement for making money later and capitalizing on that. It's like, and then they're uh, whatever um, persona non grata kind of stuff, right? PNG from any other activities before, right? Right. It's like, okay, I I, I don't hold anything against those guys either. Um, uh, still talk to quite a few of them that were, uh, I get it. Um, but hell, they were my friends and they'd do anything for me. So mm -hmm. they're still that person to me. Right. Right. So they're good with me. I, I don't have anything against any of those guys. In your time in, in Delta Force, who or which regime or which terrorist was the most intimidating or the most that, that struck fear in you? Were there any that were uh, truly uh, scary to you? Uh, I'm going to say no, but there are people, or organizations that, um, like, you know, like, no joke, these guys are serious. I mean, they have the, uh, whether they're right or wrong, I mean, they are fucking serious about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And they'll stop at nothing. So we we have rules. We have rules, land of law, warfare, all this stuff that we put into our psyche and training. And there is a right and wrong, even if we're going to kill people, right? We're going to kill bad guys. Um, well, bad guys are bad guys. They don't have rules like we do. So 
and there's some ugly people doing ugly shit. So all the all the regular people, all the ones that don't make like right now, I, uh, ISIS, Al Qaeda, all those folks, they do some nasty stuff. Um, uh, so back in the day, the folks that were doing the nasty stuff. Um, like Hamas uh, and the Hezbollah and all those folks, they were doing some nasty terrorist shit. Uh, bad stuff against good people, right? Civilians. Um, and you would hear about some of these briefings and you'd be like, whoa, this is fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. So your your daily life there was that. that. It's kind of, I say Monday morning, but your first day at work, you know, you get those briefings. This is what's going on in the world. This is what all the bad guys are up to. And this is what, this is what the... National Command Authority, our folks at the White House are thinking are the most things we need to concentrate on. And uh, so that's kind of the rest of your week. Okay, what, what are they doing? And then, then we'll kind of focus our training on that this week, because if we got to go this week, that's probably who we're going to go after. Um, yeah, there's some just horrible things going on. And so some of it's horrible, but um, it's they're just not Americans either. So, um, uh, but... Bottom line is, if, um, if they're on the bad guy list and you're asked to, to go after them, then you go after them. Yeah. Um, they're usually doing some weird shit, though. Some this the in the terrorist realm, they do some nasty stuff. Um, in your ten years, what was the the darkest day? Was there a, a singular time or or mission that was the the most difficult to get through? Uh, well, for me, that came later on in 09 in Coast when I was um, with the agency. But um, that was that was a tough one. Um, that was where all the culminating things that I've done to that point. Uh, that was that was, you know, a terrorist doing bad things, and that was some of that was you know what what did we do before that right. Um, to stop because that's my whole were we ready for something like that kind of thing mm -hmm. um and no we weren't some of us were some of us weren't and then that was the communication thing so that was that was a tough one um yeah that was that was uh pretty tough to get over wise and all that other shit you asked everybody and yourself and um uh results from that were we're, we're okay when we actually, unfortunately, um, uh, lessons were learned and that's great because if that thing happened and it, it, lessons weren't learned, um, then that would be even worse. But we did change the way we were doing things to make people safer. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, yeah, unfortunately what, what happened and yeah, it was tough. Can, are you able to share some of the details of what happened in the coast bombing? Well, uh, what's public knowledge, um, Mr. Balawi, and I actually, well, I've been here uh, last week, went to the 9-11 memorial uh, downtown. Um, they cover a pretty good, they got some pretty good uh, lead up to that, what um, uh, he was up to. Uh, I think the former CIA director talks about it in that video. Uh I recommend that for everybody who needs to know anything about what's going on in the world. But that specific thing, it's all post 9-11 stuff. So that's that's covered. I think uh, former uh, director CI Leon Panetta talks about it because it was his during his shift during his watch. Um, 
great dude when he responded to that. Great guy. Um, but so the bad guy, Blaue, he's a triple agent. Um, I'm announced to us at the time. Um, and so we're still chasing bin Laden at the time. This is 09. So still chasing bin Laden and his second in, in command, uh, Zawahiri is the guy who this guy has some sort of direct access to. So pretty significant guy to talk to, you would think. Um, so, but he ends up to be a triple agent and his whole intent the whole time was just to get access to Americans and kill them. Um, so talk about, you know, terrorists doing horrible things. That was his mindset. That was, that was all he was out to do. And how did he go about doing it? And he just uh, manipulated people and, and did what he needed to do to get access to Americans and kill them. And um, he wanted as many as possible. And and now later on when you, took, when you look at his uh, – whatever you want to call it, manifestos and stuff like that. You know, he's saying that the whole time, but not, not to everybody, but just to, so he has it as a record and to, to, um, I guess to probably, uh, appease the, um, Al Qaeda gods. Right. It's like, that's my whole intent. Right. It's it, so it's an interesting thing to, when you think about that too, though, if you're talking to this guy, cause he has access to maybe somebody you want to get, from him, um, he could be saying this just to, just to save his own life, right? I got to act like a bad guy so, so they don't kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that too, but um, his whole intent was to kill Americans, get access to Americans and kill them. Um, and that's what he does eventually. Um, so at the time in Afghanistan in 09 and 10, that's a huge buildup of the military and everybody that's ever been deployed in American history. I mean, that's like huge. It's a huge presence in Afghanistan. We're still in Iraq doing that stuff. Um, yeah. And a a lot of bad things are happening in Afghanistan. Then that was all the bases are getting hit with attacks. And there's a, there's a huge, there's a, a lot of, uh, a big surge of attacks. Like Al Qaeda is like, this is their main offensive and they're coming heavy uh, at all the bases, including coast, coast, uh, J-Band, most all the bases in Afghanistan were getting hit a lot, like routinely. It wasn't uncommon to hear about, you know, uh, a base, uh, any even military base that we weren't at. But um, all the bases that, well, three of the most uh, heavily attacked bases, we had, we had our guys. I had my guys there uh, working. And so that was kind of my, my focus, right? It's like, okay, this is, I was new to this whole, that, that, that site. And, um, I'm going there to manage this site where three of the most heavily attacked bases I have guys on. So, um, I'm just getting my head wrapped around that when I hear that even happened. Um, a lot of compartmentalization that was going on, which is leading it to like lack of communication, but, uh, or no communication, but it was a very compartmented thing to go see this guy and to hear what he had to say. So that had some, um, adverse, um, I guess results as well. Uh, mm-hmm. not being able to, or, uh, not, not being able to convey that to everybody involved. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets access. He comes all the way across the Pakistan border to, uh, to, to finally do this meeting. And were you going to meet with him? No, I was just getting to, uh, Kabul at the time. I was just getting in the country. So I was just getting ready to take over as the senior guy for our security element. Um, 
to run the, the, the country's worth of guys, right? All of our security guys, our mobile security guys. Um, so I'm getting my head wrapped around how people are doing, how we're doing this, how we're supporting the mission. And there was a lot of things I wanted to get, uh, you know, more streamlined, but um, that's when that happens. And so when that happens, uh, I was in Kabul and um, I know the guy. So leading up to that, I'm talking to uh, Scott, who's the staff team lead that was down there. Um, I'm talking to him on the phone, um, just talking to the guys in general. Um, you know, this, they, they know who I am. They know I'm in country now and I'm taking over and taking charge and all this other stuff. And, uh, Scott, as, as you know, one of the things is like, Hey, give me a call if you need anything, if you need help from me from here, I'll do what I can at this level to, um, to help you out. Well, he calls and he's, he's having some issues, um, being able to do what he wants to do, like, or, or accomplish the mission the way he thinks it needs to be accomplished. Right. With, with our guys. And he's like, no, this is. So our, our, our role is to mitigate any, any uh, threats, uh, injuries. Uh, we're going we're gonna to put ourselves out front in, in the highest level of threat so others don't get hurt, right? And hopefully mitigate it and uh, alleviate it. But it's mostly mitigating and lessening exposure to others that we're, we're responsible or we end up doing um, just because it was the dynamic environment of Afghanistan, right? It's like... This is bad times. Um, uh, he calls and he's like, well, I, he's having issues conveying his his message on how things need to be done um, to the, the person in charge at the base. And I, 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 let, I let him know. It's like, well, <clears throat> as a, we, if, if they don't want to use you, then you don't have to. You can just, hey, well, uh, if you guys got it, then you got it. And take over. We'll, we'll go over here and. I don't know, play Xbox or whatever, yeah, right? Fall back. Yeah, well, yeah. well, let's call if you need anything. I guess I don't know. Um, uh, and he actually did that. He he tried to uh, make something happen. Couldn't couldn't do it. He he. Uh, and he said, "Well, okay, well, you guys got it. So we'll be over here on the sidelines waiting. Have a good meeting and all that stuff." And then he, you know, he's talking. I guess with the team down there, and you know, I couldn't have done it either. It's like just any meeting that's going on. So there's these things, these meetings happen all the time. And um, you're constantly going through that, right? Is it worth us getting involved or or not, right? What's the level, who, who's this dude, right? Uh, and they're all bad guys. Um, uh, Scott finally decided, um, well, it's not what I wanted. It's not how I would want to do it, but um, we could do something. We can we can do something to mitigate the what's what's happening, um, or just to make this accomplish the mission. We'll, we'll we'll get in there and do something. We'll play a role. Um, and they set it up. Um, unfortunately, uh, Balau he he he's going there. He's he's going there to kill people. That, he is he's not going home. He knows that. Um, so they do what they can and he gets there, uh, they get him out of the car. He's, you know, got his hands in his pockets or underneath his coat. Um, and they're yelling at him to get his hands out of his pocket. And that's when he decides to crank off his, his vest, um, kill seven. And, uh, that's, 
any way we could have cracked that nut. I mean, uh, as far as the security guys that were there, because um, what could have happened, our guys would have been smoked regardless, because that's what we do. We go and meet people and then make sure they're safe and then bring them to bases or a meeting area. And, you know, they're, they're, we, we know they're, they're clean, right? They have no bombs, there are no guns, right? They're all they are is who they are and they're going to go, you know, give information. Um, uh, so our guys would have been, you know, injured or killed just the same way. Um, uh, but everybody else, on the other hand, made it, might have been able to mitigate some of that uh, loss and in injuries. But who knows at this point, right? I mean, I mean, you can, you can, so the the thing that I was thinking in my mind at the time too is like everybody's doing something different at all these bases. But um, and I know there's all these bases getting hit. Coast has been hit too. They've been attacked at the gates. Everybody's getting attacked. Um, so not knowing anything about this dude or any other dude or any other thing going on, why well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, wouldn't get rid of all the security protocols for anybody <laughs> knowing what I know. I don't even know specifically that dude or his case or whatever. Um, but no, I would probably been the same way as everybody else who had been there. It's like, no, you're not going to do that. You're gonna, let's do it this way. Right. So I can make sure that when I hand him over to you, that he, you are safe. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's not the way it went down. But um, <clears throat> that's the nature of the the business that we were in. So, uh, and the times that we were in at the time, too. Um, yeah. Now we, I mean, that was, that was, that was, uh, so on many levels for me, that was like, you know, and even if they disagree with me uh, about what could have happened, what should have happened, what happened as a result, of, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, um, it, and it happens. Uh, people make decisions and sometimes people get hurt. Um, and that's what happened. And when did you find out what went down? Right, when it happened. So in, in Kabul, I was uh, with the headquarters folks there. Um, we get the radio call. All right, the the guys that are listening to the radios and stuff like that, he, he comes over and tells me, he's like, hey, something, something went on at Coast. Uh, I need you to come over here and listen to what's going on. And so it had happened. And now it's uh, a recovery, medevacs are already in flight, and everything, everything's happened there at, at, the, at the base. And um, so we're, we're still trying to get word on exactly what happened, where it happened, who's who's injured, right? I know I have a team there, so I need to know if I need to send more guys or what are we doing, right? Get a uh, quick response force together or what do I need to do from here? Um, and I'm here, you know, initial reports are never accurate. Um, so I'm hearing names of the uh, injured and the killed. And um, all I needed to know was like, I'm hearing names of the guys that were my guys out there. I was like, well, all right, I need to get more guys to go out there. And um, I initially thought it was out in town somewhere, out off the base somewhere. So I initially, I asked for guys that knew the area, that knew the city, because we were going to fly in dark, sort of sun's dropping. And I hadn't been there yet. So I'm going to, I need people who know that area, um, know where the cars are even, know where the cars are on base and where the keys are and all that stuff. Um, so, um, we get a team together and we get ready to fly out there. And um, 
So uh, there's weather, there's bad weather. So air flights and visibility is horrible and um, planes waiting on parts. And, you know, so there's so many things that were going on. Um, we finally get out there to coast. Um, and then I find out that all like the truth of who's there and who's not. And uh, yeah, I was like, well, okay, well, the whole, my whole team is gone. I know all the other, I don't know all the other people. Um, I don't even know who the names are and what positions they were in at the time. I just know that there's other people involved. My four guys, three are dead and one is injured. And he's he was already, I think he was already at Bogram at that point. Um, so three or four hours had elapsed between the time the incident and then the time I get on the ground out there. Um, it's dark. That's the first time I find, well, right before I left, I find out exactly by talking to the guys that were going with me, exactly where that happened. Cause uh, we heard references on where it happened and I didn't know those references cause I hadn't been on in that base or that whole city or area. Um, so I had a pretty good idea before we got there where we were going to start working and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, we got out there, find out exactly who's there, who's left. Um, the whole team's gone. So, well, it's like, okay, well, I'm here now with one guy. Uh, two guys were coming on another flight the next day or whenever ended up to be the next day, the next day, but we're having, uh, trying to get people out and about to coast. We're getting injured, medevac people to uh, Bagram Air, Air Base where they're getting medevac to and all that stuff. So um, we as a whole, as an organization are doing that. So um, mission is over. Time out. Okay, let's start getting guys in to get refocused again and do that kind of stuff. So uh, the four guys that I got uh, coming out, I just fly out with one and two other guys join us later. Um, and then we get back to work. While we're doing that, I mean, there's... So in the the techniques of the bad guys were you, like a, a large explosive to start like a breach at a gate, and then there's going to be a follow-on ground force coming in uh, to assault and start, you know, killing people. Um, so we thought that initially. Uh, there was a bomb, went off, and now there's an assault force coming um, or another bomb that's going to blow up at another gate somewhere. So we were pretty much locked down. Um, the guys that were still there and uh, still in the fight uh, from another department, um, we were going after the guy who facilitated the Balawi, the dude who blew himself up, his entry in the Pakistan. So we're chasing, trying to find that guy. Um, and it's pretty much ceasefire for a couple days while we were trying to do that, trying to get build back the team, uh, make sure everybody was a medevac that needed to be medevac. Everybody's in personal effects. That's that. That's something I'll never forget. I, that was, that was, that was screwed up. Uh, <laughs> I never want to experience that again. <laughs> Unfortunately I did later on, but, um, like to, like to, like, uh, take care of a guy, like, uh, pack up his personal effects and send them home that that's tough and um me and the, the guys that went out there to help me uh get back back in the game uh we're doing that and then yeah that was that was a, that was bad that was that was what made it like the caveat of things of horrible things like man damn this dude you know this is the guy's stuff and you gotta 
account for it, inventory of the stuff and send it home to either, you know, our folks, if it's our stuff or um, his family or whatever, you know. Yeah, that that, that was, hell, man, I was sleeping. The, the team leader out there, I was sleeping in his bunk or his bed. So he had his own uh, bedroom. Not everybody did because um, everybody was jam-packed in this little base, but he did. Um, yeah, that was that was a that was a tough one. That was probably seen some things before that. Um, that was that was that was a rough one. That was so there was a, other family members I had to talk to as well. There was some other folks that were that he knew that were in country um, that were trying to get out to go to his uh, to go to Scott's funeral or. Um, talk to the family or whatever. I think good friends of the family. I didn't know that. And somebody mentioned that. Um, find, like, find this guy in Afghanistan because he knows Scott real well. He's a family friend and he needs to be found, told what happened, and fly him home. I was like, find this one guy in Afghanistan. Yeah, right. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Do they have, like, on-site, like, psychologists? Is there any therapeutic, like, mental health component that goes along after something like that? So one thing that I learned back in my State Department days, the one thing that helped out and one of the things uh, before the coast incident that I was involved with that helped out was the uh, as near immediate um, like psychological help, like a doctor coming out to, to see see the folks because um, that really helped out. That was another cure up thing when guys got blown up and I had to go recover those dudes. Um, that was the one thing that I remembered having a positive effect on guys immediately. So a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the guys don't like to talk to people, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm okay. <laughs> of <laughs> so, course. So we had uh, that one. I, I, I get I, kudos Oh, kudos to the to the organization for doing that for responding that way. They send doctors, uh, a couple of them out. I'm not quite sure if they were in country already, somewhere else on another base, or they came all the way from the states. Um, but they set up shop. I'm available if you need to talk about anything. Um, and I knew what the positive effects were from the, my previous experience, and um, I. Course, I didn't have anything wrong with me, so I was like, Yeah, whatever. Hey, thank you for being here. I know this is going to work out great for everybody here, <laughs> and uh, I don't need to talk to you, but you know, somebody else might. So, I appreciate you being here and being available. And that, and, and that's all that doctor said. It was like, um, uh, uh, you know, they're psychologists, so they're they specialize in that kind of stuff, and they were like, um, Nobody's forcing you to talk to me. You don't have to talk to me. Anything you say to me is confidential between you and I. And let them know what, what the deal was. And it uh, doesn't mean anything if you talk to me. doesn't mean you're any better or worse off than anybody else. It's it's I'm here to help, right? And, uh, of course, all the mediators are like, I'm good. I don't talk to anybody. But um, eventually what ends up happening is guys, you know, um, <laughs> sneak their way over to, you know, because I, uh, I I love the way that that doctor did that. Um, set up an office and was like uh, doors open twenty four seven. Just literally the door is open, and or if it's not, then I'm probably just 
taking a break and resting, uh, but knock on my door, whatever. I'm here for uh, as long as uh, they were there, uh, like several weeks, I think, um, to if you need to talk, if you need somebody to talk to you. I was like, oh, that's that's perfect for these meteors out here. <laughs> we're not going to come out. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to raise their hand right there and say, yeah, yeah, yeah I need yeah. to talk to you, Doc. No, 3 a.m., you wake up with a bad dream, and then you, yeah. you pop in there. And that's what happened. So I, I thought that was great. I was like, uh, I told Doc that, too. I was like, hey, um, yeah, because eventually, you know, everybody's waiting until there's nobody around. They're, you know, sneak and go to <laughs> knock on the door. It's like, hey, Doc, I need to talk, right? Uh, are you available? Um so yeah, and it did happen. It has a uh, had a great effect on like uh, the the after effects of people having to the, like the survivors, the, all the survivors that are having issues with whatever it is they had, a, either a part of it or some part of it, or just were there and were jacked up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and rightfully so. Um, did you ever eventually talk to the the doctor there? Yeah. Yes. So that actually, I, I, uh, I don't want to take credit for it, but um, I saw the positive benefits of the doctors way back when my State Department contracting days when the, the, the psychologist showed up then and then uh, what had happened there. And I didn't there wasn't a uh, there wasn't a protocol to do that. Like incident happens uh, three hours later, we're deploying doctor to this. You know, so there wasn't a, a protocol yet. Uh, for that. And we didn't, I'm almost positive we didn't have any doctors like that in country at the time. But we did after that. That was one of the things that came out of, as a result of that. So just have them on site because it, it's going to take however long it takes to get fly all the way to Afghanistan. I mean, days. Um, and then to get to a particular site. I mean, it could be a week or two. And then, you know, we need somebody on the ground now. So, um, yes, I talked to this, this, Doc, the, the office that this doctor came from. And I said, I saw this thing in, in um, State Department in southern Iraq. And then this just happened. I was there for this. And somehow this needs to happen, like, as a, as a protocol, as a, as, a, as a standard operating procedure. Um, but um, I already knew there was guys in our organization that needed to talk to a doctor like but they weren't going to go i said if uh like give us a briefing just just show up in a briefing capacity i'm not here to help you and there's nothing wrong with you kind of thing <laughs> i'm just here to give you a briefing in case you need it right in case you want to talk in case some you know somebody wants to talk right i'm asking for a friend kind of thing mm -hmm. right that was perfect the way they laid that one out and i said just to have dedicated folks or yeah dedicated folks who know what we're doing know what kind of exposure we have to this kind of incident and uh and are is just can be available because there wasn't we didn't i don't think we had a whole lot of uh like psychologists staffed like that i don't think so until after that i think there were like uh, ad hoc one one-offs like we'll hire a doctor for a little bit and right then, but it wasn't protocol yeah and then um I'm pretty sure they staffed him up for that because we didn't ended up having a um, uh, a part of a dedicated uh, doctor to come uh, just uh, just made themselves available. And the way they did it, I thought it was perfect because they just came up. Hey, you got a briefing from the doctors are coming in. Yeah, whatever, you know. And then and then they always said that. Um, uh, like this is where I'm at. 
This is where my office is. Um, I'm always over here. I'll be here if you need me here. And if you want to talk to anything, doesn't matter. If you want to talk sports, well, whatever, you know. So they were great at what they were doing. And um, and little by little, the guys are, you know, walking down the hallway to their office like, hey, doc. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you got a minute? I mean, it seems like a good protocol. I mean, there's no doubt that seeing those traumatic things with people that you're so closely bonded with are not going to, I don't know if you ever fully heal from something like that, but at least having a professional on staff to talk with immediately after, I think, can mitigate a lot of the pain that goes on with it. And it really, it probably helps guys a lot when they get out, you know, uh, not absolutely. dealing with that baggage. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Now, I'm curious. I, I don't want to, we don't have too much time left. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just, I'm curious. Uh, sort of geopolitically, like kind of going a bit macro, you know, mm -hmm. based off your time in the CIA and, you know, operating with them and, you know, all of your prior military experience. I'm curious if you can weigh in on any current events, specifically what's happening uh, in Russia or with Russia in Ukraine. Um, I'm curious if you have any, you know, thoughts or just general personal opinions about you know, the invasion of Kiev and how long you think it'll go for and what you think you know, like Putin's ultimate plan is. I'm curious what your thoughts are generally. So, um, personal opinions, yeah, got all kinds of those. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Ukraine was, they were criminals before this whole happened and we thought of them as such. But um, uh, as far as Putin's concerned, I think he's stuck. I mean, he started something that he obviously can't finish. Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't know that he knows what to do at this point. Like, so, uh, but I think I think we should just uh, we should have been the ones to broker a peace deal, even right now. Just turn right around and say, okay, cease fire, stop what you're doing, stop being an ass, and you guys, you know, get your piece of the pie, and you get your piece of the pie, and everybody just, you know, stop. Um, it's probably too late for anything like that. I don't. I, I don't think it's ever too late for that. But it's, it's just got to be a smart enough person to be able to put something like that together and make everybody feel like you know it's in their best interest to stop these things. Do we have the political leverage currently or prior to the invasion to broker that peace deal, geopolitically speaking? Um, <clears throat> I think we could have. At, at, at the outset. So and uh, I think. Instead of um, our president wanting to make it seem like he was tough and supporting a fight against Russia, um, I think he should have brokered the deal. I think he would have been seen as like a lot better leader and uh, probably better in the global community even seen as somebody who was able to like, okay, it's like I teach guys when, I, when we're shooting. It's like you don't always go to guns. There's a lot of things you do before you have to pull a gun out on somebody. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, it, and you know, that's a serious thing. So before you do that, here's what you can do, right? So even though I do done all the things that I do in my training programs, I don't say, well, yeah, sh first thing you're going to do is shoot him in the face, right? right. <laughs> it's like, so I think that would have been a better option, I think, in, uh, for us as a country and us globally, I, I believe, if he would have been that person. But everybody wanted him to be that, like, show your toughness, right? Uh, and we're not going about that the right way either, but... Um, Interesting. So you think it came from a desire to be, you know, politically tough and, yeah, yeah. you know, staunch and we're going to stand up to injustice and 
we're not going to try to negotiate with, you know, evil people. Yep. So, uh, you know, so this is all based on the backside of the Afghanistan pullout debacle. Mm-hmm. I don't. So my whole opinion on that is it was done wrong, poorly. Um, it, and we could have left Afghanistan years ago, but we could have, if we did it in a, in a more logical way, we could have left with our uh, dignity and our status in the global community uh, better intact. Um and the results will probably be the same, though. Taliban would have always, always been, uh, they're always waiting to take back their country. Um, they were just waiting us out. I mean, literally, they were, and they would have taken it at whatever. Um, a little bit more, there was a lot of honest feedback on, um, you know, when you talk to, um, you know, military strategists and planners and stuff like that. I get that too. I mean, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail, right? You just mm-hmm. hammer it, just slam it. Um, you know, plus up, get more troops on the ground, all this other stuff. I, uh, you know, that, that, that isn't always the, the solution to everything. And, you know, uh, once that ball rolls, I think that's what happened in both Iraq and Afghanistan. We, we could have left a long time ago in a better uh, position globally, strength-wise, perceptions and all that stuff years ago. But if, if done the right way, we could have done it uh, with a lot better like standing in the global community because um, the way we did it was just... Yeah, it seems so abrupt. It's embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah, that was embarrassing. Um, yeah, and, and I, I don't, it doesn't matter what they're saying in the, in the news about, you know, well... It, 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 there's a as a positive thing as globally. I mean, I think everybody sees that as a like. Well, didn't see that one coming. Mm-hmm. Americans just dropped the ball on that one. Yeah. Um, and what what was the reason to stay in Afghanistan for as long as we did? Do you think it was just we weren't sure what to do, or there was a, a was it a strategy that didn't really pay out? <laughs> yeah. So I think we stayed as long as we did in Afghanistan specifically. Because they were never, they were never at a point where we could be comfortable, um, like okay, you guys are good now, we're good, you know, we're leaving. Uh. So, and guess what happened? That's exactly what happened. They they weren't ready for. So that that's why I'm saying we could have left years ago, and the, probably the results would have been the same. Taliban moves back in, they stay, take over the country, mm-hmm. right? The way we did it. Um, Hell, we left a lot of stuff over there for them. We used to say we own the night, right? Because we have night observation capabilities and all that stuff. Well, now they got it, right? right. They got I mean, all even, the even from a even from a soldier fighting perspective, um, they got that. Whether they are proficient enough in using that kind of stuff is a whole other thing. But um, we could have left a long time ago, and we've done that before. We did it in Iraq, where you destroy all the things that you brought with you. If you can't take it out with you, then destroy it. Mm-hmm. And then give enough time to destroy your stuff. Uh, I was in Iraq when we did that on several bases. The military as a, as a whole, they're closing up shop. Um, you destroy everything you brought with you. You return everything to the dirt that you started with and um, and go home. Go right. home Otherwise, you, know. you make them stronger. Yeah. Uh, flags flying high and mighty and U.S. is here and we're gone and have a good one. Right. right. So you don't see that uh, image impression that was left in Iraq, in the global community, and even in in our own United States amongst Americans. Um, uh, and how is that connected to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? 
I think it was the, the uh, I think China's got the same mentality. We can do whatever we want to do right now. What are they, what are they gonna do with, what are they gonna do about it? What are we gonna do about it as, as Americans? Probably nothing hmm. um, because we don't have the backbone and we're so inundated with all this sidebar crap. And again, I, I referenced the 9-11 memorial about this whole uh, um, trying to push everything down our throats. In my opinion, they're trying to push all this stuff down our throats, all the woke stuff. It's mm -hmm. like, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you do on your private time. Just do your job, right? What were you here to do? What were you here to, what were you hired for? What do you get paid to do? Then just do it. I don't care what you do in your personal life. Right. And I've I've worked with people who have different lifestyles than me. And all right, I don't care. Just while you're here with me, do your job. That's all it is. Do you feel like some of it is like a psyop? Like to try to, I've heard people throw this theory out that there is like a, a psyop to try to, you know, destabilize American society by creating so much infighting over, you know, uh, social issues within the country that we're not really noticing what's happening geopolitically. Yeah, I, uh, I don't, well, uh, only because I don't give credit to people that might be doing that to be smart enough to do that. <laughs> but I do, they, they, there is some things going on. So while we were busy in Iraq and Afghanistan, what has China been doing? They're, they're building bases. They got a base in uh, East Africa right now, uh, right. Djibouti. Um, they got a base there. They're doing. They're cutting right across Africa, and they're they're so the first time in in their history they've projected power like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so they've got all the um, the shipping lanes. They got a base or bases coming that are in the in the the big shipping lanes. Djibouti's right on the edge of the the Red Sea, the Suez Canal, and all that stuff. That's that shipping lane there, and then off the Gulf, uh, the um, the Gulf of uh, Amman and and in the end of the Gulf, they're building a base in uh, I'm not sure what country that is, but they're right at the mouth of the um, the Gulf, the Persian Gulf, which is another oil shipping lane. Um, yeah, that's they've been doing well. We've been screwing around in Afghanistan and Iraq all these years. Like, hey, you know, you guys are busy over there. We're just gonna don't mind us. Hmm. And we got a base now in in Africa for the first time in our history. Right. Uh, so. Yeah, it, if if uh, I I don't give them a lot of um, give them that much credit for putting a plan together like that to de destabilize um, us like that with all this crap. Um, I can see that happening. I don't I don't know who would do that. I know that they're they're, they're capitalizing on the destabilization that we're doing internally. Mm -hmm. I know they're doing that. Um, I know that I give them enough credit for that. Uh, and we're talking China and Russia, either right. one of them. China now more specifically, because they're shipping all the drugs into Mexico that are making it in, into uh, the United States. Um, none of this helps about the borders and stuff like that. I even have my own family members, uh, uh, Mexican families who came across the border, right? Um, you know, they'll get, they'll get upset at me about my position on the borders, right? Lock that shit down. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you want to come into America, come into it legally. Um, because they all came across legally. They all came uh, uh, in my family history. So they came across legally. They contributed to the country, and they're proud Americans. And that, so it's uh, Mexican-Americans, right? So um, 
flag-waving, patriotic Americans, right? Uh, everybody jump into the military because that's your that's where we're at now. That's what you're. That's what we're we're gonna do. Um, contribute to the society, have jobs, pay taxes. Um, well, we're paying a lot of taxes, but <laughs> that's what we do, right? Right. Um, uh, yeah, be a contributing member to this country and to the society that you're living in, your neighborhoods, and then, you know, um, my dad used to say that. Back to my dad again. He's like, yeah. Um, uh he, and I don't speak a lot of Spanish. I don't speak hardly any. I don't gotta say I don't speak any Spanish. But I understand <laughs> some. Um, uh, he's like, nope. You're gonna speak. You're gonna speak English. Goes, and so he made it a point not to speak Spanish in the house to where we couldn't understand it. Um, he's like, you're, you're speaking. This is where we're at now. We're in America. Be American. Red, white, and blue flag waving. Mm -hmm. um, you know, patriotic. We speak English here. It's like, all right. Right. Yeah. I mean, so even from that, it was like, I don't think there's, I, I think that there is like some sort of cap, they're capitalizing on the internal like destabilization. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing that for a while. Um, and we've been doing that for years. And then I, I give them credit to do something like that. What do you mean we've been doing that? Like fighting amongst each other about uh, uh, topics. Uh, right. Uh, there's always been a, um, a diversity thing, diversity, uh, racism, mm -hmm. and hell, I'll even tell my own uh, grandkids, uh, mixed race. It's like, so they hear racism. They hear the word racism. Like, you don't know what that word even means. They redefine it, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so there is such a thing as like discrimination and those kind of things based off your race and your religion and sexual preferences and all that stuff. There's always been that. That's an actual term. Um, but... Uh, I don't know about this racism thing. I was mm -hmm. like, watch what you say, because that means a lot of things that they've redefined and they don't know now. So, hell, even my granddaughter said that. I was like, mm. you, you know, you're in, like, you're, you're in school. You wouldn't be allowed to go to school. You wouldn't be allowed to drive a car mm -hmm. if, if there was real racism still in America. And, um, you know, if there's discrimination, there's biases and unbiases and all that stuff. I'd totally get that. Um, but to, uh, like, so, I mean, who has the most to gripe about right now, in my mind, is the American Indians, the Native Americans, right? Mm -hmm. Who are, who are uh, literally put on a turf of ground, told, this is all you get. Right. And don't ask for any more. And then when they found oil on that ground, they were like, all right, go to a different place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to put you on the good ground. So if, if I had a, a highlight, a person, a people in America who had a gripe, that's who has the gripe. And you don't hear a whole lot from the Native Americans, but um, you do hear every once in a while, uh, give us back our land, uh, Mount Rushmore and all that stuff, there's folks out there. So nobody's nobody's really tackling that whole like real problem. Right. Um, those are real people who are having issues with the history of America and where they're playing their part in it today. Right. But now I wonder if like, you know, China has control of TikTok and they're able to potentially algorithmically promote ideas into the U.S. populace. Yeah. And could those ideas that they're promoting create more infighting and take attention off of what they're doing? Absolutely. Yep. And and I absolutely and Russia is no different. I think they're both doing that to that extent. Um, like the uh, yeah, we're, we're, it's 
is how to get the message out to the masses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Should, should TikTok, TikTok be banned? Um, it already is on like government services, government mm-hmm. cell phones, stuff like that. Um, uh, I don't know. That's that's a. Um, I don't think it should be banned, um, but everybody should be made aware of what's happening on it and who has access to it and what your information is. That's with every social media platforms and all those uh, uh, messaging things, TikTok, uh, Facebook, uh, all of them, every single one of them. Um, it should be made more aware of it. And what does it mean to me, right? Because I, I know people who are like, they're, they're, I don't have any secrets. I don't care. I mean... I can just put my information out there. It's like so from a, just from a personal information standpoint, right? Who's 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 managing your information, you know, appropriately? Mm-hmm. You know, who's selling your information to third parties and all those kind of things? I mean, you, so just from a personal information security, um, I think people should be aware of those kind of things and what could possibly happen. Because then we have all this other stuff that's happening as a result of the access that everybody has now. Mm-hmm. So human trafficking, all that stuff, just there's so many things. So that's how they're getting some of the kids. They're getting through the games and talking to ki- kids on, through their gaming systems um, or, their, or, their, uh, or their apps, any other messaging apps, right? They're they're targeting, that's how they're getting some of the kids. Um, so there's so many things that, you know, when you start, you know, uh, so controlling or banning, right? I'm not, uh, that's First Amendment thing with me. It's like, mm, you know, you're free to use what you want to use. If you want to be on TikTok, then use it. But here's what, here's who controls that, your information, and here's who controls you in, in, a, in a human trafficking or uh, like a, any class you take, any, anybody that's talking about counter human trafficking stuff, um, that's one of the biggest ones. That's how they get the kids, uh, to talk to other strangers, right? It used to be this back in the day when it was person to person, stranger danger, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now you don't know who's, who that other person is. And they're just a, an avatar or they're just a fictitious person. And that's the sick minds who are targeting kids that way. Well, so bad actors are targeting kids and then basically trying to like coerce them to meet them somewhere and then yep. trafficking them. Yep. Whoa. Yep. So, so to that point, uh, why wouldn't China do that from a political standpoint, right? To, mm-hmm. to uh, try to persuade Americans or whoever they want to really to think a certain way. Mm, traffic the minds yep. in a way. False information, false news, whatever you want to call that too. I mean, that's, that's a real thing. I mean, that's, that's like a, um, that's an like old school, um, uh, I don't know, like a, um, uh, a campaign to provide false information. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been a tactic yeah, strategy for oldest time. Yeah. So, Who's not to say that they're doing? I give them that much credit to take advantage or manipulate what they already know is going on, our internal stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and my whole thing is like, just I don't care. <laughs> just if you're going to work with me, then just do your job, right? I, so I don't need to know your personal, you know, too much information, right? Keep it to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, while you're here. Do yeah. your job. Do do whatever. You know, behave yourself, right? What? Uh, it's like I, I don't need to believe in your beliefs. I don't need to do what you do. I don't need to accept what you're doing. That's we're in America, right? Mm-hmm. Just. 
But we can coexist. Yeah. And we can work absolutely. together. Yeah, and that's not being uh, just like the brokering the peace deal between uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. That isn't happening here. Uh, we got left and right going back and forth with each other, and nobody's nobody's just saying, "Okay, stop, just stop your shit," right? Um, you do, you be you, you be you, you know, and just be Americans, right? Have have some sort of central um, like that, like like national. Uh, uh, pride. Mm-hmm. So that has gone by the wayside, which I think some of that too could be seen as like, um, I don't know, like a, like a, a campaign that's that like China w- would run. Right. Um, like, cause that's gone. I mean, uh, they took, but that's been happening for years too, though. Uh, take the pledge of allegiance out of the schools. Cause you used to do that when you showed up for school in the morning, pledge, pledge of allegiance. Somebody gets picked out of the, st- you know, the, the class and you get to lead the class in the pledge of allegiance. That doesn't happen everywhere now. Right. Um, the, 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 um, or, uh, we talked about earlier too, about, you know, having some sort of, uh, like a central faith of some sort, mm-hmm. um, you can be whatever it is you want, but have some sort of sense of accountability to a, a higher authority, right? Mm-hmm. Like at one point, I'm going to be held accountable for my actions. Yeah, these these rituals of nation building are extremely important, I think, for any nation. Yeah, and in America, it feels like it has been deprioritized because when you're a kid, you're like, oh, this pledge of allegiance thing is kind of silly, but I still know the pledge of allegiance to this day. And if you're building a nation, it is important from a uh, framing perspective that people buy into what it means to be in a nation because ultimately yeah. all the borders of a nation and the nation itself is a human invention to an extent right and you need to get people to buy into the invention of the nation yeah. and once you take out you know what it means to be a member of that nation then you start to lose the thing itself yeah yeah uh, i uh uh you know national identity something that's everybody's uh common whatever you're doing mm-hmm. and that's what uh and uh, just being around here, if you get an Uber and there's a, a guy driving the car and he's from some other country, those people, oh, and yeah. even some of the people coming across the border, will are like, they came to America, right? They're so proud and happy to be here. Yeah. I was a doctor or something in whatever country, and he's here, and I'm free to do this is so much. That I love it here. There's freedom, and there's... Uh, he sees all the different races and he's it like, is funny in New York City the most patriotic person is Mohammed Salim that's driving the Uber that is yeah. the guy that's like I love America like, yeah. that guy loves it here and then you ask like some white girl from Brooklyn whose dad works for like Raytheon and she's like I hate America yep, it's yep. like what like, what happened yeah, right? it's so funny it's like it's it, in the city specifically it's an where inversion. did that go sideways like that yeah and, and I, I hear it all the time and those are the folks right and uh, hell, I was uh, again back to the nine eleven memorial, just being a tourist. And those are the folks that are in the the. When you talk about diversity, right? Uh, anybody who says that, that America's racist and systemic, all this crap, go to the nine eleven memorial and see the faces on the wall. And that's not all just white people on that wall that died that day. Right. And it's about as diverse as you can get. And it, it, if you don't go into the history of all these people, what they believed in their lives and what religions they were, look that just mosaic of 
uh, like no shit. If you were a believer in America, that was America. Yeah. Yeah. America might be the most racist country, but because, only because we have the most races. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to be racist in Sweden. It's like, it's all Swedes. You know what I mean? Like, we all are the same. So, but despite, you know, like, obviously our, our tattered history with racism, we have the most races and it's pretty peaceful. Like, you walk around the street in New York City, the most diverse place maybe in the entire planet. Yeah. And everyone's pretty uh, pretty good. And obviously there's going to be racial discrimination that happens in the U.S., but it's not bad. I mean, it's easy for me to say as a white guy. But, uh, you know, comparatively to a lot of other nations, they are not confronted with the, uh, you know, the issue of racism to the same extent because it's so homogenous. Yeah. And, you know, I think the Bronx is literally the most diverse place on the planet. And a lot of people coexisting. And that's beautiful to see. I think that's what makes America so so unique and so special. Yeah, uh, it is. And, and and this is a perfect example of that. Um, oh, my God. It's like, uh, you know, it's, 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 not a, it's not a particular person on the street either that you see homeless. Mm-hmm. You can go to L.A. too. The same thing's there. It's like, who's homeless there? It's not just a particular people, race, or, mm-hmm. or whatever they are. It's not a particular person. They're just people collectively representation of well who is America and it's about as diverse as they can get mm-hmm. always has been um, there's always just been those the politicization of uh, those issues to be issues to be you know campaigning on so yeah. again it's like when it, like, stop it's mm-hmm. like get over yourself right yeah it's like just just be real about what's going on and so uh, if you all go back to whenever you know you can go back to whenever that is too so there's a you know the past is the past get over it right the future is the future like look that way right mm-hmm. okay be understanding of what and put it put it in schools history that's our history all right I wasn't a part of that either. I wasn't alive back then either. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a history. I understand it. That was also the history of the world at the time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just us. Everybody's doing that. They're, that's, they're getting people from Africa and shipped through now as slaves. That was a thing. It happened. Mm-hmm. It was a part of global history, and this we're a part of that. And yet, and 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 we also went to war with each other to stop it. And it stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, there's all these biases and uh, discrimination, and people still think whoever they are are the best thing ever, and everybody should be like me. But uh, it, yeah. there's there's not the issues that we, I mean. There's people in power that are saying that it's like you're a black female in a position of power. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what I do think there's a little bit of like a perception issue where, you know, there's so much marketing that goes around the American ethos that says we are the greatest country ever and we're the best in America. You come here and everything's going to be amazing. And then there are people that have, you know, racial discrimination in the United States and they go, well, it's not the best for me. So why do you keep saying it's the best? And I think it's almost a, it's, we're creating this framework that America is perfect. And then people are finding reasons why it's not perfect due to the messaging. And I think people need to be just realistic and nuanced that, yeah, we have problems and America is not perfect, but it's pretty good. And we're, it seems like really working on trying to amend our tattered history and the, you know, fucked up things that our country did. And I think having a nuanced view is the most effective approach to say, there's bad things that happened before. We're trying to make them less bad. There's obviously going to be problems, but it's still a pretty good place to live in comparison to human existence. Yeah, yeah. And so they'll even, uh, so I, I'm with you counseling, <laughs> relationship counseling, all that stuff over the years too. And uh, and the, so they apply certain things to, to like uh, uh, 
I don't know. It's like, uh, okay, I screwed up in my past. Uh, you can't be held, you know, don't hold that against me if you're like, and we we're talking relationships. So we can go from a, a macro, like mm -hmm. two people having a relationship to. Yeah, 400 to million, whatever. The world, yeah, yeah. right? Um, it's like, uh, all right, get over it. Get over yourself. All right, we're, we're going to try. Okay, this happened. We'll, we've done this to get to this point. We're here now. Mm -hmm. That was then. This is now. What's what's ahead of us, right? Yeah, but if I get in an argument with my wife and I did something wrong, I can't just tell her to get over it. <laughs> try that with your girl. Just be like, get over it. No, you got to like apologize and try to make I it right and do better. I have said that. It didn't go well. No, it doesn't. And that's what I feel like a lot of people in the U.S. are doing. They're like, get over it. And it's like, no, no, no. You got to yeah, apologize. We got to work on it. We got to make it better. And then we can move on. Yeah. But you can't do that with your wife. Just so like, somebody who's yeah. a little bit more articulate. Yeah. Because <laughs> I have said that. I think you got to play slap. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you might deserve it. But no, I think that's what we need. I, I like what you said that we need someone that is going to the broker the peace within the political factions within the U.S. to Somebody. focus on the bigger picture. Yeah, and uh, yeah, ho hopefully our conversation is, has uh, mended some people's perspectives as to what's going on globally. Oh man, that we can I, that we can yeah. stop the you know the nonsensical fighting in the U.S. and try to move past our individual differences within America to try to focus on what's happening geopolitically and uh, realize that there's a lot of other countries out there. And some of them may be malicious or, you know, trying to, you know, suppress America's standing in global rankings and things like that. So more people need to come here to the Bronx and New York City and get Ubers and yep. talk to the drivers. That's true. <laughs> they will be the patriot, most patriotic person ever. Yeah. Listen, after listening to their story. Also the nicest people. They're just like, like yeah. they'll take you around. Like they'll wait if you need to go somewhere. They're the best. I love, I love so, Uber drivers. And they appreciate everything that they have. It's like, I got a car here. I didn't have a car back in my country, right? Yeah. I got gas. It's cost me $4 a gallon, but hey, I get gas, right? I have lesson. money to get gas. I got to be more grateful. <laughs> I talk to, I talk to people in the U.S. And I'm like, damn, I got to, I got to have your mindset, you know? Yeah. 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 It's, it's. That's awesome. I love America. Um, that, that, but it's trying to get that national, you know, pride back. And unify things. Yeah, yeah. Um, just some central, that needs to be the central focus of whatever it is we're doing. Yeah. And do what you do. It's America. Well, I, your story is, uh, has gotten me fired up, so I appreciate you sharing it with me. And, oh, yeah. Uh, appreciate it, yeah. For Thanks taking for the time me. to be here and just, uh, yeah, to lay it all down and answer my dumb questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate it a lot. Seriously, this is, uh, this is really cool. I had some pretty good questions there. It's like, yeah, well, that's a great question. Well, thank um, you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. a good time. And next time you're back in New York, we'll do it again. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you.